There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was Tuesday, April 29, 1997, and the Auckland Warriors sat in ninth place after a loss to the North Queensland Cowboys, the only team below them on the Super League ladder. The Warriors board decided enough was enough, and coach John Money was sacked for the first time in an illustrious coaching career. The change at the top, however, was the least of their worries, in a tumultuous season of on-field disappointment and off-field disarray. This is part one of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. This is our Super League 1997 season recap. So I always really like these season recap chapters, so I'm looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, bringing back some wonderful memories. Well, yeah, it would be for you. For me, this is completely new. You know, (laughs) as mentioned several times, I staged a season-long boycott, so... Uh, most of this I'm discovering for the first time in the research process. I was just going to qualify wonderful as in semi-wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, going through what we've got planned for this chapter, wonderful maybe stretching it, but there's certainly <laughs> a lot of points of interest over the course of the season. So this is going to be a domestic Super League season recap. So we're not going to touch on the Tri-Series. We're not going to touch on the World Club Challenge. They will both be covered down the track. What we're going to look at in this is just how the season unfolded. And we're going to do that through uh, the seasons of each club. Now, we're not doing one episode per club because uh, if we add the ARL to the mix, that would mean 22 recap episodes for clubs. And, you know, I'm quite keen on finishing this series within the 2020s. So basically the way I've structured it is I've found what I could, took out all the points of interest about the seasons of each club and how they kind of reflect the broader narrative. So some clubs will get a whole episode. Some clubs will, you know, get comparatively little coverage. So it's not an even spread of facts and information. So I apologize if you feel that your club has got short shrift, but I've just tried to pull out what I think is the most interesting and the most representative of what rugby league was like in 1997. Well, I think it's perfect because you've used the same model as the spread of talent across clubs in Super League. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in this first episode and the next episode of this chapter, we're going to be covering the also-ran. So the clubs who didn't make the finals, uh, with the exception of the Hunter Mariners. And there's a very important reason for that. I really wanted to discuss Newcastle as a whole. So we're going to be looking at the two Newcastle seasons in tandem quite a bit further down the track of the season. It was a great year for the Hunter Mariners, and we will be giving that 
a lot of attention, but just not in this chapter. To quote Paul Fettyborn, one of the great clubs. Um, so we will get into it. Before we do start on that, I have our first piece of erratum for the season, and that concerns uh, the world-famous auctioneer, Leroy Van Dyke, that was <laughs> referred to uh, in our previous chapter. Now, as it turns out, Leroy Van Dyke is not an auctioneer, but actually a country singer who wrote a song called The Auctioneer. Right, that makes sense. A couple of points in my defence. Uh, firstly, <laughs> I took it as face value. That was reported in a newspaper article, and I just assumed that they had done their research. I can't remember which journalist wrote the piece, but as it turns out, no, Leroy Van Dyke was not an auctioneer, despite being labelled as such. Another piece in my defence, and maybe the defence of the journalist involved, is that because of his song, The Auctioneer, Leroy Van Dyke actually is in the World Auctioneers Hall of Fame. Good Lord. I mean, it goes <laughs> to show what sort of entertainment we all used to when you and I readily accepted that an auctioneer <laughs> yeah. was going to be the entertainment. <laughs> uh, but maybe one point for the prosecution is that I'm a massive country music fan. I hadn't heard of Leroy Van Dyke or his song, The Auctioneer. Uh, I went and looked it up. It's on YouTube. You can see it for yourself. Not a bad song, not a bad voice. I'd say he's somewhere between Hank Snow and Lefty Frizzell. I'm not rushing out to, you know, track down his full discography, but, um, you know, yeah, decent work from Leroy Van Dyke. Uh, so let's get into it. Season 1997. As I said, we're doing it by club, and we're going to start from the bottom with the North Queensland Cowboys. It was their third season. It was their first with their premiership winning coach in Tim Sheens coming in. So the season had a lot of promise. You know, they kind of improved from Wooden Spooners in 1995. And with Sheens coming in, along with some high-profile recruits, there was a feeling that, you know, maybe this was the start of, you know, getting better and, you know, progressing up the table. So I want to start with the Tim Sheens side of things because I think what Sheens did was to bring credibility and bring that promise, it didn't really work out that way in actuality. I've got to say, man, reading your notes, I'm very disappointed in Sheen's. I always put him on a pedestal as some sort of Superman, some sort of super coach, but he's very human, <laughs> it seems. I think he was up against it in a number of ways that we'll get into. And I think that all starts with his arrival in Townsville how that was handled, and what that maybe says about the Cowboys administration at the time. So basically, the deal was done in 1995. So uh, Grant Bell was their inaugural coach. He was celebrating after the club's first ever win, which came in May 1995. And he was waiting on a player contract to come through when a fax came in at the office. And on that fax was a signed contract from Tim Sheens to become their new coach. Isn't it cruel? Yeah, like really horrible. So he went to Rabbi Cram, the uh, CEO at the time, and said, you know, what's doing, to quote Fatty, <laughs> for the second time in this episode. Uh, and Rabbi said, yes, he is coming. We've made that decision, but it's not until 1997. So you're good for a year and a half, and hopefully you can show what you can do, and, and that could lead you to a gig elsewhere. Yeah, awful. I really feel for him, and but at the same time, like you understand the Cowboys' need to get a coach of that caliber. If, if that coach becomes available, then you know they'd be mad to not jump on it. 
Yeah, I agree with that, but it's like, why sign the young guy in the first place then if you want an old guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true, but I guess he was the best available at the time. So I can forgive the club for making that move. What I don't really get is the decision later in 1995 to sack Bell and bring in Graham Lowe for 1996. So they've yeah. signed Sheens for 1997. Bell already knows that he's out, but suddenly they're saying, we want you for the next year. Oh, actually, we're going to go with Graham Lowe for 1996. So odd. It just seems it's needlessly creating a mess. So Grant Bell said that he had Tim Sheens ringing him to talk about player retention and that sort of thing. Graham Lowe was calling up saying he wanted, you know, Reggie Cressbrook played at 5'8", and, and all this stuff that wasn't making it easier for Grant Bell. And it also was, I don't know, to me it just seems like disrupting things for no reason. Well, I mean, it's pure rugby league and it's, you know, six losses and then it doesn't matter how embarrassing or how much drama you cause with a decision. Mate, it's untenable. We have to do something. Let's get Graham Lowe in, you know. It's always knee-jerk yeah. stuff. yeah. Always. I mean, the one thing I could give them a pass on, and this is why I think it was necessary to get Tim Sheens if Tim Sheens was available, is Grant Belt isn't bringing in the calibre of recruits that the Cowboys needed to have a first-grade standard squad, which they didn't have in 1995. So having a name coach can, especially to a footballing outpost like Townsville, you Uh, can see the need to have like big names there. You're being too easy on the administration, I think. It's like you're coming into the comp in, in this one-team town. It's been planned. There's four teams coming in. Just sort the coach out first, you know? Like, Yeah. I, I feel for the guy. I really do. I do too. Uh, and to his credit, Graham Lowe, I think, came in and he knew he was going to be there for one year. It was kind of like him coming out of retirement. So, And I haven't really seen a breakdown of the relationship between him and Tim Sheens, but from what I've seen, it seems there was a mutual respect there. So I think Graham Lowe was quite happy to just kind of pave the way for Sheens' arrival without disrupting things too much. I was always a Graham Lowe admirer, and um, I did a bit of research on him as we're preparing for this episode. I didn't know he was knighted recently. Yes. Sir Graham Lowe. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I assume it's one of the knighthoods that comes from New Zealand rather than someone in England saying he should get it because, I mean, they knighted the Mad Butcher as well. So. <laughs> All right, well, that puts it in perspective. Yeah, a nice honour for him nonetheless. Uh, yeah, so there's a bit more Graham Lowe talk coming uh, at the back end of this episode, but we might move on from the Lowe era to the Sheens era. And We've got the Sir Mad Butcher. Can we have the Sir Let's Go on Warriors guy? so sheens comes in in 1997 adamant that he didn't want a you know five-year plan this was his quote i hate those five-year plans that's just an excuse for a coach to have an ordinary first two or three years we want some sort of result early a better result in year two and a consistency that becomes well developed in year three now does that not sound very much like a five-year plan or the first three (laughs) years of a five-year plan (laughs) (laughs) what's funnier than contradicting yourself in your own quote (laughs) so that started with a clean out so um, you know Sheen's didn't really like what he saw at the club there was a massive overhaul of the playing roster over the next couple of years Uh, it you know it didn't really 
get sorted basically for the entirety of the Cowboys in the 90s. There was a huge amount of turnover year to year. A lot of players who were there for only one year. Paul Bowman, I'd forgotten that he was there in 1995. Like to me, I just associate him with those kind of like, you know, early 2000s Cowboys team, you know, a bridge to the Thurston era. But he was there from the start. Yeah, great player too. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, struggled for stability. Some really good players or, you know, wholehearted players made way. The one I really feel sorry for was Adrian Vowles. Mm, who comes at the club in 95, their inaugural captain, loved the place, you know, loved living there. His quote was, I was shattered. My heart and soul was in North Queensland. My wife, Kerry, and I had bought a house there. We had a young daughter and suddenly they didn't want me. Townsville meant so much to me. I went home and panicked. My world had crashed around me. Quotes like that, which makes you realize we're dealing with human beings here. As much as we have a laugh at the expense of um, rugby league player yeah. mindset, it's uh, hits home, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's the nature of the game, and you can't run a club with those feelings in mind. You got to make the club the best you can, and players go into it knowing that at any stage, you know, their employment is conditional. But at a human level, it, it re- is really tough to think of. On a positive, I, mean, I really admire what he did with his career because he got selected for a legitimate origin team, so that's something to hang your hat on. But then he went to England and became a real star mm. and really made the most of it, become a leader over there. So yeah, uh, he's treated a little bit shabbily over here, really, because he's quite a classy player, wholehearted, like you say. Yeah, and I guess it's just kind of like, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And, I mean, better players than him fell by the wayside at the same time. Yeah, true. I mean, but it's those sort of guys like him and Tolson Tollett, guys that were um, mm. uh, overlooked here that sort of pushed the English game forward. So, yeah, got a lot of respect for it. Yeah. So, Sheen's, in addition to moving on, quite a few players brought a few in, uh, a mix of youth and experience. Tyron Smith was one of the young guns who came up with a lot of promise, leaving South. And, you know, just a preview for when we talk about South, he said this that he came to the Cowboys because he wanted to be coached. So a little <laughs> subtle dig there at Ken Shine at the Rabbitohs. So is that his second club, Tyron Smith, at that point? At that point, it was. And as it turns out, it wouldn't be his only club for the year. So he was released <laughs> by the Cowboys uh, midway through 1997 and um, played with the Hunter Mariners for the rest of the year. It wasn't until Canberra that he really found his footing, like had all his promise but it was just kind of like a, you know, stop-start kind of career. But I think those last two or three years at Canberra, like, he became, like, you know, not a star, but a solid first grader that no, it was very had kind of us. settled. Yeah. i tell you what, like, when I, I remember him coming through and I think, oh, this guy's amazing, how rangy he is, you know, <laughs> yeah. athletic and everything. Then I remember thinking, God, he's not that bright. And, um, you know, he, he looked like he changes at clubs. He looked like the sort of guy that was going to go, like, really bad. Mm. And now look at him. He's like a player agent. He's like... Yeah. Respected and so really turned it around. Yeah, totally. Uh, The rest of the signings, it was a lot of experience, like Owen Cunningham and Ian Roberts coming up from Manly. Roberts, he had some good moments at the Cowboys, but, you know, his body was kind of breaking down. It wasn't a consistent couple of years of showing that he still had it. Owen Cunningham, on the other hand, in 1997 in particular, uh, he won the Cowboys Player of the Year and like really stamped his class and made a, a hugely positive impact there. That was a really astute signing by them because that was a exact player they needed, right? Yeah. 
like we'll talk about later, the Kevin Campion at the Rams, like some players you just need in your team and Cunningham. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant signing for them. But Roberts as well, that was a name. They needed a name and he was a enforcer as well. So even if they got like 20 minutes a game out of it, it was worth it. Yeah, that's right. Just having that name, it just gives them some credibility. But I think the most significant signings was the Canberra connection that he brought with him. And, you know, there would be more that would come over the next couple of years. I think over the course of his time at the Cowboys, I think it was something like 11 former Canberra players ended up there. But the two big ones for 97 were Steve Walters and John Lomax. Well, Karen Walters fell off a cliff from like 92 to 97. And then Steve Walters fell off a cliff in the mid-90s too. Not as bad as Carrot, but God, he went from like the best player in the world in 94 pretty much to struggling. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the last three years of his career, so two years at the Cowboys and one at Newcastle, it just happened so quickly from being regarded as the best hooker of all time, yeah. as he was talked about you know, in that era, to you know, finished his Cowboys career coming off the interchange bench. They didn't want him for 1999. He picked up a gig at Newcastle to you know, not outstanding results. The game just kind of passed him by so quickly. It's funny, Kevin just went right to the end. Yeah, yeah. He went up, he was looking for a change from Canberra. He thought he felt stale, wasn't being tested, and wanted to finish his career at a Queensland club. This was bad news for Jason Deeth, who had left Canberra to escape Steve Walters. I can't believe it. I remember at the time going, how bad is this? Like, Because he was a good player, and we had him on yeah. the bench and like wasting him. And so he went up there. I thought, oh, good for him, you know. And then um, yeah. and Steve Waters goes, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, so poor Jason Deeth. And I think both Walters and Lomax maybe thought it was just going to be like a kind of easier ride than it ended up being. Like, you know, they were under their old coach, you know, living in a tropical location. But both were dropped by Sheens during 97 for disciplinary reasons. And, you know, neither really got anywhere near the heights of their Canberra days. Was it just like general carry-on lateness, that type of thing? Yeah, yeah. So nothing too serious. But when he was asked why he dropped Walters and Lomax instead of finding them, he didn't go into it, but he said both are not first defenders. So, you know, maybe it was just a you know lack of professionalism or, yeah, as you said, just a bit of carry-on. You get these clubs where, like, it's in a nice area, so people just think, well, most of our club were on holidays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so unprofessional. <laughs> One of the really interesting things for me in terms of the Canberra connection following him to Queensland was Chica Ferguson, who Tim Sheen's brought up to Townsville in 1997 for a, like, community development kind of role. So Chica came up. I don't know that he actually stayed with the Cowboys that long, but he made a home for himself in Townsville and is there to this day. Yeah, I didn't know that until the research, mate. It's um, he's the reason I followed the Canberra Raiders. It got me into footy pretty much, just leading try scorer in the mid eighties. And happy to hear it. Yeah, it was really interesting. So I sent you an article from the Australian in two thousand and nineteen. So it was in the lead up to the. Canberra Grand Final run. It was an article, you know, trying to track down Chica. Uh, they ended up not being able to get in touch with him. They made contact with his son-in-law in Townsville, and he said, uh, "I'll see what I can do, but he's probably not going to get back to you," which <laughs> he didn't do in the end. Which is fine, but it blew me away reading 
the other Raiders players, like Laurie Daly was interviewed and said the last time he saw him was like around 1994. Like he's just completely like moved away from it and isn't in contact with anyone. Either it's a very sad case of ultimate shyness slash agoraphobia, or he's really smart and hates hanging around footballers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, from what you hear, he really contributes to the community up there. Like he's involved with the local church, does kind of drug and alcohol kind of stuff. And, you know, is a dedicated family man. And that's kind of what he needs as opposed to the adulation from fans and the football community. But it's it's just so odd when it's such a tight knit team, those Raiders teams. Yeah. And he was the crowd favorite of all crowd favorites, grand final hero. It was just really surprising to read that. He's one guy that I wouldn't bail up if I saw him out of respect. Yeah. No one would hate a bail up more than Chica. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if even you are, you know, <laughs> willing to give up the chance for a bail up, that tells you something. But I don't know. There's something kind of, you know, as you said, you know, maybe it's a sad thing, but there's also something just really cool about a guy that did this, was a hero, like knows how beloved he is but doesn't need it, doesn't care for it, so just runs his own race and stays out of the way. It's real self-assuredness, isn't it, to not seek validation? Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it's just strange. I didn't know any of that. Um, But we'll move on from Chica to the the Cowboys season itself. So they were wooden spooners who, as late as June, were in with a mathematical chance of making the finals, which, you know, is is kind of not hard to do in a 10-team comp, but, you know... The only maths rugby league people and fans are into is mathematical chances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, once the finals were out of reach, they you know dedicated themselves to a run in the World Club Challenge instead. That was similarly ill-fated. But just reading that, I was thinking, like, I wonder what kind of impact that had on the domestic season when you have clubs out of the race for the finals just going, okay, well, we've got a chance at some money and some silverware if we just divert our attention that way. Yeah, it's funny because I always thought the midweek comp's a great idea, but then I didn't sort of factor into that tanking the main comp to have a go at them. Yeah, <laughs> which is comp. the last thing you want. Like We've talked about it previously, how much we love the idea of you know mid-season comp to give the players a break, give Origin its own period, internationals, etc. But there is a knock-on effect to that, and you can't just bring it in without considering what it's going to do to your actual domestic season. So as it turns out, leading into the last round, the Rams actually sat in last spot. Uh, the Warriors and Cowboys were also with a chance of the spoon. And then you had the Mariners and the Reds, a win ahead of them. So Adelaide beat Penrith in their last round to get themselves off the bottom, but the Warriors thrashed the Cowboys. So the Warriors ended up with the wooden spoon. So as it turns out, only one win separated sixth spot, which was the Hunter Mariners, from last spot, the Cowboys. Yeah. To me, it highlights the Mickey Mouse tendencies of a 10-team comp. <laughs> it's so stupid, yeah. <laughs> all the um, spruiking, all the razzmatazz, and ended up with a 10-team comp with three good teams. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it was kind of a frustrating year for the Cowboys. So it was a growth year. You know, they won five games out of 18, had two draws, won five out of six in the World Club Challenge, which not a massive achievement, but <laughs> it's something. 
But they end up with the spoon anyway. So uh, Tim Sheen's quote was, I think it's difficult for everybody in Queensland who saw the Cowboys perform better than they ever had before, still ending up in last spot on the ladder. Well, it's astonishing looking at it from you know three decades later, whatever it is, the Auckland and North Queensland, these huge bases of talent. It took them years and years and years to get anything close to a system happening. <laughs> and this is where you can say, oh, it was really unlucky for the Cowboys that they ended up with the spoon when they were growing. The fact is they had some advantages. They had a two-year run-up on the Rams and the Mariners for a start. The Reds were imploding all over the place. So you could see with a bit of off-field stability, maybe the Cowboys were expected to do better. Well, it just goes to show, mate, how important your initial squad is when you have a new team. Hunter just had some really good players. Kamal yeah. and Hill, yep. you know, all those good players that were just uh, thrown together as off-cuts, but it, it worked out. Yeah, exactly. You put Scott Hill and Kamali in North Queensland, they're looking a whole lot better. Yeah. And the thing about the Cowboys is that they've been pretty stable for nearly 30 years. Like, there hasn't been too much incompetence on the board. There hasn't, you know, been financial crises. Their crowds have always been good. So that Super League year, they had the second best crowds out of either competition. So second only to the Broncos. Finished last but still averaged over 17,000 for the year. That's impressive in that Super League year. Yeah, and we're in good state financially. And I could be wrong, but I can't remember any financial crisis at the Cowboys over the years. They've just been a solid club, well-supported, but their ability to recruit and retain players has been the only factor holding them back. The problem is that that is a significantly important factor to a club's success. Yeah, well, it took them a long time. And, I mean, over the years, there's been various times when you'd say they underachieved that you know during the Thurston era which from face value I thought it was an underachieving kind of thing but then when you actually look at it from say 2010 on it's like pretty sustained success for you know six or seven years culminating in a premiership and another grand final appearance so I don't know the last 10 or 15 years of Cowboys history has made me think that we're not too far away from a you know really powerful Cowboys era. As long as they're a good, solid outpost, a regional outpost, that's good for the game. Uh, one solid regional outpost that we no longer have is Adelaide, which for many reasons is a real shame. Uh, 1997 for Adelaide was a really promising year. They finished ninth, but had some good wins along the way. But more importantly, off-field, they you know, opened with 27,000 for their first home game and you know, had a good run of decent crowds for the first half of the year uh, in particular. They seemed well run. They had good infrastructure there. So when you think about 1997 in Adelaide, there was just so much promise and so much hope. So I'm the ultimate booster of this. I've got a, in my mind a 500,000 word manifesto on Paradise Lost, what could have been in yeah. in Adelaide. There were so many good signs in 1997, like that 27,000 fair opening game, that speaks for itself. But just like little things, there was a South Australian schoolboys team that won the developing states competition, you know? So as the Rams were there, there's a sign that they've got this junior pathway and, and there's a chance for them to build something ahead of schedule. I've only been there once in Adelaide for a week and I really, really love the vibe of the place. And it's got a Brisbane feel to it for me. And they're sort of open people, open to watching NRL. It's the way I felt dealing with them. And um, I just really think that they dropped the ball hard, not keeping that up. Yeah. And 
we're not going to go too far into their demise in this episode, but you know, th- there are a few things that maybe worked against them. One of them was the AFL thing. The fact that the same year that they entered Port Adelaide entered the competition, the Adelaide Crows won the first of their two premierships in a row. So it was just really bad timing for a team that needed to stand out a bit in that market. Well, I mean, uh, the good thing is they didn't know football intimately, so the fact that that squad was sort of thrown together a touch that didn't impact the fans coming out, which is great, but give them a few more years, they could have had a Melbourne Storm-type following. Easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you say the fans didn't know football that well, um, that's very true and acceptable. You would hope their ground announcer knew a bit more about football <laughs> than he did. Uh, at that first game, he was trying to get the crowd up, so he's trying to lead a defense chant uh, and you know getting the crowd into it. The only problem is that the Rams had the ball at the time. <laughs> now, what's more offensive, an American telling you when to clap or an imbecile telling you when to defense? <laughs> but I think what they offered in this, you know, league naive city was a point of difference. So it was just a different experience to going to an AFL match. And there's always going to be a market for something like that. I remember a couple of years after the GWS uh, arrived in Sydney, I actually went to, you know, my one and only GWS game with a mate. And I don't know, there would have been maybe like seven or 8,000 people there. But it was just a cool vibe because it was so far different to going to a league match that you were just like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. And I think in an AFL city, rugby league has some of that same advantage. <laughs> I really hate your um, inner West nature open to new experiences. <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> but I, I equate the problems of GWS trying to break into West Sydney, which is just pure rugby league. I think the Melbourne Storm had that with Melbourne, right? Mm. AFL mad. I think Rams in Adelaide could have been like Swans in Sydney. Yeah. A bit easier road in. Yeah, well, that's it. It's an expansion that wasn't born out of arrogance, which, like, that's everything about GWS. And I think to some extent, like, Melbourne in the NRL is an example of that, the way they came into the competition. But just having a point of difference and having a kind of family-friendly, you know, sporting vibe, it's something that can build naturally over, you know, a few years if they were given the time. I mean, just a change of jerseys, change of colours, you know, a bit more yeah. um, switched on look. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a better mascot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think the Rams is cool. I'll always stand by the Rams. Better than the Aces anyway. Can we agree on that? <laughs> yeah. uh, one asset they had was in their CEO, Liz Dawson, who at that point was the second uh, rugby league CEO to be a woman. The first was Donna Burke, who held the position at Cronulla, in a acting capacity for seven or eight months in the late 80s. Uh, so Liz Dawson, the first full-time female chief executive in rugby league. So she was in the press quite a bit throughout 1997 and just like really struck me as a, you know, very impressive CEO, not the woman part of it. I don't think it was an, an annoyance because she understood that that was the game she was in. There was always going to be questions about, you know, what does it feel like being a woman in rugby league? Like, <laughs> It feels the same as everyone else dealing with ingrained incompetence. (laughs) (laughs) Would you describe her as a smooth operator? I would, yeah. And she had a long career in sports administration following the Rams. So she's back in New Zealand 
now, but was on the board at St Kilda in the AFL. I think she was involved with New Zealand netball, uh, I think a super rugby team. So she's kind of bounced all over the place, but has made a career for herself in sports administration. It's all downhill from NRL, isn't it? Yeah. Football rugby union, God. But for the most part, I think she handled the job really well and was a really strong spokesman or spokeswoman for the club. Uh, maybe her only misstep was uh, came in Rod Reddy, who was their inaugural coach, and months into their existence was extended for three years. Well, Rod Reddy had mad raps from the players, right? The yeah. The players coach. And yeah. So she's probably thinking, it's, it's going to be fine. No worries. Three years is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and like had some early success. So it seemed like a good move at the time. And it may still have been like, to me, the, it's more the sacking him a year into the job after you've just extended him, you know, just the typical rugby league administration uh, style. I mean, like no one's more of an expert on ludicrous extensions than you being a Dragons fan, right? <laughs> so I quote you when I say, who are we fighting off in poaching yeah. this guy from us that yeah, we have to exactly. extend three years? Yeah. And, you know, he'd already bought the house in Adelaide, so... <laughs> See, that's a rugby league mentality too. Rather than wait and see, maybe get a three-month lease and see how the, the win-loss record is. <laughs> but yeah, so I think he was the right coach for the time just because he had the name and he had the respect of players. Like I think of like a bloke like Kevin Campion coming into Adelaide. Like What a dream matchup that is for player and coach. The success Adelaide had, I mean, how much of it can you put down to Kevin Campion? There's no yeah. bigger fans than Kevin Campion than the RLD. Everywhere mm. he went, he toughened the squad up and brought success. Yeah, so exactly. That's one of those, if North Queensland had him, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And at that point, he was basically in the peak prime of his career. So Bashing people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just such a hard nut, being coached by one of the ultimate hard nuts, just a dream forward for Rod Reddy and someone who could like deliver Reddy's message on field. Uh, so apart from Campion, you had Kerrod Walters as the marquee signing. As we discussed in our earlier chapter where we mentioned the Rams, they missed out on so many top players that they'd gone after, starting with Alan Langer. Ian Roberts was supposed to go there. John Lomax, Robbie Ross, even George Gregan. So name after name had turned them down. They were left with Kerrod Walters, who was unwanted at the Broncos. But he came in and was just a professional yeah. And could handle the weekly grind, could be a positive influence on the younger players. And more importantly, like has been an advocate for Adelaide football, like pretty much ever since. Anytime he's interviewed and gets asked about Adelaide, he talks about you know feeling bad about the team going and that there was a real promise there and a chance to build something. Well, I mean, him, Mayborn and Campion, without those three, there's a lot of uh, issues there. Yeah. But, um, the way he rejuvenated his career from like being in the wilderness, pretty much. Um, yeah. Very impressed. But yeah, outside of those three veterans, you had Mark Corvo, who was a fringe first grader at Canberra, who managed to, you know, win the Rams player of the year. And I think now Mark Corvo is actually best remembered as a Rams player. And that there's very few players who you could say that about. Graham Apo. Yeah. Apo as well would be the other one. Uh, some astute junior recruitment, like David Kidwell actually made his debut at the Rams in 1997. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody in footy's got fond memories of the Rams, the ultimate underdog. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about their winger, Wayne Simons, who was so excited to live on a waterfront place in Adelaide on the river that he 
decided to get some fishing gear so he could fish off his porch. Um, the first time he tried to do so, he cast his rod and caught his own lip, required surgery <laughs> to have the hook removed. That's so terrible. Imagine how much that would hurt. Christ. <laughs> oh. I think rugby league's probably in the, a world leader in freak home injuries yeah. as well. Like, <laughs> but so maybe that was a, a bad omen for how the Rams' experience was to play out. But as we said, they started strong, won that first home game before twenty seven thousand, and for much of the year they like maintained it. So there was a rugby league week article at the end of May talking about their impressive supporters. They hadn't had a game under 15,000 fans. That was the ultimate jinx because, as it turns out, the Rugby League Week wrote that article just after the last Rams home game that would ever attract more than 15,000 people. <laughs> so would you put that down to the um, the shine coming off because of the losses or just... I, like, yeah, I, I think that's part of the it. The novelty. A bit of both. Um you know, definitely like once it sunk in that this wasn't a particularly good football team, they were going to lose more often than they weren't. You had the new AFL club in Port Adelaide. You had the Crows going on a premiership run. Attention's being diverted elsewhere. So as it turns out, for the rest of the year after that Rugby League Week article, they averaged 12,000, which is still very reasonable. Like it's impressive, in fact, in a non-rugby league town for a club in their first year. So that season average was just under 15,000. But beyond that, the novelty had worn off. In 1998, they broke 10,000 only once, and that was in the round one game. So, But you've got to factor in, I reckon, mate, you've got to factor in the fact that um, you're asking a bunch of people in a city to watch a new sport. Oh, by the way, the game is in a civil war and only half the teams are going to play. Yeah. Ten-team comps, Mickey Mouse, like, you know. Yeah, and we're about the worst team in that comp. So, yeah. Off-field troubles didn't help with an incident at the Crazy Horse Strip Club leading to uh, four <laughs> players being arrested. So uh, one player was asked to leave, refused to do so, and then shortly after a, a squad of police cars arrived and, uh, yeah, they were arrested and charged with various offences, assaulting police, disorderly behaviour, resisting arrest. So not a good look. Uh, but it probably tells the story that their on-field performances like quickly fell away over the course of the year. Uh, finished ninth, a successful debut with a lot of promise, but it wasn't going to be enough. So they rang in the changes for 1998 with a bunch of players released. Um, the problem is, at that point, they were preparing for a 14-team reunited comp with a lot of players to pick from. In the end, they were left with a 22-team comp and, you know, had little chance of building the squad that they needed to for 1998. Think about that. 10-team comp, frying pan to 22-team comp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fire. Yeah. You know, so it was just a bad time in the end. Like, just a lot went wrong for the Rams that in a different era with a chance to build the club and, you know, build a city's appreciation for the game it could have worked and it's just a real shame that that was it and you know can't see an Adelaide team coming anytime soon yeah but this one pisses me off 98 happened right we could jump the gun we'll talk about that when the time comes but they were just cast away like well you know Adelaide yeah don't worry about them just flicked away like not even a thought and then suddenly it's a city never to be revisited yeah. and why yeah. why not revisit it to me it all comes back to the fact that they 
weren't the first choice at the time. Like they basically like fell backwards into having a rugby league team when not enough clubs signed with Super League. And it was never anyone's dream to have a team in Adelaide. So I don't think it's ever been a priority. What I don't get is we hear about Perth every six minutes, yep. right? Yeah. Perth coming about Perth. This Greg Florimer is coming out of his um gopher hole, like yeah. Caddyshack, you know, make it the Bears, you know. And then Adelaide just doesn't get a mention. No, it's never. much more successful than Perth. Yeah, I think it's viewed that there's these natural advantages of Perth, both in terms of the, you know, the time difference. Having a rugby culture, I, I use that word deliberately because it's not necessarily rugby league, but it's viewed that it's a more natural fit. But I kind of agree with you. I, I think Adelaide should at least be in the discussion. <laughs> they rather push a central corridor of uh, country yeah, Queensland yeah, I mean, that, that is an insult. <laughs> that we're talking about the central Queensland corridor over one of the, the five major cities in the country. Yeah. Well, if I was Flo, I'd be there pushing bears for Adelaide. Yeah, and I could actually see that working. But anyway, we'll leave the Rams there and head to New Zealand, who were in their third season like the Cowboys. And again, some changes that made them think that they were on the cusp of something. The biggest of that was the arrival of the Rugby League Digest ultimate hero, Matthew Ridge. (laughs) And people who have listened to our earlier chapters may be confused because he was, of course, their key spokesman throughout much of 1996, (laughs) despite not being on the books there for that year. (laughs) But now in 1997, we are talking about him as an actual Auckland Warrior. And I'd say to that point in time, he was their most important signing, the you know most significant player that they had had up to that time. That was a key signing, yeah. And I think for John Money, this was his quote, all the great players I've coached, Sterling, Kenny, Gene Miles, Andy Gregory, Ellery Hanley, they've had unusual traits and Matthew Ridge is the same. They're leaders, they're inspirational, they're mentally tough. And that's what we've bought him for. We haven't bought him for his training habits or for the sponsors. We brought Matthew Ridge for match day. I didn't know he was considered a bad trainer. I didn't know if Moni was necessarily having a dig at his training because I think he, for the sponsors, he, he's kind of a sponsor's dream, although he's you know likely to abuse them at you know <laughs> events and functions. But like just having a big name, I think the sponsors would love him. So I don't necessarily say he's bad for training or the sponsors, I think Moni's saying like, right, we're three years in, we need results on field, we need a champion. So that's why we've got Matthew Ridge. But he's capable of going to a sponsors event and then announcing that the competitor's the better brand, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I said, fair nigga. (laughs) So I think that kind of sets up the potential for the problems that – there was a weight of expectation and a belief that this could be a kind of transcendent signing. I would put him as a really, really classy player, but he's not going like, to be a James Tedesco type where it's going to be no. swashbuckling, you know, so yeah, it's a bit more subtle, his impact, than a huge um, swashbuckling type signing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I think that was maybe part of the problem. There was just a mismatch in expectation and reality. Uh, at the same time, Ridge came over fully embracing his off-field profile. So he'd, you know, become their spokesman before he was a player. So I think when he actually arrived as a player, he was ready to be the leader. He was instantly installed as captain and was going to dominate in the press. 
once he arrived, he launched his TV career. So he was, you know, getting involved in a, a series of, of shows and ads, various things that actually like set him up really well for his post football yeah, career. Yeah. So like, you know, he had a long run in New Zealand as a TV personality. He's made for TV. He's like the Paul Vorton of New Zealand. Yeah. Just like, a nat- yeah. like a natural, naturally honest, authentic bloke. Yeah, which is funny because I looked him up in preparation for this to see if he was still on TV there. And basically he kind of disappeared about 2010 and, you know, wasn't really doing much for about 10 or 11 years. And then in 2021, he took a gig as host of a, an architectural show where he'd go to various homes around New Zealand, speak to the architects and, and the owners and, and you know, <laughs> showcase that. the homes. <laughs> He's been in everything, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, why would you use uh, timber there? You're kidding yourself. <laughs> He's thinking I need a steel beam, and I'm thinking, <laughs> like. You call that a spire? <laughs> Did I make it for men? But I think in many ways, Super League was kind of the worst thing for his career because of how outspoken he became and, and how much of that he took on. So Frank Endicott, actually, I really thought this quote was interesting. He said, when he was used to promote Super League, it really did something to his character. Without the Super League war, we would have seen how great he was. I think that's a bit overstated, personally, but... I think, to me, it's the Super League thing and the off-field thing. Like, it was maybe a time for him to be just focusing on finishing his career really strongly, but he had all this other external stuff going on. It's just a case of going from a powerhouse club to a newbie. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. The I think there's a lot to that. And he brought those high standards with him from Manly. And as a result of that, he was, you know, criticized quite a bit for castigating his teammates on field and, you know, being really tough with them and bringing that expectation that I was at Manly, we had success, this is how you run the club. I will say, like, with his demeanor and appearance he's a natural heel so his body language on the field at times i can recall being a bit like oh geez oh yeah yeah he's not one of those leaders that leads by um positivity (laughs) no yeah and on top of bringing the standards of manly there was also the bozo factor i think bozo got ridge like no other coach could have the thing that bozo one of his key attributes was that he himself was a prick yeah, as a player and a coach and administrator, so do anything to win type prick. I'm saying that yeah. lovingly, and Ridge is the same. And they're just like, well, you know, it's all fair in love and football. Yeah, exactly. So I think they were cut from the same cloth in that regard. And the sledging and the toughness, Fulton got that, and Moni was like outspoken in not liking sledging. And we're going to talk a bit more about the breakdown of that relationship, but. I think like it was always going to be a struggle for any coach to live up to Bob Fulton in Matthew Ridge's mind. Inside Sport in, I think it was like March 1997, had a profile on Matthew Ridge. So this was before he played his first Super League game for the Warriors. Uh, it's just crazy how much they nailed how the Ridge experience was going to play out. So I'm just going to read this quote. Our concern to some is that Ridge, transferring from a starlight and a superbly drilled team in Manly, will demand of his new teammates that which they're simply not capable of producing. He was vital to Manly, but was one component in an awesome assembly, expertly moulded by Fulton over four years into a premiership-winning team. 
Now that he's working within a slightly inferior side and carrying enormous expectations, there's at least the potential for Ridge to become frustrated and even dispirited. Yeah. And that's basically exactly how it played out. So 1997 was a tough year for him. In his words, it's been a shocker. So a lot of injuries on top of the the general frustration of the team not quite being there. He was arguing with referees when he wasn't arguing with his own players or his coach. And that was basically like carried through for the rest of his career at the Warriors. So in 1998, Graham Lowe said, he appears to just be a little bit out of control. It appears to me from the outside that Matthew is more interested in the dollars than the performances. He's overpaid and underachieving. His discipline became a real problem. He was, you know, like in 1999, which ended up being his last year of rugby league, he and Nigel Vungano were suspended for three matches for manhandling a ref. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's unacceptable. In his second game after coming back from that suspension, he got suspended for eight games over three separate charges for tripping, a high tackle, and contrary conduct. That's right. He was tripping like Elf, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he was just a bit out of control in the Warriors era, born out of that frustration. And so he was released from the last year of his contract and retired after 1999. This is actually part one of the, of the Ridge portion of this episode. I just wanted to talk about his legacy and where he fits in. Because in hindsight, going to the Warriors was terrible for his career. Like, do you think we're talking about him as a Hall of Fame player? If he'd stayed at Manly, having him there in 1997 would have given them, you know, a pretty decent chance in that grand final, who knows what his last few years in first grade would have been if he stayed in that team. Like, I've got more respect for blokes that do that and don't stay in the comfortable, high-flying environment. Yeah. So the fact that he went and tried to contribute to Auckland, I, I respect. But to me, he's a Hall of Fame player. I don't know. That, that's interesting because I think to me he's short. Because he passes that test that I always use, which is very subjective. He's like, you ask anybody from the football fan and go, what do you think of him? And they go, oh, he's a good player, you know? Yeah, was, yeah. So no one's going to say Matthew Ridge was a, oh, yeah, I don't know whether he was a good player or not. He's like, he's universally known as a as a good player. Universally known as a good player, but I don't know if at any point in his career you'd say he was even like a top three fullback. Like, you know, he was never far below the top five. Agree, but like he was always in the top three for between the years. Um, yeah, yeah. Football IQ. Yep. Which is what I think is his strength that it can't be quantified. Exactly. And had the added thing of being one of the three super boots of the era, uh, super boot <laughs> kicking at 78%. <laughs> but like, I think of the three, of Taylor Halligan and Ridge, he's probably like least regarded as a goal kicker of those three. Like he's kind of the third one I think of. I don't know where it finished up, but for much of his career, his percentages was higher than those other two. I'd probably put him in my mind, is like Halligan's the super boot and he's the runner-up and then, and then yeah. Taylor. Taylor mm. had a few like 65% years, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, when I think back at his career, and it's patchy, I'll admit, but all I remember is him always making the right play, always being classy and slick. And maybe it's just because he was with Manly and they were dominating regular season. Well, well yeah, this is the thing. And you can say you respect him for going over to the Warriors and not getting too comfortable. But the fact that he did that and ultimately failed, is that a sign that he was always just a bit short of the top tier, like a star in a good team, but 
but not the type of player who could get a bad one over the line. And, and when you say a bad one, like it's not his responsibility to make a team with star potential get the best of that potential. But that Warriors team was like fairly loaded. No, 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 no. They had half the salary cap wasted on like union converts, like playing reserve grade. Andy Platt, you know, 500 grand, yeah. you know. So I think he walked into a minefield personally, but... Do you say that about Greg Alexander? He went to the Warriors and couldn't do anything. So it's like, yes, he didn't make them better, but I don't think many people would have. Maybe Alfie would have, you know? I mean, there was so much potential there, I guess is my point. You had Stacey Jones entering his prime. Stephen Kearney, about the best second row in the game in 1997. True, true. But you could go for 20 years and say, like, they've had potential, you know, after that, yeah. after that yeah. squad. So. Yeah, exactly. Um I don't know how we've uh, turned this episode into one of our uh, disastrous Hall of Fame segments. So, <laughs> we've got the clarity of one of those episodes. Nothing's been resolved. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the same boat. I love Matthew Ridge as much as I have for the course of this series. But yeah, ultimately, I think he's just a bit short of the top tier. You mentioned the union busts, and this was the basically the end of that strategy. So... You still had Mark Carter on the books, who was a former All Black, who was basically playing out his Warriors career in reserve grade. John Kerwin was released at the end of the 1996 season. And then you had Mark Ellis, who was, you know, the kind of glamour player and and became Matthew Ridge's on-screen partner for many years in New Zealand television, uh, but never really got it together in rugby league. I don't remember Mark Carter. No, yeah, I don't remember him at all. John Kerwin is recognised as a bust, but, like, he actually kind of got there by the end. Like, and maybe it wasn't value for money, but he was the Warriors' top try scorer in 1996 and, like, actually became an okay league player. Like, it wasn't a Garrick Morgan situation. Yeah, I think we're being harsh on that particular one. But um, the Mark Ellis one was a problem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But remember when we were kids and like Michael O'Connor and like every union convert was a gun, you know, mm. five meter rule. Turn yep. when a ten meter rule come in, it was curtains for union converts. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, and it's kind of a shame that we never got to see your theory tested. Union professionalism came in at the same time that the ten meter rule was, you know, codified, as opposed to you know being in the big five era. Yeah. So we, we never really got to see that theory tested, but certainly, like you know, we haven't really seen any top-line converts since. Are you proposing a hybrid game? <laughs> Please. Let's move on then. So, <laughs> so that was kind of the end of the union experiment, which I, I think in hindsight, like, it wasn't a bad strategy to at least get some press on the Warriors. you got to factor that in, right? So yeah. I'm always astonished that they're a rugby union country to this day, but back then even more so, like, rugby league was like, uh, afterthought for yeah. majority of the nation. So, yeah, yeah. I think it probably was um, worthwhile in the end just for mm. name recognition, just like Heinrich Fools for uh, <laughs> the Mariners. <laughs> um, also seeing out the end of his career in reserve grade was Phil Blake, who I didn't even realise he was still playing in 1997. I think he only played a couple of first grade games for the year and was in reserve grade, didn't get the fairy tale finish by any stretch. Probably one of the most beloved players just for his early 80s and 89 season, yeah. right? For, yeah. Everyone loves in the chip and chase. But yeah. quite a sad ending. But he was, to me, quite old by then, 97. 
Yeah, and his quote on it was, I'm realistic enough to know I'm not wanted and I'm not going to embarrass myself or the club by asking them about next year. I always like go back to Fatty's assessment of Phil Blake. Fatty said, he disappoints me, Phil Blake. You know, he had so much talent and we never really got to see him put it together. What do you put that down to? Just the mercurial nature of his play or? I think that's it. I think he just had that kind of mentality or that kind of mindset that he was going to drift in and out of interest and, you know, didn't have the, I guess, the necessary dedication or fortitude to do it for long periods. It's so funny that you can be remembered and be loved for like, you know, one or two amazing seasons. Yeah. 89, it was out of this world. I was so in love with Phil Blake in 89. It was the best. So one of only, I think, three, I think it's him, Mario, Terry Lamb. I could be missing one, but I think they're the only three to play every season of the Winfield Cup era. Wow. I don't want to single out Adam Hawes, who I did in our last chapter for some suboptimal journalism, but he had this (laughs) quote. (laughs) Don't bring corporate speaking to this podcast, please. (laughs) I was just trying to soften the blow because I really like Adam Hawes, uh, you know, great writer for the RLW for many years. This was his quote on Phil Blake in a 1997 profile. He has played at more clubs than the Deltones and has had more clubs than Greg Norman. Like, you don't go back to the metaphor well. Like, pick one. In the same sentence. Yeah. <laughs> the Deltones was a great call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I had in my notes. Deltones call, great. Norman, hack. <laughs> my old man had a Deltones tape when I was younger, but I mean, I never got to see him in the club. I would have loved to see him live. <laughs> Some good homegrown surf rock. The Deltones, Cole Joy, great era of Australian rock and roll. That's probably a good place to move on from Phil Blake. This is the tangent episode. Yeah. <laughs> so just to talk about another couple of members of that squad that we have mentioned already, but Stephen Kearney, I just loved Stephen Kearney. I thought he was such a good player. 1997, he was possibly the best second rower in the game. He was a superstar, the most important player in that Warriors team, and just had this mental toughness and like was a veteran, even though he would have been like mid-20s at the time, I guess. As much as we castigate them for their signings and stuff, they've had some big, big forwards over the years as well. You know, it was the start of it. Yeah, and then I guess the problem is that he didn't stay, you know, like he left after 97, which was the best career move of all time, leaves a basket case, goes to the storm, wins a comp. Yeah. But like just a real leader within that team. And just when you're reading these articles and the way he was talked about, it really surprises me that he didn't make it as a coach. I actually like thought it was going to be such a brilliant move for the Warriors. I thought it was really going to work out and... Yeah, for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. Well, when you say he didn't make it as a coach, we say it every time. If he got the Trent Robertson slot at the Roosters, he probably would have five comps. Yeah. If you go to the Warriors, you're saying, well, it's an uphill battle from day one. Yeah. You know, he had the Parramatta experience. If you get two bites, you know, that says something to me. Yeah, You get two bites and don't make it work. But anyway, I love Stephen Kearney. Um, He was their leader on the field. Their player of the year was Stacey Jones, who by 1997 had arrived and was easily like a you know top three halfback in the game. Since day one at Warriors, he was a shining light and a yeah. gun and probably one of my top five players of all time. And it probably took the public another two or three years to accept the fact that he was 
as good as he was. I think just the out of sight, out of mind thing in New Zealand, plus the kind of Australian superiority of like, you know, downgrading him because, oh yeah, I mean, he's good for a Kiwi, but. Um, <laughs> as a guy who's always trying to, you know, prop up international football amongst my friends, you know, it's, oh yeah, test matches on. Seeing him in the Kiwi squad just gives you that much confidence to, it's going to be a game. It was that yeah. good. Yeah. I liked one comparison I saw in the Super League magazine uh, where they said he had a Terry Lamb-like ability as a support player. Yeah, yeah. I really like that comparison. Yeah, Terry Lamb-like physique as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. A couple of more neck inches. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, love Stacey Jones. The last player I want to single out before we move on to the rest of the season was uh, Leona Ryan, who arrived at the Warriors that year. And struggled to, like, you know, cement his spot in first grade, leading to a couple of unfortunate nicknames, uh, one being Loch Ness, I guess, because he was viewed as a myth, and the even better one, Lee Ordinary. <laughs> I mean, so cruel. <laughs> I would hate to be a public figure, I swear oh, to God. Horrible. <laughs> but to his credit, he got it together and ended their season as a regular first grader. So, you know, he got there. Interesting career. He's so well remembered just because of that running race and the yeah. um and the name. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I would go as far to say it's hard to tell a story of rugby league without saying Lee Odenbrun. Yeah, yeah. But you know, from a personal standpoint, beating Martin Ophir was possibly the worst thing that could have happened to his career in terms of expectation. Or yeah. conversely, maybe it got him two or three deals that he wouldn't have got otherwise, but it always set him up to fail in some respects. Yeah, everyone's just going, why isn't he running 100 metres every time he gets the ball? (laughs) But the real on-field story for the Warriors was the sacking of John Money, which came midway through the year. In many ways, his cards were marked as soon as Ian Robson, their chief executive, left the club. So Robson was their key ally. Matthew Ridge uh, says that Robson, like, thought Moni was a super coach and was too loyal to him and also hints at some of the off-field disharmony. Um, I'll read this quote. Ian decides to help him out a bit, and me too. Right, he says. Us three sitting here, we're the three. We've got to look after each other. We have to know everything that's going on around here, and we've got to stick together. Ian's like a general under siege. He's contriving to stick together because there are so many people trying to pull him and John apart, and he's roping me in as a reinforcement. I'm thinking, this is weird. Why is he doing this to me? I'm sure no other captain gets dragged into boardroom politics like this. I can't imagine it happening at Manly. <laughs> if we take anything from his writing style, it's I'm thinking or he's thinking. <laughs> so I think it kind of tells you some of the trouble that the Warriors were in, that, like, he's right. Like, the captain shouldn't be getting dragged into a boardroom struggle and having his chief executive telling him, you know, we've got to look after each other. I mean... How can you succeed when you've got administration issues like that? Seriously. Yeah. So the end was probably coming pretty quickly, as it duly did. They were wooden spoon contenders for the duration of the season. And as Ian Robson's replacement as CEO said, this was Bill McGowan, he said, people have said all along it was going to take five years to build a club. Our problem has been we've been going down the table, not up. It was totally unacceptable. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you've got to progress and... They started so strong in 1995, missed the finals due to losing two points for too many replacements or whatever, Um, (laughs) but they were going backwards. So kind of a change needed to be made. 
I just don't get the administrative albatrosses on the game's neck all the time because what do they get out of it? What sort of power can you get from being on a board of a rugby league club? Is it that important? You know, like I get to make the decisions, you know? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get why they want to destroy clubs so they can keep their own power in inverted commas. It's, It's not that big a deal. I think sometimes it's just getting in a hole and panicking. And I think that really happened with the first Warriors administration with Ian Robson in particular, overspending, overcommitting to the dud signings, the, you know, bringing in Andy Platt and letting the Paul brothers go off to England, you know, it's just a bad move. But my point is like, you know, if you're not wanted there and they want to get rid of you or whatever, is it that important to like bring the club down further or can you just go do something else for a job? Yeah. But uh, in the end, he decided to look for something else and, and left the club. Bill McGowan came in as the replacement CEO. And basically, once that happened, Moni's position at the club was always tenuous. He'd lost his key support in the boardroom. The New Zealand public never really warmed to him. And as the bad results continued, the public and the media lost faith. And probably the final nail was the players falling out with him. So, McGowan confirmed this as one of the the key reasons for getting rid of him, saying that um, he'd spoken to the players and they felt frustrated with Moni's style. With a a number of, you know, things behind that, Uh, the firstly was it was viewed that he wasn't one of the boys. So someone in the press had said that they were playing Canberra the year before and Ken Cowley threw a barbecue for their teams uh, in Canberra and... The Canberra players noted that Ian Robson and John Money sat at a table with Tim Sheens the whole night and didn't talk to their players once. And, you know, the Canberra players were taken aback by it, but the Warriors guys were just like, oh, you know, that's just how it is, that they don't know how to mix with us. Well, I mean, I don't really understand, like, why should the coach be one of the boys? Um, in saying that, he, he has got some very walk-like tendencies uh, from afar, <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> And that's the thing, like, Wok wasn't one of the boys, but if you're not going to be one of the boys, you have to have some other qualities. So Wok is the ultimate example. Basically, every player who he coached said, like, he's the biggest prick I've ever met, but, oh, man, what a coach, <laughs> you know? Like, like, think about what a handicap that is to overcome. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Tim Sheens is necessarily one of the boys, but the players can see what he brings and respect him because of it. I think it was one of the boys with the Canberra teams. But, um, yeah, but like Moni, I mean, just his demeanor from my memory of him, that he seemed aloof, you know? Yeah, like he, yeah. Cockshaw would be a word. Yeah. And within the dressing room, there were a lot of angry rants at the players for underperforming, like a lot of shouting halftime speeches. And I really like this from Ridge. He was saying that they'd come into the dressing room at halftime and Moni would bail them out. Whereas Bozo's strategy would be to to come in and say, right, that's the worst half of football I've ever seen us play. Disgusting. And then give the players a mouthful for about 30 seconds, but then change tack and say, okay, this is how we fix it. And like actually give them a strategy for winning the game or coming back. Whereas Moni, Mm -hmm. it was just break them down without building them back up. And again, speaking about leadership qualities of Steve Kearney, um, Ridge says that in one game, that happened. Moni came in and dressed them down and Stephen Kearney just snapped and said, well, enough of that shit, man. That's finished. What are we going to do to fix it? And um, to take up the Ridge quote, Moni says, well, no, Steve. 
and Kearney comes in, no, we've had it. Come on, man, let's just concentrate on the positives. What are we going to do? And Ridge goes on to say, that's the thing with Moni. He can come in and tell you what you're doing wrong, but he can't tell you what to do to turn the game around and beat them. <laughs> that sounds like a horrific style of coaching. Yeah. Well, the, my favourite was uh, one game that Moni came in and Phil Blake had had a bad game and Moni says to him, Blakey, I've had it with you. You're a coward in front of the whole team. I mean, that's as walk as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> Ridge said that that kind of broke the team. Everyone felt deflated and, you know, like it was just bad vibes. But I love when he goes on to say, the whole team suddenly feels sick and deflated because they all know that Blakey's a great player. Okay, sometimes he's not the bravest in the world. Like, I, I love that. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, he was a coward, but. You know. I mean, he's got a great coaching record, Moni, right? We're yeah. in um, Parramatta competition, but the differences between those teams and the Warriors is they were the best teams in the competition with player talent and the yeah. Warriors were not. You know, yeah, had Parramatta, had Wigan. So it's a different experience. From what I see from Ridge's account, I'm like, oh, well, well, this guy, you know, can't coach. But I don't want to take his account at face value. So, you know, Ridge came out and said that he had no direction and no structure, where in reality it might have just been a different direction and structure than what Ridge wanted. Mm. It's easy to come in at halftime and go, Chariots, I want you to score four tries, not three, and then yeah. go, um, <laughs> they come in and say, um, <laughs> Phil Blake, you're a coward. <laughs> But basically, whatever the bona fides of Moni's coaching ability, the team quickly lost faith with them. He fell out with his captain, Ridge, who decided that he was going to start calling the shots on the field. And <laughs> well, would, hang know. on, hang on. So you're taking this at face value. So he's decided he's the coach now, right? Yeah. So maybe it would be a bit harsh on Moni. I think so. I think there's genuinely something there. Ridge was even asked during the year, this was a Rugby League Week article, at the start of the year, it appeared to some observers as though he thought he was almost taking over the coaching from John Money. Uh, Ridge's response was, it felt like that to me at times. And that's not being disrespectful to John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's the best. Yeah. And so basically it happened one time on field where Ridge was doing this. Stacey Jones came up to him and just said, what are we supposed to do? Moni's telling us to do one thing. You're telling us to do that. And Ridge says, I'll call the shots out on the field. See, yeah. Uh, you want to know why they didn't have the success? Yeah. Yeah. Two um, aloof cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. So as it turns out, it just wasn't going to work. So Moni was sacked. This was the most cringe. I just, again, this is from Ridge's book, uh, talking about when Moni gets fired. He doesn't make a big, long speech. He just walks in and says, I love my football and I've enjoyed my time here, but the board have seen fit to let me go. So I just want to tell you guys before anyone else tells you, I've got to go. They've made me resign and I'm resigning. Nobody says anything. There's this horrible silence. We all feel sorry for him, but we don't know what to say. It's almost like there's no support there for him. Then John says, thanks, and walks out, and that's it. It's almost like, <laughs> well, the fact that the players got him sacked, um, they weren't going to be um, too vocal or they're in support. Yeah. So Moni's out. Frank Endicott comes in. Frank Endicott, the current New Zealand national coach who was the Warriors reserve grade coach at the time and got elevated. So a strange situation. Yeah. I love this quote 
I think this says a lot about his enthusiasm when he was talking about coaching the Warriors in 1997. I got out of bed this morning and told my wife I have the best fucking job in the world. She looked at me as though I was crazy. Just look at the youngsters we have coming through. The 20-year-olds are already proving themselves. What we have to do is survive the next couple of years and the Warriors could be anything. In two or three years, we'll be the most exciting club in the competition. Love that attitude. Love that attitude. Do you know what really struck me, though, when reading that quote? I feel the Warriors had this 15- or 20-year run of being considered two or three years away from being the most (laughs) exciting team in the competition. But, like, game-wide, we've just all stopped believing. It's, like, it's quite sad. I'm at the point with the Warriors where I think their grand final appearances in those seasons and the runs they had are just being forgotten and disrespected. It's all lumped into, oh, they've never produced. It's like they've never won the big one, but they're hard to win. They've had a couple of really good periods when they should have had more. Yeah, I don't think you can call them periods is the problem. With that 2002 run, you had Stacey Jones at the peak of his powers and a feeling that they had a, a really good squad and then doesn't happen. 2011, Sean Johnson looked like, you know, he was going to be the next Stacey Jones and then some. Awesome team to watch. It falls away again. And so it's just, I think the fact that they could never sustain it, like, I think that's why no one gives them respect for those runs. Well, they've had a better um, results in Canberra over yep. that period. So, yep. um, and no one talks about them as the great waste. Yep. Have made more grand finals than... Wait, oh no, sorry, I, I tried to wipe 99 from my memory. So the same amount of grand finals <laughs> as the Dragons in NRL era. Yeah, so I mean, yes, they've got a whole country. Yes, they've got this great junior base and whatever, and they should be better. But I feel like they get a little bit disrespected for those good periods. Well, I think it all starts with this period. So 1997, wooden spoon candidates for much of the year managed to avoid it to their credit, but a bad year and their opening round lineup so round one 1997 they had 12 current or former New Zealand internationals plus Dennis Betts from Great Britain so a literal squad of internationals and I mean maybe that says something about the quality of New Zealand rugby league but it's criminal to have that and spend the whole year anchored to the bottom of the table agreed then you've got your coach calling your players cowards and you've got a fullback trying to coach. <laughs> yeah. And then on top of that is the biggest issue, which is the complete disintegration of the Warriors' administration. So it had been set up from the start with the various power blocks within the club, the fact that they weren't united in support of Super League, the fact that it was, you know, the club was put together by the clubs of the Auckland Rugby League. Like, it was just a bad fit that, you know, this is where it all started to fall apart. So money was a real issue. They were going broke by 1997. Despite turning over $10 million in their first year, they were in distinct danger of going bust. There was a change to New Zealand corporate law, which meant that they had to be registered as a limited liability company and would be deemed insolvent if they didn't get some money together. You don't want solvency brought up in a rugby league club, it's for sure. No. It's, going, <laughs> it's always going to be bad news. <laughs> Dominion Breweries were considering walking away from their 10-year sponsorship, which was tricky also because Brian Blake from DB was on the board. Within the club, there was a feeling they'd been ripped off by Super League. So, you know, they look at England that got $200 million for their um, deal 
and the Warriors were basically bought for a million dollars a season. Graham Lowe, who was in the press a lot, commenting on New Zealand Rugby League, he, you know, made the reasonable point that it was completely different. So England, that money was for rights for the entire competition. You know, New Zealand was a different situation, which is a reasonable point, but it still seems like they were bought cheap. Yeah. But whose fault is that then? Yeah. Well, I think it's that initial board, which, you know, they were all kind of moved on with Robson leaving, you know, Graham Carden at the New Zealand Rugby League had left and Robson like got a lot of the blame pinned on him for overspending. And this led to increased tension with the Super League side of things. The fact that Robson leaves the Warriors, gets a cushy job with Super League administration in Sydney there was a feeling that the Super League era had led to all this overspending and they weren't getting the support from Super League when it all went to shit. Well, it's like any organisation, you know, incompetence tends to fail upwards, right? Yeah, so yeah. Why would rugby league be any different? Yeah. And so in the midst of all this, there was a push for privatisation. So News Limited were very vocal in their belief that the clubs should be privately owned and I think there was always an idea that the News Limited ownership of the clubs was a temporary solution. And, you know, once the profits started pouring in as everyone fell in love with the sizzle, there'd be, you know, millions of buyers who would be snapping up these valuable clubs, (laughs) which isn't how it turned out. But there was a privatisation attempt for the Warriors in 1995. This was headed by Graham Lowe as, I guess, the spokesman and public face of it. Dean Lonigan, a former New Zealand player who was on the board at the Warriors, was part of that. They had a New Zealand PR guy. And the money man, which was a um, guy named Roger Bathnagar, who was an Indian-born businessman who was keen to get involved with sport. He'd been more involved with rugby union and cricket, but this was a chance for him. And he brought the capital. What a wonderful opportunity for the man to come yeah. in and uh, incinerate <laughs> cash. But... I love this quote from Graham Lowe. I think this is so illustrative of the whole thing, talking about Roger Bathnagar being involved. With his support, we're in place now. There aren't too many people in the world who can say, we'll have $4 million ready within four weeks. (laughs) If you're my money man, man I want you to to find $4 million under your couch cushion. I think it was a different situation because at the time he did have substantially more money than four million. But the way the rugby league community collectively like fell over themselves to get Nathan <laughs> Tinkler involved in the game. <laughs> but so Graham Lowe wasn't universally loved within the New Zealand rugby league scene. There was a, a feeling that he was too outspoken, he'd interfere with things. He, you know, had an outsized belief in his own importance to New Zealand Rugby League. Well, the guy's a knight now, so who has the last laugh? Yeah. <laughs> the Warriors in particular thought that he was too closely linked to News Limited, both having a weekly column in Super League magazine, being one of the main commentators on Warriors games. And with that Super League column, like quite a few times over the course of the year, he uses that column to push the barrow of privatization and his involvement in it. So I think you can really see like there's something to that push from News Limited 
to you know give him some space and and try to sell the case. Think about how much the game has improved when like columns went out of fashion. With yeah, the internet. Yeah, it's been so much better. Yeah, but I, I mean, this Super League magazine like took it to another level. You know, between like Graham Lowe's agenda pushing, the Debbie Spillane <laughs> PR blitz. I think the best of them by far was Peter Jackson's column, which we've referenced before. We will reference it again. Like that was like that was pure. That was a brilliant column. But um, Jacko for me is on the Mount Rushmore of natural talents. Him, yeah. and Fatty, and Ridgie. Yep, pure authentic charisma. Yeah, absolutely. As it turns out, Lowe's efforts in Super League magazine were for nothing because the Auckland block voted overwhelmingly to reject the privatisation proposal. So uh, Selwyn Bennett, who was the boss of the Auckland Rugby League, said, the sale argument is now out of the mix. We're going to sit back and see if the Warriors management can deliver. Uh, (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, out of three magic beans in a rugby league club, three magic beans is better because you're not going to get like further losses. I like that analogy. And that leads me to what happened to, you know, the Warriors over the next few years. So Graham Lowe eventually got his way because a year later, the Warriors were sold. They did go private and the owners were a consortium called the Rugby League People. So Graham Lowe was a minority owner in that and a board member, but it was Basically, the Tainui tribe, who were Auckland-based Maori community, who had received a settlement. I didn't go too far into the history, but it all went back to the Treaty of Waitangi in the 1800s. But anyway, at this point in time, they got some money, which they were using to invest in businesses. And it was just really sad reading the Wikipedia entry for the tribe and what happened with their money. Sad for them, but even sadder for rugby league's place in society. This quote, at first, many of the investments made were poor, such as a fisheries deal, the purchase of the Auckland Warriors rugby league team and a hotel in Singapore, which all failed. (laughs) Who the hell was their advisor saying buy the Auckland Warriors? (laughs) But that tells you basically how it went down. So by 2000, it was all turning bad. So Graham Lowe was forced off the board. He lost his investment in the organisation. The Tainui Management Company went into liquidation, which meant that new owners were required. And this is where Eric Watson stepped in. So he was given some help by the NRL, who kind of softened the blow, like all the Warriors contracts were voided and a new entity was created. And so that is why the Auckland Warriors then became a new organisation called the New Zealand Warriors. Oh, right. Is that what? Yeah. Um, that was a period of relative stability with Watson because he had a billion dollars, right? So you can, yeah. you can have it as a hobby then. Like yeah. Rusty, you don't mind if you lose money. It's um, a labor of love. Yeah. And he had a long run of that being true. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't stay true. So he was severely embattled financially, uh, went bankrupt, had to sell the club in 2019. The next year spent four months in an English jail for contempt. And as we speak now, he's got some insider trading charges against him in the US. And if not quite on the run, he won't be entering the US anytime soon and is believed to be living in Ibiza. Wow. It went from Graham Carden to... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It's been a a rough run. But uh, just to finish this chapter, 
when the New Zealand Warriors were created, they were created as a new entity, which meant that all player contracts were voided and the players on the books at the Warriors had to renegotiate their deals. And one of the key figures assisting in this was one Matthew Ridge, who was added to the new Warriors board and was deeply involved in contract negotiations. The amount we talk about them, we should do a bit more research on what makes up a rugby league board, but having a a maverick with no regard for rules, I don't know if that's the right idea. Well, (laughs) I think he was the right man for the job in ways that may be surprising. So in Will Evans' great book, which is The History of the Warriors, uh, he wrote this of Ridge's negotiations. Eric Watson, Mick Watson, Ridge and Daniel Anderson scrambled to sign Warriors players, most of whom were in England for the World Cup, to new contracts. Ridge's involvement and hardline approach to negotiations rankled with the Warriors players, given his point-blank refusal to consider a pay cut when he was their teammate. (laughs) To me, that is such a brilliant culmination of the Matthew Ridge Super League arc. (laughs) You know, arriving at the Warriors as this ultimate shit-stirrer, standing up to board members, you know, refusing to take pay cuts or compromise in any way, retiring, immediately being added to the board and going out of his way to, like, undercut the player's contract. You know, for a fact, he wouldn't even consider that to be any sort of hypocrisy. Be like, no. Yeah. I mean, they're thinking I'm doing something wrong, but I'm, I'm trying to help them. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that is where it ends for Matthew Ridge at the Warriors, and that is where it ends for this episode. So this is part one of what is going to be a very juicy chapter. I'm I'm really excited for some of the storylines we have coming up over the next few episodes, which will culminate eventually in the Broncos holding aloft the Telstra Cup. So we've got a lot to look forward to over the next few weeks. Um, But thank you all for listening and uh, let us know your thoughts. Matthew Ridge, Hall of Famer for a start. We can settle that one, hopefully. The stories in that were amazing. Like Rugby League, the greatest soap opera on earth, bar none. I know. I think next week's soap opera will be even better. So um, you can look forward to that and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo. It was Thursday, the 27th of March, 1997, and Mark Guyer's Perth Reds took on the Rams at Adelaide Oval. Guyer was playing his best football in five years and was on the verge of a return to representative football via the New South Wales Tri-Series squad. It was a return that would never be realised as an eye-gouging incident against Adelaide's Chris Quinn threatened to end his career. In a troubled year for the Reds, Guy would not be the only bad boy to cause problems in the West. This is part two of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, awesome. Top of the morning to you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, part two of our 1997 Super League season recap. In part one, we discussed the rapidly unravelling situation at the Auckland Warriors. So we're going to focus on a much more stable entity in the Perth Reds. Great feedback on last episode. Um, very interesting stuff. Gives you an insight on how hard it is to run a rugby league club. Yeah, totally. And I think having the Cowboys and the Warriors 
both together in that episode kind of shows you like how important it is to get things right from the outset, to have a stable administration. I just struck home that they're always chasing their tail regarding money or fixing a, the last regime's problems. Like until you get on the front foot, you've got no chance to success. Exactly. And so today we're going to be talking about a club that was on the back foot from the very start. In a later episode in the season, we'll discuss their ultimate demise. So that's not going to be the focus of this episode, because when you look at the on-field happenings and, you know, off-field stuff in terms of the playing personnel, there was just that much going on at the Perth Reds in 1997. So they started the season in a bit of flux. So uh, Brad Mellon had been sacked as CEO. He just missed out on being the first CEO sacked for season 1997. Uh, Ian Robson beating him at the Warriors by a week or so. So that's a bit troubling in itself for Super League that two of their 10 CEOs had been sacked before a ball was kicked. (laughs) Usually it's the pool to see which coach gets sacked first, not the CEOs. Yeah, so very concerning that you can't make it out of February (laughs) without a, a full set of CEOs still. Shocker. They also had a new coach with Peter Mulholland making way for Dean Lance. And there was, you know, various other destabilizing forces throughout the year. So for a start, there was their home ground, the WACA, which wasn't an ideal place to be playing rugby league. It's barely ideal for cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One interesting thing on that was talk of them relocating to Burswood Dome, which was an indoor arena where the Perth Wildcats played. They thought they could reconfigure it for rugby league. Can you imagine how much of a hard-on John Rebo would have had for that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's get some AstroTurf. I don't think it progressed very far, but it's a bit of a sliding doors moment if it had got up. And we had an AstroTurf stadium in the 90s. Like, Would it have just been a disaster or would we have seen a trend starting to emerge? It's one thing to wear douchebag gloves on the field, but to play indoors on AstroTurf, that's not yeah. rugby league. <laughs> uh, but that didn't happen. A, a lot of talk about relocating to Melbourne for 1998. So all throughout the year, there were just all these things going on that would have made it hard if they had a settled, stable squad, uh, which they very much didn't have. So it was a bit of a nothing season for the Reds. They finished one game off the wooden spoon. Appalling crowds no money. That's a story for another day, but just not a good year all round. So they started well, six wins from the opening 12 fixtures before uh, going on a slump on the World Club Challenge Tour of England. So using the World Club Challenge to play yourself out of form is a (laughs) fairly impressive feat. Absolutely. (laughs) Do you think it's the amount of travel, you know, just because they were traveling all the time in the regular season, plus another England trip now? Oh, yeah. It must have just weighed on them, surely. Yeah, that would have to be a factor, you'd think. But the story of the Reds in 1997 really comes down to a triumvirate of bad boys uh, and or reformed bad boys that they had on the books. So uh, this was Scott Wilson, Mark Geyer, and Julian O'Neill. And at the outset, what I really liked about reading all the research from this year is the fact that at various points, each of them were providing advice to one of the others. (laughs) So uh, Mark Guy to Julian O'Neill said, you have to stop blaming people for your mistakes. I know what he's going through because I kept blaming other people for what was going wrong for me. As we will hear a bit later, I don't think he was done with blaming other people for his (laughs) mistakes. (laughs) 
all three of those guys are just such natural footballers, and they just scream rugby league, and I, I love them all as players. Yeah. It's a shame that um, it was only really MG that sort of turned it around. Well, I, I mean, I think Scott Wilson definitely did, and we'll get into him on field shortly, but I really liked this uh, statement he had. This was advice that he gave to Julian O'Neill. I've been through a bit, and Julian asked me last week what he should do. I told him just stick to footy. He's a great player. I can understand the situation he's in. Sometimes if you have a reputation, you get found guilty by association. Unfortunately, your past follows you. Reputations don't worry me anymore. I gave up worrying about it a few years ago. And what really struck me about that statement was the idea of reputation. And I think for each of them, that manifests itself in different ways. So Wilson, he, by this stage in 1997, made peace with his past and his reputation. You know, he made peace with the fact that he couldn't live down his reputation. Mark Geyer, on the other hand, many of his troubles had come from trying to live up to his reputation, which he was just starting to realize that this was causing problems for him. Julian O'Neill, meanwhile, had so little regard for his reputation that I'm unsure if he was even aware of the concept. But so let's turn to Scott Wilson first. So he had quite a long rap sheet. So he'd been sacked from South Sydney and North Sydney for failing drug tests. He joined Canterbury and that was probably, in terms of on field, he was looking like a superstar. Won their player of the year in 1993, really went on with it in 1994. But then... Oh, when we did our 1994 season recap, I was going back and watching a lot of Canterbury highlights, and Scott Wilson was just outstanding. Like, he was a super player. Just how I perceive him is just innate class. Absolutely. But then, unfortunately, he kind of fell out with Bulldogs management, ended up in court with them, then headed over to Salford, and it was just a bad situation. So Gary Jack was the coach there. He got sacked, and it wasn't the right time or place for him to arrive. So. He came back to uh, the Gold Coast briefly, spent the first half of 1996 with the Coogee Wombats, just playing park footy. And by his admission, I was a pissant last year. I got hammered every week. You know the Wombats training regime. I don't get that. Does it mean they were training really hard? No, I think the training regime was, you know, forearm workouts at the pub. Oh, right. Yeah. I thought pissant meant small. Well, I, I think it kind of does. I think he's misusing the phrase. So, so maybe we can bring that in. <laughs> a piss ant in reference to alcohol. <laughs> My favorite term is piss wreck, which I've been called a few times. But, um, <laughs> the uh, piss ant, that's a new one. <laughs> so he was sounded out by Steve Rogers, who was there uh, in administration at the Reds, to come over. And he kind of like made his peace. and by 1997, was in really good form and seemed settled off the field. But by 1997, as I said, playing really great football, combining really well with Matthew Rodwell, they made a great halves combination. Peter Jackson, his old teammate at North in the Super League magazine, said that he thought he'd been one of the best five players in the Super League competition. He was rewarded by making his New South Wales debut in the Tri-Series tournament. So he got it together, like he made the most of, you know, the last chance. And, you know, unfortunately, circumstances prevailed and he was on the lookout for a new club in 1998. So he goes up to the Cowboys, but couldn't nail down a spot, then was released back to the Bulldogs, only played a couple of games from them, you know, had injury problems, couldn't really get going. So he was 
part of a mini clean out at the end of the year. So it was just unfortunate that just at the, the point that he hit his career best form, it fell apart in Perth. He had some injury problems. Clubs were already kind of like looking to slash the books as the salary cap was coming in. And suddenly Scott Wilson is kind of cast aside. There's certain players that have that feeling about them that it's just going to go wrong somehow, you know? Yeah. James Roberts was the one. It's like, how long is it going to last this honeymoon period, you know? And Scott Wilson was one of those guys. It was just one thing after another. Yeah. Derailing him. But he'll always have those, you know, a couple of great years at the Dogs and a really good, you know, finish and getting that recognition via, you know, New South Wales in Super League. So uh, yeah. it's kind of a happy ending for the Scott Wilson story. Well, he's been in the news again in recent years, you know, different misdemeanors. So he yeah. really got it together off the field, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. It's one of those stories that you like to see. So it's a shame when it doesn't all work out. Uh, and one player for whom it definitely didn't all work out was Julian O'Neill. So I feel like every bad boy gets a story like this when he starts at a new club. So I'm just going to read this piece from the Super League magazine at the start of 1997. The former Bronco always felt right at home on the field, but perhaps the key to his form might well be determined by just how comfortable he feels off the paddock. That, along with his enthusiasm for the Super League concept, has O'Neill itching for the coming season. Which, it's all well and good to write pieces like that, but by January 1997, he'd already shown through several incidents that he wasn't willing to make it a fresh start and get the most out of the chance he'd been given. Yeah. So it started well. So again, Steve Rogers was the one who brought him to Perth and Julian O'Neill was living with him for you know the first month or two. And Steve Rogers said that he was just a great bloke. He got on well with the family. He, there wasn't any problem. But you know the trouble started once he was left the Rogers house and was left up to his own devices. See, like to me, looking at him from the outside, a just instills so much confidence when he's in your team. It's just amazing um, class as a fullback. But if you look at his background, like we're going to do, you know, tragedy in his life from day dot. I think he's one of those guys that like means well, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let's get to it now. Like trouble and tragedy has just kind of followed him his whole life, starting with his mother dying in a car crash when he was five, and his dad dying from a heart attack like less than a year later. So suddenly he's six-year-old orphaned. He goes to live with an uncle and auntie, then shipped off to boarding school. And I mean, you can't excuse everything that happened throughout his life and career as a result of this, but it's easy to see how this is going to have a destabilizing effect on someone. Well, I've got real sympathies for him, and I feel like a real prick because of our um, Grub 17 episode with misanthropic Australian comedian Luke Heggie. We're laughing and laughing at how funny his grub antics were, and they are genuinely hilarious, but there's a reason for him, like, you know, so I've got real sympathies for him. Yeah. I don't want to go into it, but just with the tragedy of his daughter as well, yeah. you know, in the latter part of his career, it was just something he, it just followed him, and it's just, it's just really tragic. You understand why a bloke wants to get blind, don't you? So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and I've known guys that, you know, just maybe didn't have a father in their lives. And you can just see the impact that makes on a personality. So mm. it's ultimately, it's your responsibility to overcome those challenges. But it's easy to understand when people aren't able to. Yeah. And in saying that, all that agreed 100% that Jesus Christ, what a rap sheet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So his grandparents came over to Perth with him 
to try to be that stabilizing influence in his life. And it was talked about in the press as this, you know, great thing that he had them with him and they were going to keep him in line and he'd have some kind of family and some kind of grounding in his life. But, you know, basically from the moment he got to Perth, it was trouble, you know, missing training sessions or turning up drunk getting banned from various establishments in Perth, a drink driving charge in late 1996. I can really relate to the binge drinking problems, right? He's just one of those guys that booze and him don't mix. And, yeah. You know, but he needed it for some reason to you know, dull the pain or whatever. So whenever he started the booze, problems followed. And it's yeah. just like a scientific reaction. It was going to happen. Yeah, totally. And that's what duly happened. So... He was dropped for disciplinary reasons early in 1997. The club put down rules about his behavior. Later in the month, he got stopped. He was a passenger this time with someone who was charged with drink driving. So although he wasn't at fault, it's again just another incident that he's in the headlines because of. What does it strike you as amazing that he'd be hanging out with scallywags? Yeah. And then in maybe the ultimate example of if you can play, you will play, (laughs) he was still really good on field so much that he was making the Queensland Tri-Series team. He made his Australian debut with the Super League test. But during that tour camp, he was getting up to shenanigans. Nothing too serious, but he was calling up the, you know, hotel reception and putting like food and drink on the bill of the team manager So it's not like the worst crime, but it's just like (laughs) you've had all these chances. You're in the Australian team, and this is how you carry on. But do you think that's a prank, like, oh, he'll find this funny, or I'm going to get away with it and get a free piss? (laughs) It's hard to say. I'm sure it was late in the night, and he probably didn't think too hard about it, but that happened. And then shortly after, he was with the Reds in Canberra, and they were all back at the hotel. He decided to kick on to the casino made his way back to his hotel room about 3 a.m. and then started calling up all his teammates on the phone to try to get some money or to give them their credit cards and PIN numbers. And so he's just as loose as they come, right, on the yeah. pins, but I tell you, I've never heard of a bloke more diametrically opposed to casinos than him. I mean, yeah, yeah. just awful. Yeah. It's rugby league, actually. Like, rugby league and casinos just don't go together. <laughs> Well, you can say that, but I think half the evidence for that comes directly from Julian O'Neill. So. <laughs> but so that incident, all right, maybe it wasn't a sackable offense in its own right, but it was the last straw for the Reds. It was just little incident after little incident. So the club insider said, I don't think it was one big incident, more a series of smaller incidents that have got him offside again. And that was it, a $2 million contract torn up. And it was kind of telegraphed from the start. So friend of the show, Murray Croft, actually said that uh, he heard Peter Mulholland speak at, um, you know, some function a few years ago. And Mulholland talked about the importance of like building the right culture at the club and how he wanted to get all the right pieces in place. And then kind of, you know, it wasn't his decision. Next thing he knows, Julian O'Neill comes into the team and it's kind of, you know, undoing all the work he'd done. Well, that's the thing. You got a guy like him, universally known as the best bloke in rugby league over 100 years perfect piece to build that culture but he comes in in the middle of a civil war when you get scraps thrown yep. for your roster so yeah can't be helped yeah and so that was it for julian o'neill in perth 
it came time to search for a new club. And basically, there was no interest from any other Super League clubs. He'd already been sacked by the London Broncos, so it wasn't likely that he was going <laughs> to head over to England. There's only one place for a guy like O'Neill at that time of his life, and that's the south of France. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, without an English or a Super League option, his management turned to the ARL. And again, his form was still good, so there was going to be interest. Gold Coast was a predictable candidate, but they ruled him out, you know, unless he was going to be bought for very cheap. Think about being in the position of a club to go, right, we're so desperate for talent. We know this guy's going to just cause ultimate problems. But, yeah, we're keen. When you talk about desperation, the actions from South Sydney in getting Julian O'Neill are are just ludicrous that they actually went through with it, that they couldn't see the trouble they were getting themselves into. And that came before he'd even signed with the club with his manager, Greg Keenan, in talks with South and uh, various other clubs at the ARL before it came out that Julian O'Neill had actually signed a management agreement with another agency and Keenan wasn't you know, legally able to represent him. I just love this from Julian O'Neill. So the agency firm Karras and Karen Donis, which were pretty big players at that time, they came forward and said, we actually, you know, he's on our books and Greg Keenan has no, uh, you know, right to be managing on his behalf and produced a letter that Julian O'Neill had written to them saying, I would like to reassure you of our arrangement and my integrity towards building a mutually beneficial partnership as my agent. So fairly cut and dried there. Yeah. Uh, but however it worked out, they managed to work out a deal. Greg Keenan went on to represent him in, uh, firstly, Souths. So Souths put in an offer, but he didn't sign it quickly enough. I think he was trying to see what else he could get. So they withdrew it. At that point, Manly entered the equation. So there was a lot of talk about O'Neill going to Manly. This got one Ken Arthurson quite upset. So he was out in the press saying, I don't believe in buying other people's problems. I also think signing O'Neill wouldn't have done much for Manly's credibility. The public perception is that Manly signed all the big-name players and the club's critics would have had a field day. And do they need him anyway? Craig Hancock is doing a great job. All due respect to Craig Hancock, who's a step-up in class <laughs> with Dylan O'Neill, but yeah. I think he's right. Why yeah. would they want to buy other people's problems? Oh, I think that is something that clubs should keep in mind more often buying other people's problems and the problems you cause for yourself in doing that. Uh, But one thing Arthurson made very clear was that he was not the one that stopped Manly from signing O'Neill. So he said, I would have been bitterly disappointed had Manly signed O'Neill, but I had nothing to do with it. The Manly board didn't consult me. They did what they believed was in the best interest of the game. I'm sure that's very true that Arthurson wasn't consulted, but do you think there was a single person on the northern beaches not aware of Arthurson's <laughs> opinion of the matter? Well, if we know anything from Rebelly's history, is that Manly ever just an airtight boardroom yeah. with no <laughs> external commentary? Uh, but regardless, whether it was Arthurson's influence or not, Manly pulled out. And so it was back to South. So at first, they weren't overly keen on signing him, mainly because of his statements. So he said in the press that he didn't want to join the team because the team wasn't of a high enough caliber, which (laughs) to me, that's enough right there. If I'm South, I'm saying, okay, well, he's not going to have the right attitude in coming to our club. 
So presumably he did that to exclude himself from that team, and then that was his last option in the end. Yeah, exactly. And then he originally then tried to sign a deal just for 1997, and the one smart thing that South did in this whole situation was to say no to that. Uh, Frank Cookson, their football manager, said, we didn't just want to sign him for this year. We didn't want to ease the pain in his pocket this season so we could go somewhere else next year. We're trying to build a club. So where do you stand on that signing by South? I mean, they were in dire straits. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we can't forget that. They were just a mess of a club with basically no-name players. You can't blame them too much. And and Frank Cookson had you know taken over from Alan Jones as football manager, so doesn't have the same pulling power, not that... Jones's pulling power brought anything of note. So I'm not going to crucify them for signing them. It's the way they went about it in every respect that shows their incompetence. Well, there's two things in rugby league I love about the culture of rugby league. People, rugby league men is, um, you know, everybody's ideas will get heard. If you're an ex-player, you can come out with any sort of idea 20 years after you've left the game and it'll be heard publicly. And then secondly, they will never give up on a redemption arc. Yeah. You can do whatever you, you want in the game, torch 10 clubs, mate, you know, we can save this kid. And they always believe it, you know, it's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a kind of, you know, naive sweetness to it. It's just a shame how often they get burnt by it. It's not the most productive uh, strategy, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so not the most encouraging words from O'Neill and his management after the deal with South was announced. So Greg Keenan came out and said that he'd accepted the deal because he didn't want to go to England. And then O'Neill said when he arrived that I only knew the names of about four players, but I was very impressed with their enthusiasm and commitment. <laughs> Condescending is that. I mean, I find it hard to believe that you play in a professional rugby league competition and you don't know the names at least of the first Yeah, group, yeah. So. <laughs> so that's alarm bells from the moment the deal was announced. As soon as he arrived, there were, again, instant indiscretion. So he was turning up to games with, you know, an entourage of young ladies. There was one incident where one of them decided to, you know, relieve herself outside Redfern Oval overlooking the the Leagues Club. So apparently the event was witnessed by about 500 people. Early on in the piece, there was another casino incident at, you know, the Star City Casino. South decided to not take any action about that because their investigations revealed the matter was not serious. Also not a good look. Yeah, like which is fine. But when you're dealing with Julian O'Neill, any incident at a casino becomes a serious problem. And then it got worse soon after with Julian O'Neill missing training. Uh, he blamed it on feeling sick and then ended up getting a doctor's note, but that didn't put everyone at ease. So Daryl Trindle came out and in the press and said that, the players were really angry at O'Neill and it wasn't the first incident and something needed to be done. What's funnier than Tricky coming out and saying, pull your head in? Yeah, yeah. But then the club actually castigated Daryl Trindle and said that he shouldn't have been out in the press talking about O'Neill. So it was Tricky that was getting in trouble for it, which I think is another sign that the culture was probably the worst situation for O'Neill to end up in. I don't think Frank Cookson was the ideal guy to be overseeing the whole operation. So when they were talking about signing him and were asked about his disciplinary problems, Frank Cookson said, we've got a few rough diamonds here ourselves. That doesn't worry me at all. 
The only thing that concerns me about the whole situation is the attitude of the players towards him. That club hasn't seen a diamond polisher in <laughs> 25 years to that point. But Yeah. Ken Shine kind of affirmed Cookson's statement saying, Julian says he's a saint compared to some of the players here. <laughs> oh, that makes it all right, then. Yeah. So do you think we've gone through the reasons for our sympathy, but there seems to be a bit of like either willful blindness or pure arrogance to his behavior? You can put it down to he's just bad on the drink, but... Yeah, but, no, but the attitude... Of like well, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's enough incidents sober and enough, like, evidence that he just had no regard for his career, and there didn't seem to be even an attempt to make the most of every chance he got. I mean, there's a chance that it's self-sabotage for some mental health issue, you know, mm. that's possible. It seems that way, to be quite frank, but... Yeah. Unless he's just that dumb or something. Yeah. Act like that. And... I don't know if a stable culture would have helped him. It didn't help him at the Broncos, but an unstable culture or a, a culture that was just willing to have him out on his own and see what comes of it, that was definitely not going to be ideal. So South refused to impose a no drinking clause in his contract. Frank Cookson came out and said that all I can say is we aren't our brother's keeper. Bringing the bra boys into it is a yeah. big <laughs> Well, I guess it is South's. But this is the ultimate example of wishful thinking of South just hoping it would work out. Cookson said, if Julian wants to have a drink, then that's fine. But I think he now knows when to call it quits. <laughs> and then he went on to talk about his abilities and then asked a rhetorical question. I just wonder how good a player he could be if he cut out smoking and just drank in moderation. <laughs> think about that. There was like... A good percentage of players in that era are still like smoking 20 a day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's crazy in itself. But just the football manager going, oh, I wonder how good he could be if he cut out smoking and just drank in moderation. Like, uh, that's fine if you're two blokes at a pub talking about Julian O'Neill. But when you're the football manager of his club, <laughs> it's not good enough to just wonder how good he'd be. It's... <laughs> But we've just been talking about it. You can lead a horse to water. Like He's been led to a, a number of streams, this guy. Yeah. I think just even that, Cookson didn't get it, like saying if only he just drank in moderation. Like By this point, it was clear that moderation wasn't an option. Just alcohol had to go if he was going to make it as a player. I wonder what would have happened if they had the mental health um, focus that we have in modern times, you know, sent into a shrink instead of... Um having a meeting with the football manager and saying, you know, just have two or three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you say that, but we, like we still see so much wasted talent, even with all the efforts we've made in that regard. So it's just really sad. Like reading this story, it just bums me out, you know? I mean, how good a player is he that with all these problems for his career, he's still remembered as a really good player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so on O'Neill, last what I'll say about him was an article that said, O'Neill's position now is more cut and dry than that of any other player in football. One slip up in his history as far as rugby league is concerned. It's just so crazy that that didn't end up being true. Yeah. But yeah, so, uh, you know, a comical but still sad end to his South career. Ended up finishing his Australian career, like, you know, fairly scandal-free at the Cowboys. You know, suffered some more personal tragedy, headed over to England you know, Danny the Dolphin, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think much has gone right for him since. It's just sad, basically. I mean, the Danny the Dolphin goes down as the ultimate rugby league incident. Yeah. 
a story that has a happier ending, and it's one we've talked about before, is Mark Geyer. The last time we talked about Mark Geyer was him kind of arriving at the Reds. Now we're going to pick up the story and follow his career and his, you know, frankly, hilarious judiciary appearances over the course of his career. Can I just say how much I love him as a pundit? Yeah. You know, like his career to me is basically a two or three year career and the rest of it waste. It's like, I don't really remember much of it, but what he's become now to where he could have gone, mm. is such a wonderful story. To me, he's like the Australian Charles Barkley. He says exactly what's on his mind, unpretentious. You know, both of those guys aren't geniuses, but you know they're very entertaining and yeah. honest. You know, and I think with Gaia, it was just about you know emotional maturity and finding balance in his life. You know, once he sorted that out, he was going to be fine. But even in 1997, that wasn't looking like a sure thing. So he had a troubled 1996 with the Reds, getting a six-week suspension for bringing the game into disrepute. So 1997 started and we had the typical stories about him now ready to be a leader and he was going to lead from the front and he found that maturity and, you know, this was going to be a great year for him. On field, that was starting to be played out. So in early April 1997, Super League magazine through Peter Jackson reported that, uh, in Jackson's word, his form this year has been class personified. Mark's life has been well documented, but the responsibility of the captaincy plus the family seems to have settled the big bloke down to the stage where he's even giving Julian O'Neill advice about life in the spotlight. <laughs> I take MG's advice over Julian. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately for Jackson and unfortunately for Mark Geyer, by the time that story was published, the incident against Adelaide where he was charged with eye gouging Chris Quinn had already taken place. So basically in that Adelaide game, Chris Quinn was tackled by Dale Fritz. Guy came in over the top, and in Chris Quinn's words, he felt a raking and pushing action on his left eye. Uh, and Chris Quinn said, the fingers didn't go into my eye because I closed my eye, but there was an attempt. Why is he worrying about it? You either eye gouged or you're not, you know what I mean? Well, this is the funny thing. So basically, the Quinn's sighting was supported by the Adelaide Club doctor who said that there was a skin abrasion near his eye. Video footage showed Gaia with his arm in the direction of Quinn's face, but nothing, you know, conclusive there. But just on eye gouging in general, this is uh, Super League judiciary figure Ian Callanan's definition of what constitutes an eye gouge in a rugby league context. He said it was an attempt to scoop out the eye with some force. Think about that. Like, based on that definition, how is an eye gouge not an automatic life ban? Yeah, I mean, um, you want to blind a bloke. Yeah. So after the Geyer incident, Les Boyd came out to, you know, give his summation of eye gouging. Finally a cool head. <laughs> he said, gouging is a stupid, crazy act. You realise later how stupid you were. But occasionally, <laughs> but occasionally you think back to when it was done to you. I remember when we had to play a test match on the Saturday and we were playing Canterbury the previous Sunday. A Canterbury player nearly ripped my eye out of my head. I later got a year and a half suspension for an incident in a game against Canterbury, and that was for an eye gouge on Billy Johnston. Just the way they explain away their psychopathic action. Yeah. I mean, how would you feel you're playing a game, right? A ball game, right? Presumably for entertainment and fun, uh, and then money professionally. And then you want to blind a guy for the rest of his life to gain some sort of... uh, reputation or advantage on the field it's insane Uh, what's insane to me i can get les boyd giving his defense 
I don't get how any journalist can read a statement like that and still go on with what a great gentleman he is off the field and, you know, you wouldn't meet a nicer bloke. Like, I don't care if he's the greatest bloke in the world. Like, (laughs) On the field, he's uh, Adolf Hitler. But um, looking at all this, the research you've compiled and my memories of the time, as psycho as Guy was with his, you know, aggression and trying to smash guys, I don't believe he's got it in him to try and remove a person's eye. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's definitely true. I, not for one second do I think that he was trying to scoop out Chris Quinn's eyeball. But whether what he did was enough to warrant the suspension that he ultimately got, I can't say. I, for me, like the attempt to scoop out doesn't even have to be confirmed. Like your hands shouldn't be anywhere near that area. I can see it being reckless and yeah. um, indifferent to damage or something like that. But I mean. Um... There's no way I can picture him going, I want to take this. Chris Quinn for all people. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take Chris Quinn's eye out. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So basically, on top of the eye gouge charge, he was cited for a high tackle as well. So he went to the judiciary facing up to 12 weeks, which Reds chairman Stephen Edwards said, I had the misfortune to be sitting next to Mark as I added up all the points and worked out what sort of suspension he would be facing. So this was bad news for Gaia not just because of the time he'd lose on the field. He was facing a big financial hit because with his lengthy history, it'd been worked into his contract that he could lose $130,000 if suspended for 12 weeks. But I mean, the ramifications of losing over a hundred grand for a non-field incident, we're going to talk a bit about you know the fairness or legality of that. But beyond the financial hit, this very much put Guy's career in balance. So Gaia said, I'm 29 at the end of the year, and what club is going to want a player who gets suspended all the time? South. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought at this point it would be worthwhile just having a look at Gaia's history with the judiciary. We all remember the big one, the Paul Hoff one, which was violent and insane, trying to take the guy's head off. Without that incident, do you reckon his reputation would have been anywhere near as bad? That's the big one. But part of that comes from his carry-on in the aftermath. And the we'll get into it. But I think by the time of the Paul Hoff incident, he'd already started to develop a reputation. This just solidified it. And then basically, with everything that happened in the years after, the Hoff tackle was like an exclamation mark, but it wasn't that on its own. Right. So by his own estimation, I'm no angel when it comes to judiciary hearings. <laughs> The similarities between criminals and rugby league players, like the phrasing, I'm no angel, yeah. dogs, <laughs> cats, you know, they're exactly the same. So by 1991, by the time of that Origin series, he'd already been suspended twice. He'd been convicted of assault. And then at the end of the 1991 season, you know, suspended for using marijuana. So his career total of suspensions ended up being 34 weeks. So it was by no means a one-off. But I think he made a lot of this trouble with his statements in the press after these things. So, you know, after the Origin game, he was on the panel of, a, you know, a Sunday footy show, the Channel 7 one, and Wally Lewis was on the panel. Guy was being interviewed, you know, remotely, and all the hosts asked questions except for Wally Lewis, who kept silent. And as they were saying goodbye to Guy, he said, I'd just like to ask one thing. How come you didn't ask me a question, Wally? <laughs> Queensland coach Graham Lowe had called him a lunatic on the field. 
to which Guy responded, I've got no time for that, man. He's supposed to be a cool, calm and collected coach. And yet here he is going around calling people lunatics. I was just overexcited. (laughs) There was a bit of aggression, but no dirtiness or thuggery. I was just over keen. I mean, you said it before about the emotional maturity, the forgiving your own behavior and condemning others is a major sign of that. Yeah. I really relate to him. Like, I grew up with loads of guys like him. Yeah. He's from poor Penrith area, whatever he's from, and Toronto, where I'm from, it's quite a similar sort of vibe. And until we get to about 28, we sort of behave like that. And you can sort of see it in his statements and this, like, reflective statements of he was told that, you know, he was a thug or he was whatever. And so he thought, okay, well, I'll be that then. And that was how he spent the early part of his career and not just on field. Like, you know, he'd walk into a pub and he'd be looking around to see like who could take him and, you know, just carrying this mentality around with him at all times. Cutting off your nose despite your face is a real rugby league Mm. ingrained mentality, right? Yeah. There's almost insecurity to it from these sort of areas where reputation means so much to people. It's like, you know, is he going to think I'm I'm a dog if I don't fight? You know, it's like... when you're 30, you realize how embarrassing it is. Yeah. And so even when he made his way back after, you know, the lost years at Balmain at Umina, gets to Perth and, you know, gets four weeks for an incident in, in 1995, he was told by the judiciary that they were giving him the benefit of a very large doubt in not suspending him for longer. 1996 was carrying on on the sideline, kicking chairs over, throws a water bottle on the field in the direction of the referee. <laughs> Gets suspended for six weeks for that. Um, and, you know, he was doing a, you know, like video link from Perth. Didn't realize he was on the screen. Gives the finger to the judiciary in Sydney. You can't excuse that, right? Like, I mean. No. And so he was called back to the judiciary by the chairman of the panel and, you know, was given a severe dressing down and then just started crying and said, you've just taken away six weeks of my life and probably another 35000 in match payments. What do you think? I've got a baby on the way. Have a bit of compassion. <laughs> I mean, the guy obviously had um, temper and emotional yeah. mental issues, and we go back to our tragic Ben Alexander episode, right? Compounded it all. But um, I'm sure when he looks back now as a well-adjusted adult, he's thinking, oh, no. Yeah. It was just a complete lack of emotional control and you know that kind of carried with him but it was the victim mentality that really stands out for me so after every incident so he was suspended in 1990 and said i just get victimized because of who i am they call me out as soon as anything happens after the origin incident the hierarchy of the game were the first ones to congratulate me and shake my hand after the match but next minute they turn around and cite me i'm amazed that's just total hypocrisy for the Paul Hoff hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did he want? Just like a pat on the back and forget about yeah. it? Yeah. He said, I think it's dead set true I've been made a scapegoat. Yeah, you, you've been made a scapegoat because you were the only one who did this. There's a real easy way to avoid the scapegoat yeah. is to not break the rules. Yeah, exactly. Left out of the Origin team in 1992, you know, said, I don't know if they hold the marijuana charge against me, and then said, you know, I deserve to be on the bench. It's like I deserve to be there, like just a, the wrong mentality to have. That's what makes him so good as a pundit now. It's like saying whatever's on his mind, right? Yeah. But every player would have thought those things. Mm. The reporters are half to blame by ringing him up for rent a quote. Oh, so yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. 
After the 1995 suspension, he asked referee Mark Oden if he had a personal vendetta against him. And I think that goes into this quote from Roy Masters. Perhaps Geyer is genuinely convinced of his perpetual innocence. He occasionally utters an inner cry for justice, which disarms and endears. And that disarming and endearing, to me, it's extraordinary, like how willing people are to keep giving him chances, like to the judiciary itself. So after the 95 thing, when they said they were giving him the benefit of a very large doubt, Jim Sullivan said, we are satisfied that you are desperately trying to clean up your act, as it were. And we don't want to ruin a career, which we believe still has a lot to offer the game and your club. We know you've tried to rehabilitate yourself over the last couple of years, and we have a great deal of sympathy for you. See, rugby league's got compassion. It's probably the most compassionate professional sport around. Mm. Unless you're like Les Boyd, Hoppawati, or Danny Williams that just really go beyond the pale, they're not going to rub you out, in inverted commas. They are going to give you like a chance. Yeah. Many chances. Yeah. I mean, even after the eye-gouging incident, John McDonald in The Australian wrote, He's a long way past 21. A lot of people have tried to help him, and he really hasn't advanced very far. On one level, he doesn't deserve sympathy, but despite all his sins, Geyer is very hard to dislike, and the whole business is just really sad. You just got to wonder what would have happened without Ben Alexander. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, and I think we mentioned it when we talked about that tragedy, that I think he was already on the path. Like, you just felt like something was going to happen anyway. Like, he was out of control off-field and on-field. Yeah, but then there's lots of guys like that too. I think that just pushed him over yeah, the edge. Yeah, I mean... Reckless endangerment levels. <laughs> I mean, it basically gave him no chance. And this was, like, quite chilling from Phil Gould. So this was a quote from December 1991. He said, I hope this never happens, but if something stopped him from playing this game tomorrow, I'd worry about him. Yeah, man. See... He could have been a, a real bad statistic. Yeah. Um, turned his life right around. Mm. Great family man, all the rest of it. Great career now. With all the, the Gus hating we do on this podcast because of the commentary and the arrogance and all the rest of it, he's um, a good-hearted man uh, in many respects. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I don't have any actual, like, <laughs> you know, personal thing against Gus. I think he probably is a good guy. Just some of his actions otherwise we can criticise. Uh, one journalist who was not willing to give Geyer a go and was very wary of the endless amount of redemption stories written about him was Lisa Olson, the American journalist who we've talked about before. Imagine what she thought. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in from America, it's kind of like, what the fuck? So this was after the, the 1996 referee abuse incident. She said, I guess this puts an end to all those feel-good stories that seem to crop up every now and then. The ones that throw out all the tired cliches but give no insight other than what Mark Geyer and his apologists want us to believe, which is basically that Geyer really is a great bloke. A bit emotional, maybe, but terribly misunderstood. A quick recap. Geyer was a changed man when he went from Penrith to Balmain. He was a changed man when he left Balmain for the Central Coast, and a changed man when he moved to Perth. He was a changed man when he got married, had a kid, got a haircut, ate his lunch without starting a food fight, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> We really need uh, journalists from outside the bubble yeah. in the game, <laughs> just for that perspective, because otherwise it's just all yeah fluff. But in saying that she guessed this puts an end to all those feel-good stories, vastly underestimating rugby league media's love <laughs> of a redemption story. So two months later in a John Getty's Daily Telegraph article, volatile rugby league forward Mark Guyer had a good look at himself two months ago and didn't like what he saw. He finally admitted he had a problem and needed help. 
The explosive Western Reds forward knew that if he didn't do something, he would self-destruct and his career as a professional footballer would come to a dramatic and premature end. Uh, and in that same article, Gaia, you know, admitted that he had, had a problem with his temper and said, when you admit it, you are halfway there, which I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't think quite halfway. So that brings us to the gouging incident and the subsequent uh, judiciary hearing. So he was found guilty. He got seven weeks in the end for the gouging charge, which seems light for an attempt to scoop out someone's eyeball, but, uh, and then another three weeks for a high tackle. Just the extra three for a laugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this section's probably going to be a bit of a mess because there's just so many amazing quotes that like, I can't leave out any of them. So we're just <laughs> going to kind of go through them and, and hopefully it has some kind of coherence. But it starts with his defense. So he had two reasons why he could not possibly have been found guilty of eye gouging. Uh, firstly was the Greg Alexander defense. He said... My brother-in-law got eye gouged 10 years ago, and I spent a week by his side in hospital. Case closed. <laughs> you know, case closed, no more evidence needed, but he did give some more. Uh, and that was the Mark Geyer code. So he said, I'd never eye gouge someone. If someone did it to me, I'd stop the game and kick the shit out of him. Sorry about the language. <laughs> See, I actually believe in the Mark Geyer code. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, no, I think that's true. And, and I think that is why this one in particular really took him over the edge for a guy who spent his career feeling like a victim and you know protesting his innocence in this case he really believed it so his quote on that was for once in my life i was innocent that's the most frustrating thing about it <laughs> for once yes. <laughs> all the past uh, defenses were yeah. all based on bullshit <laughs> So he basically blew up in the judiciary hearing after he was found guilty. They asked him if he wanted to take it some time to gather his thoughts before they went on with the sentencing. But he said, no, get it over with. Just throw the fucking book at me, which they duly did. <laughs> uh, then was telling his representatives, I want to appeal to Mr. Murdoch. Do you reckon Rupert was keen for that? <laughs> uh, and then afterwards said, to be labelled an eye gouger, it's like being called a pedophile. I really do think it's that serious. I would suggest that it's below the level of pedophile. <laughs> and of the, you know, the changes that Super League was going to bring, he said, new game, new image, fucking bullshit. <laughs> you know what? That quote there, I know it's only about this incident, but that sums up the... <laughs> Super League experience, yeah. distinctly. <laughs> totally. Uh, and then he felt that he didn't have any loyalty from old mates. So on the judiciary panel of three ex-footballers, which was Mal Cochran, Daryl Williams, and Cole Bentley, who was his former teammate at Penrith, of Bentley, Gaia said, he's a mate of mine. He obviously thinks he knows me better than I do. He thinks I'm an eye gouger. Um, but as it turns out, he may have got it wrong. So it was actually a two-to-one verdict between the three panelists so i don't know which of the three panelists said not guilty but it may well have been his old mate cole bentley do you want ex-players on the um judiciary that sort of take the oath to rule fairly to go well he's my mate yeah yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's misplaced anger on guys front on a number of levels but then as the verdict was handed down he started to realize that the ramifications of this he said, you're trying to rub me out of the game. Uh, and then 
saying to the press that he's been bankrupted. So it was really starting to get to him. The funny thing is that Gaia's actions were, in some respects, restrained compared to his legal representative, which is uh, your old mentor, Chris Murphy. I loved reading this. I mean, you're not going to get an uh, unbiased opinion from me on this guy. I love the guy, but he's the ultimate guy that you want in your corner when you've got a problem like that, believe me. And like, if you go to his website, he's got this quote, his manifesto, where it says something like, an advocate knows that he must save his client by all means and expedience, regardless of hazards to himself or others. Mm. So like, whatever the um, situation calls for, if it calls for eloquent intellectualism, he'll, he'll use that. And if it's a rugby league judiciary and it calls for a big stink, he'll use that if it's going to help the client. Yeah, and he actually used both of those tactics at various points over the next week or so. Definitely the latter in the actual judiciary hearing. So <laughs> I've got three versions of the same incident or the same statement. So I don't know which is true, but they're all great and they all add something different. So I'm going to read three different recaps of Chris Murphy at Mark Guyer's hearing. The first comes from Steve Mascord. Uh, in Mascord's words, Murphy said, I think you're incompetent, grossly incompetent. It's an utter joke, a disgrace, a kangaroo court and an idiotic process. I think having three football players decide this matter is a total joke. This is Mr. Murdoch's court. I don't know how much commercial interest is in this place, but I'm going back to the ARL. Goodbye. It goes without saying Chris was um, not a fan of Super League. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Greg Pritchard's version of events confirms that. He told the judiciary that you take your paycheck from Mr. Murdoch. It's a disgrace. You're a Queen's counsel. I'm going back to the ARL. <laughs> and finally, Peter Frelengos's version. This is an incompetent board. I'm not going to sit here any longer. This is an idiotic process. This is Mr. Murdoch's court. It's not my court. It's a disgrace. You're a QC. I don't know how you can sit here and conduct such proceedings. And I don't know what commercial interest you have in them. I'm going back to the ARL. So we've definitely triangulated the I'm going back to the ARL line. <laughs> you can take your pick on, on the rest of the statement. But his reputation in law, right, as a formidable figure is pretty much unsurpassed, especially in criminal realms. Mm. But like, so most lawyers will farm out the case to a barrister as a mouthpiece, right? Yeah. As professional mouthpieces. He'll get on his feet and do the fighting himself if necessary, right? Um, most times. Yeah. So even Queen's counsels are like often trembling when they're, when mm. they're dealing with him. And these are like the biggest brains in the business. Yeah. So I guess the only real thing he did against Gaia was to storm out of the courtroom after those remarks, leaving Gaia, you know, sobbing in his seat. Uh, and that was before the pie tackle hearing was read. So Murphy was gone and Steve Rogers had to step in to be beside him as the high tackle charge was discussed. But like there'd be some sort of method to the uh, yeah. behavior, you know what I mean? So like you want to talk about a memorable incident in pageantry? Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Uh, but regardless... The Perth Reds weren't very happy with Murphy's conduct. They didn't want Gaia to take on outside counsel in the first place. So uh, Stephen Edwards, the chairman, said, I thought the way Mark's counsel acted was appalling. The club certainly distances itself from the comments he made about the judiciary panel and its members. How those comments furthered his client's case is beyond me. But I think Gaia was ultimately vindicated in going outside just because he needed someone that wasn't going to be afraid to argue about exactly, yeah. Super League's processes. And we're going to see how that played out. But, I mean, it's in the Perth Reds' interest to keep it all in-house, given who was, you know, keeping them going and what competition they were playing in. 
Well, we see with the money, I'm jumping ahead here, but if you kept it in-house, you would have just been plead guilty and cop whatever they give you. Yeah, exactly. So let's get to that. So with the appeal, which was immediately announced that Gaia would be appealing, again, the Reds wanted him to let Murphy go and... They said, we're not going to pay for Chris Murphy. Murphy came out and said, I don't care if he doesn't pay. He wouldn't be the first footballer not to pay me. He does a lot of stuff pro bono for uh, various underdogs or whatever, and then also the odd identity. Yeah. And so Murphy came out and said that, you know, in the first instance, we'll appeal through the judiciary. Then there's the Supreme Court and the Industrial Commission. Who gets fined $100,000 because a bloke says he was eye-gouged and didn't suffer an injury? Give me a break. That's a fair point, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that industrial commission thing is interesting because it's hard to see such a fine being allowed, losing $100,000 for an incident that didn't cause any lasting issues. See, this is the issue with football-run judiciaries, right? No one wants guys that have never played the game and inverted commas doing it, but... If you've got guys that have played the game doing it, you end up with these sort of kangaroo yeah. court type situations. It's a fine balance, isn't it? So like, you know, remember early on, we talked about Steve Renoff going to the judiciary and feeling like he was in a real courtroom. And it's like, well, <laughs> if you want like, you know, fairness in hearings and due process, you kind of got to run it, you know, with lawyers and like a, an actual court. Well, rugby league as a collective is distrustful of due process. Everyone just wants to have a feel for it, how it should go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Feels like eight weeks. <laughs> so I think that would have caused big dramas for Super League and the Reds if it did go that far. So in the first instance, they rejected the guy's right to appeal. So for the appeal to get up through the judiciary, uh, there were one of three grounds that had to be satisfied. Firstly, that the conviction was contrary to the evidence, that there was an error on points of law, or that the suspension was too harsh. So they rejected that appeal, uh, at which stage Murphy said that they would be taking Super League to the Supreme Court, which originally Murphy had, you know, talked about this big wide-reaching case that, you know, was going to talk about the whole Super League judicial process, but the actual case that was put forward to the Supreme Court was much more limited. And I think David Gallup was pointedly referring to Chris Murphy when he said, I note that our judicial process, which was so heavily criticised by Mark Geyer's lawyer, is not the subject of the challenge. Well, since you identified him, I think you're talking about Uh, And so the appeal ended up getting withdrawn with Gallup again claiming victory for Super League, saying the judiciary decision and its process was fair in every respect. The fact is the action was withdrawn, saving both sides significant costs. We believe that having lost the court action, Mark Geyer would have been left with a large legal bill. It was never our intent to further punish Mark Geyer for commencing legal action, which was totally devoid of merit. But I think definitely some kind of deal was reached. So in the end, Gaia was to be paid six of the 10 weeks that he was suspended. Super League, you know, came out, you know, were adamant that no deal had been done, that it was just standard policy that was now being affirmed. But Gaia in his contract had a different situation. So with the contract and Stephen Edwards at the Reds, you know, had said in the first instance that he wouldn't be paid at all. So despite Gallup's, you know, maintaining there was no deal, Whether it was just the Reds deciding it, it was clear that it was suppressed to stop further incident. And he took the 10 weeks, but, you know, was getting paid for six. This is what I want to bring up. It's like, see, he doesn't get Chris Murphy to represent him. He's now 60 grand or so 
further in the hole. Mm. He gets Chris Murphy. He has all this stuff for him. Yeah. Puts himself in harm's way by insulting QCs and whatever and, you know, yeah. doesn't care. Doesn't care about that. Yeah. Just help Mike Gary out and now he's got 60 grand in his pocket he didn't have before. Yeah, totally. And when you say about, you know, not willing to cause personal harm, like having all that come out in the press and, you know, looking quite, you know, I don't know what the word is, but he kind of doesn't come across well, you know, in the judiciary hearing, but, you know, it helps Gaia ultimately. So Gaia took his 10 weeks and his career at the Reds was saved. As it turns out, his return from suspension just happened to coincide with the Reds playing the Rams again. So (laughs) predictably, in the lead up to the game, Mark Guy was asked about his opinion of Chris Quinn. And again, these statements are subject to debate. Guy admits to making some of them, that it was on a radio appearance, but says that he didn't say all of these things and it was all tongue in cheek. So of Quinn, he said, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't looking to get square. He lied and he knows he did, and I'm still dirty about it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to kill the bloke. I'd go the whole way. I'd have his head on a dartboard. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, um, we've said that we don't believe that he did it intentionally. Why would Chris Quinn want to make up something like that to a loose cannon yeah. like Gaia who's going to have to play again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so obviously he's felt something and he felt like it happened. Yeah, Otherwise yeah. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have said it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but to the tongue in cheek point i'm sure it was you know just kind of laughing around on the radio show and and saying that uh, but with some truth to it i don't think chris quint was you know getting a christmas card from mark Geyer. so in the end it got sorted off the field uh and we're better to do that but uh on sale of the centuries battle of the codes so chris quinn just happened to be going up against greg alexander on an episode so <laughs> so they talked about the feud and got it all sorted and Chris Quinn said, it was one of those things that happened, but it's all in the past now. I mean, out of pointless fillers, is it's one of those things that happened right up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, it has a happy ending. I, I haven't seen anything of Gaia commenting on Chris Quinn, but uh, of Gaia, Chris Quinn the following year said, I don't know the bloke that well, but it looks like he just wants to concentrate on footy and play to the best of his ability, and it seems to be working. He's done a lot more in football than I ever have, but he's probably like me in that we're both coming to the end of our careers, and he wants to finish on top. I've got no worries with Mark, and I'm sure it's the same with him. We both got on with life. And in the spirit of mature comments, can I just give a formal apology to Chris Quinn? He is actually the cousin of uh, one of my best mates. And when Chris Quinn was at the Dragons and decided to leave, I was telling my mate to tell him, tell Quinn he's a dog. He's a dog. So (laughs) I I would like to recant that accusation and and wish Chris Quinn all the best going forward. Well, I was just going to say, we talked about the Rams last week and we didn't mention him as a good Rams player, but he was one of those really hard-running wingers of that era. I used to love watching him play. And you calling him a dog like your typical psycho Dragons fan. Well, I mean, part of it was like he was playing fullback a lot of the Dragons, and and I thought he was pretty good. You know, he was had the odd error in him, but I thought he was very good for the Dragons, and I, I was sad to see him go. So, um, yeah, I'm once again a fan of Chris Quinn. But so the game happens. Chris Quinn does not get killed by Mark Geyer, uh, but Mark Geyer does manage to get cited in his first game back. <laughs> 
ahead of him for him, definitely. Yeah, so for a tackle on Cameron Blair, you know, in the lead-up he said, this is it. I know I've said it before, but I feel as though it really is this time. If I'm suspended again, it will probably be the end of me. So I guess I'll be a bit wary. Cameron Blair did his best to get him off, you know, the old footballer's code. Blair said, I didn't think there was anything in it. I stepped and MG's arm came up. It was a bit of a slap in the face, nothing more. It didn't hurt, and I got straight to my feet and got on with the game. And man. Yeah. So unfortunately, the judiciary saw it differently. Uh, Guy got three weeks for the suspension. Tim Sheens actually came out on his side and said, the question I asked when looking at the incident is, what would have happened if Andrew Weddinghausen or Laurie Daly had made a similar tackle? I think you'll find the answer is the referee would have pulled them aside, penalized them, end of story. No report, no three-match ban. As soon as the referee put MG on report, the judiciary felt under pressure to act, and the result was another unwanted holiday for the big fella. I know from experience with John Lomax, who's played for me at Canberra and now North Queensland, how a reputation can follow a player. To Tim Sheens, I'd say, is there a reason that it always is Mark Geyer and John Lomax and not E.T. and Laurie Daly? (laughs) Um, So he gets the suspension, but thankfully, like, the Reds weighed the decision as a standalone incident. They didn't look at it in terms of the balance of incidents over his career. So Stephen Edwards said, it didn't indicate a level of unnatural aggression or conduct that would warrant terminating his contract. Very nice of them, but I mean, how many games did he bloody miss? Yeah, I mean, 34 over the course of his career. 20 weeks in three seasons that the Reds were spent suspended. That's up there with Les Boyd level numbers. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think Hopper's got the record, but, well, in NRL era anyway, but yeah, guy is up there. <laughs> the old days they used to give you eighteen months and yeah. twelve months. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether they were just spooked by the industrial commission discourse from the first suspension, but the Reds chose not to act. Uh, and Guy did come back on the field towards the end of the season and had a happy ending to his Reds career in the World Club Challenge, where Matt Guy made his uh, first appearance alongside Mark, put up a bomb which. Mark Guy ran through court and scored under the post. So How awesome is that? Yeah. So on that, Mark Guy said, It was unbelievable. I had tears in my eyes. I've already replayed the try a thousand times in my mind. I thought I'd never get to play with Matty. So it's hard to put into words what that game means to us. I mean, how cool is that story with Matt Guy just being like polar opposite of his oh, brother and having that great career? And It's so funny. So at the same time, Mark said, My biggest regret is that Matt is going to cop it from the public just because of the things I've done which just like never came to fruition. And, you know, Gaia said, I've told him to steer clear of nightclubs and you're going to be targeted. So I don't know if he learned from mistakes or was just cut from a different cloth, but none of Mark's baggage followed Matt, which was really good for him. But so that was a nice little happy ending to his Reds career. But with the Reds gone after 1997, he was in need of a new home. And what he really, really wanted was a great overall ending with a return to Penrith. So Gaia said, I haven't played a lot of football in the last five years, but I want to rekindle some of that old fire. Penrith will always hold a very special place in my heart, and it would be good to go back and play out my career with Brandy. I think that's a wonderful ending. Yeah, which almost didn't happen. So there were still quite a few people at Penrith who didn't want him back. Mark Levy, the CEO, said, there are people in this organization with influence who would probably say we don't want Mark back. It's not just a case of whether we want him either. The other problem we have is we've got a surplus of back rowers. Mark's on huge money. We're close to our salary cap. Back rowers are not our priority. It's different than taking on someone else's problems. Like, it's actually their problem originally. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so they managed to work out an agreement. MG said, you know, I, I know I'll have to take a pay cut. Next year's contract is not negotiable, but I'd work for match payments beyond that. And so, you know, he was on a very modest contract for his second stint at Penrith. One thing he had in his favor was the coach, Roy Simmons. So obviously someone that had played with Mark and knew him well. The first thing Royce did, which I don't know why every other coach didn't do, was to slap a media ban on him. I mean, that would have solved so many problems. Yeah. Can you have a whole career media ban, though? I mean, it's yeah. practical. <laughs> so Royce said, we want him to do his talking on the field, not in the papers. He's the sort of bloke who sometimes speaks before he thinks and doesn't need that pressure. He gets so many requests for interviews, talking about the fight with Wally, Ben's death, and what went wrong at Perth and Balmain. We want to put that in the past and get him focused on the year ahead. I couldn't think of a better landing spot and coach for him at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just the media ban. It was someone who understood him and how to get the best out of him. Yeah. So Roy said, I'm not going to try and change him in any way. Mark has to remember why he's a good footballer in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm trying to remind him of those reasons. And it wasn't because he was talking to the press, back chatting the referees or being sent off. In terms of Royce at the Panthers, you know, as a coach, I always go back to my interview with James Smith when he said the first thing John Lang did at the press conference in 2003 was to acknowledge the work Royce had done to get them there on that day. Yeah, legend. Uh, but as for MG, it really was it this time. He couldn't afford any more slip-ups. He did, you know, have three years at the Panthers, uh, got sent off once, but he got off on that. And otherwise, it was pretty clear sailing maybe helped by the fact that he spent almost a year out injured, reducing his opportunity for suspensions. But regardless, he finished the career off well and, you know, got that kind of emotional maturity at last. And I love this on the actual gouging incident. So this was a quote in 2000. So just after he'd retired, he said, the eye gouging basically changed my whole career. I realized if I could be portrayed as an eye gouger, anything could happen to me. And I realized that with most things, I put myself in the position for it to happen. Like the assault charges, I had four or five over my career. I realized if I hadn't gone out that night, it never would have happened. If I hadn't put my fingers in Chris Quinn's mouth, trying to give him a facial, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> the amount of trouble that stems from nightclubs and facials in rugby league. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love that. It's dropping the victim mentality at, yeah. at last, saying, you know, yeah. all right, I still don't think I eye gouged him. But I kind of got myself in that position. You know, maybe other guys were coming up to me at the club, but, you know, it was me who carried on with it and made it happen. And so I don't know what it is about Gaia, but, like, I, you know, have the same kind of sympathy and the same kind of, you know, wanting him to make it as all these journalists and all these judiciary panel members had at the time. He's so easy to root for despite the indiscretions. Well, this is a favourite saying of Chris Murphy's as well, the Shakespeare quote, he who never felt a wound just at my scars. Like, you don't know what these guys' upbringings were like and stuff. It's Yeah. You know, this, there was something wrong with him, right, when he was young. Yeah. He was a lunatic. So as much as he didn't like being called one. So the fact he's turned it around and become an actual, I don't know, this great part of the game now. Yeah, totally. So I think we've had Italian proverbs, we've had Shakespeare quotes. <laughs> uh, we've had all sorts of wankery. <laughs> so very cerebral for a discussion about Scott Wilson, Julian O'Neill <laughs> and Mark Geyer. Absolute fraudulent <laughs> quoting by me there. Don't even understand no, no, no not, not at all. I think it's perfect. And I, I can't really 
I can't really add to it to go out on. So uh, we will end it there. I loved this research. This was one of my favorite episodes to research. And I think it is just rugby league in excelsis, this story. Let me just give you a bit of a ball washing here because you know how I feel about your work on this research for the whole series. I love it, right? But this one really opened my eyes to how important it is to look at the nuance Mm. in this war because every single one of those guys, there's unbelievable nuance that, you know, people just gloss over, including myself. Yeah, absolutely. And and you don't have to lose the hilarity of it all to realize that. But, you know, this is a human story. It's what we're trying to get across. So I hope everyone has enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking about it. Uh, and as always, would love to get your thoughts. I'm sure there'll be a lot of them over this one. So we will leave it there. See you later. Bye. It was Monday, the 24th of March, 1997. And at ANZ Stadium, the Canberra Raiders lost 24-8 to the Brisbane Broncos, their fourth loss in as many matches to open the 1997 Super League season. Though they would eventually recover enough to finish third on the ladder and end their season a game shy of the grand final, the signs were not good, and a dominant era in rugby league had reached its end. This is part three of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Very well, mate. How are you? I'm good. Uh, here for part three of our 1997 Super League recap, uh, in which we'll be looking at the three non-grand finalists who managed to make the semi-finals, that being the Penrith Panthers, Canterbury Bulldogs, and your Canberra Raiders. Uh, <laughs> as a Raiders fan, what are your memories of this season for the Raiders? Not that great from memory. I, I haven't got any clear memories, to be honest. I just the jerseys were a bad start, and then yeah. things didn't go well from there. Yeah, and I think there's some common threads to each of those three seasons, and, and I don't want to draw too long a bow in trying to argue that there's some cohesive overarching narrative, but there are some commonalities. First of all, each of the three were being coached by a club legend, that being Roy Simmons at the Panthers, Chris Anderson at the Dogs, and Mal Meninga at the Raiders. So Mal in his first year, Anderson in his last year, and, and Royce right in the middle of his run. And on top of that, all three teams were at the point where they were trying to recapture the magic. They had good eras or periods of success a few years before, and they were trying to get it back together. And we'll see how that played out for the three teams. But three very compelling individual team seasons, I thought, and we'll get into all of it. We'll start with Penrith, who finished in fifth place. And as I said, they had their coach in place in Roy Simmons, who arrived at the club late in 1994 when Gus departed. And when you think about the fact that you had Royce in place, Brandy came back, MG was a year away from returning, there's something ironic in the fact that the way they were trying to put back the pieces after everything that happened in 1992 and beyond, in some part involved getting that same cast of characters back and trying to right the shit from within. But who better than Brandy and Royce, you know? Yeah, I think Royce was the right coach for the right time, especially, you know, we're going to talk about Craig Gower's emergence. I think Royce was a good coach for him to be entering the league into. 
And it just also helped to develop a good spirit within the team. And I think for 40 years now, Royce has just been one of those figures in rugby league that no one has a bad word to say about, puts a smile on everyone's face, just the laconic nature of him and his mannerisms, a very popular figure in rugby league. I was just thinking as I'm reading the dossier, there's so few of these guys around now, these genuine knockabouts. You get the odd one, but most of the characters, in inverted commas, are sort of like trying to be a character now. Yeah, yeah. It's embarrassing. Royce is the number one rugby league quality of having no airs and graces. Yeah, totally. And so Brandy came back, and I think we've talked enough about the emotional side of that and, you know, what he meant to the region, what the region meant to him and all of that sort of thing. What I want to focus on is his form on the field, which was electric in the early part of the season. He won a recall to the New South Wales team in Super League uh, before getting injured and having the season derailed. But like he was truly back to his best before that injury after a you know a couple of middling years at the Warriors. A look at those wasted years is such a shame. The talent this bloke had. Yeah, and it was just good that he did get back and got a nice ending. Uh, he was doing it in an unfamiliar number of 55. So uh, <laughs> according to Brandy, he was on honeymoon when the numbers were being handed out. Uh, so he asked for the biggest number they had, which was 55. So Craig Gower was there in the number seven jersey. Would you consider that in rugby league terms a sign of disrespect? You know Brandy's at the club and he's like a young gun. Is him poaching the seven a sign of disrespect to the legend? It is odd, isn't it? I actually hadn't stopped to consider that. But yeah, like you'd think they'd keep the jersey warm for him, seeing he was just going on honeymoon. I would think that if anyone but Brandy, that could cause a feud in rugby league. Brandy's just going to be like, yeah, whatever, I'm a gentleman. But yeah, say it was um, some pig-headed rugby league type, which is 99% of them. It could be a club feud over that. Absolutely. Like it's no small thing, is it? So it was just lucky that he was magnanimous enough to take it in good spirits and, you know, add a bit of humour to the mix with <laughs> Get 55. asking for the biggest number they had. <laughs> but it wasn't just on the field that Brandy was having a good season. This was the year that he actually went on to win Sale of the Century's Battle of the Codes. I feel like he's our best representative for that as well. Yeah. Of the era. There wouldn't be too many Brainiacs. No. Not that he comes across as, you know, some dumb meathead footballer, but I didn't necessarily see him as an intellectual. But, yeah, he won it in the final uh, beat. All Black Eric Rush, Jason Dunstall from Hawthorne, and Matthew Horsley from uh, Wollongong City uh, soccer team. So. <laughs> he was the dark horse, Horsley. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about the player who did get that number seven jersey in Craig Gower, which uh, was putting it mildly to say he burst onto the scene in 1997. In the Super League magazine, Greg Pritchard wrote, Meteoric is too wimpy a word to describe his rise. After all, before turning 19 last week, Gower had already made distinguished debuts at Hooker for New South Wales and Australia. I remember him as the Hooker in that era and being so excited about it, going, oh, it's a new breed. He's taking over the Mark Soden role. He's getting out of dummy half, you know. Yeah, and I associate him so closely with Super League because, you know, as I've stated a few times now, I wasn't watching any Super League football at the time. So I kept on hearing this name, Craig Gower, Craig Gower. Oh, he's playing for New South Wales. Oh, you know, he's 18 and he's debuted for Australia. And I was like, who is Craig Gower? And 
you know. Um, I guess he's pretty good. The only part of you that saw Craig Gow was your back. (laughs) (laughs) I I was actually surprised that he didn't debut in 1997. He played 12 games for the Panthers in 1996. So it's not like he came completely out of the blue in 1997, but it was certainly one of the great breakout years. It just goes to show what a blur that time was, right? Because I had no idea about that either. Yeah, yeah. I'll just read a couple of quotes that uh, put into context the buzz around him at the time. So E.T. said, He's the hottest property I've ever seen. I couldn't believe how cool he was in his first test. The kid has got all the skills. Some guys, you know they are footballers. He's one. And Tim Sheen's similar words. You don't call someone a champion at the beginning of their career. It comes at the end. But if he keeps playing consistently and continues to improve, then I can at least say we'll be watching a champion in the making. And I want you to think about those words in relation to where Gower's career ended up and also in relation to the obvious comparison for a teenage phenom coming out of Penrith, which is Freddie. The Freddie comparisons were everywhere in 1997. You know, Peter Jackson saying, the similarities to Brad Fittler are, well, a little bit spooky. And the similarities were there in terms of the meteoric rise, but stark contrast, you know, where their careers ended up, where they're placed in the pantheon of the game now. Well, that's unfair because Freddie was the ultimate prodigy. Yeah. Better than Brasher, better than better than any teenage prodigy, better than Hannay. Um, yeah. Straight away, that's an unfair comparison. So, and I think that might have derailed him a little bit in the mid part of his career when the honeymoon period wore off. But thank God he finished really strong. Yeah, like it wasn't a bad career by any stretch, but... When you think of his kind of off-field exploits, you know, Freddie was a party boy too. And at age 23 or whatever, Freddie was handed the Australian captaincy when everyone knew he was, you know, a bit of a loose cannon on the drink. You know, we were still five years away from Glebe Police Station (laughs) when he was handed the Australian captaincy. So it's not like he ever lost that kind of element to his personality, at least not at that point in his life. But there was just something about the head on his shoulders that he was entrusted with the Australian captaincy and he lived up to that trust, whereas Gower just didn't kind of have the same makeup. I'll tell you what it is, mate. It's attitude because in that era particularly, I mean, every year of rugby league, everyone's loose on the drink when they're young and, you know, they're, yep. they're scallywags and they're doing this, that and the other. It's the intent. If you're Joey or Freddie, you're just having a good time. You're not hurting anybody. But there's this, like, belligerent attitude of some of the guys want to mm. be like, nasty or you know causing trouble for civilians or whatever they're doing for a laugh it's the attitude in it i think yeah the classic uh Kuji incident right like that's not something you'd think you'd hear freddie or joey doing that they probably mm. did <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah whereas the you know harassing several junior members of the pierce family that's something <laughs> you, you definitely wouldn't see <laughs> happening from those folks <laughs> That's one of the great grub uh, moments, though. (laughs) So, yeah, it was just really weird reading about this season and putting it into the context of where Gower's career ended up and the esteem he's generally held in the game, which, you know, he's certainly not a universally beloved figure. And I think even among Panthers fans, there's a, you know, a bit of frustration there. Well, it's one of your great quotes there. If you can play, you will play because... These guys that have just got it innately, they can just still do it on the field no matter what. So he used yep. that skill to finish off his career as a leader and a premiership winner. 
Yeah, yeah. And he certainly could play in 1997. So despite losing the jersey number to Gower, <laughs> Brandy wasn't going to actually lose his halfback position. So with Brandy back, Gower had to switch positions and play hooker. He never played there before. And, you know, at, at first was a bit reticent, but Royce was there, someone who'd been there, won a comp with the Panthers at hooker, played for Australia at hooker. Uh, and so... All due respect to Royce, there's a totally different position that Gower was playing than he was playing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. But I don't think Royce was playing him at hooker and telling him, this is how I did it, this is how you're going to do it. It was knowing that he was a halfback and knowing that he brought you know, a spark to the game at a time that the position was changing that I thought it was really astute and Gower, like, more than delivered. It blows me away that these great footballers can just, oh, by the way, you're playing an entirely different position. You've never played in your juniors Mm. your whole life, and they just take to it. Like, Yeah, and and it was straight out of the gates. Like, by the end of March, he was already being talked about being a front runner for the New South Wales hooking spot, which... You know, he was duly named there and then, you know, made his Australian debut shortly after. <laughs> Part of my pitch to uh, strangers about the Super League um, experience was like, mate, you've got young players like Gower and Adamson, you know, like the tearaways. You know, it's changing the game, Gower. <laughs> I was right on, board, yeah. <laughs> right on board with that hooker position, believe me. Yeah, yeah. It was a genuine evolution. Like, you can see him as one of the key links in how that position changed into the 2000s. I think there was a, a Mark Soden article on Rugby League Week about how he was changing the position of hooker, maybe 94 or something, and I rode that from that day onwards to now and still talk about it like I'm an expert. Yeah. Uh, but Gower wasn't the only teenager on the rise with Tony Pulitua making his debut also at 18, and he made a big splash as well in 1997. He was a gun. and Yeah. Would you put him in the forefront? We talk about Olsen Filipana, but there wasn't a like you know an influx of Pacifica players until the post Pulitua era. I think I think he's one of the great leaders of that charge. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you got Solomon Hamono making a breakthrough a couple of years earlier. There was a sprinkling, but, yeah, and he was like the truly great player for so many years. Yeah, and then I think in the premiership year, having Nullivau there as well, you know, the Hair Bears and standing out physically as well as dominating on the field. Like, I think that had a massive impact. And I think they were also kind of playing guitar and singing together, you know, 20 years before Luhai and uh, Toa were doing it. So (laughs) pioneers in more than one way. Um, I just thought he was the best second rower. Mm. I will say this, I thought he was going to get bigger than he ever did in his career. Like, he was just very good for a long period, but he was never, like, the greatest. Yeah. Yeah, I think he reached his ceiling, but that ceiling like maybe wasn't as high as it looked like being early on. But thinking about Pulitzer emerging this year, Gower emerging, it made me think about the fact that 91, great junior base coming through, falls apart for reasons we've discussed many times. 2003, another great core of juniors, along with you know some elite bought talent coming in as well. That was kind of like not the true team of local juniors, like the 91 and the most recent incarnation of the Panthers. But still, that era kind of falls away relatively quickly. And this is why I'll always defend Gus. You know, people make the jokes about the five-year plan or whatever, but Penrith have developed so many players over the years. There've been so many false starts. It took someone like Gus coming in to actually truly deliver on that promise. Uh, I still think he's doing the bare minimum. <laughs> I feel I really do. 
<laughs> yeah, but, you know, someone had to do it. Like, <laughs> someone had to do the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it clearly wasn't being done. If only we could do the bare minimum in the Newcastle uh, Junior Nursery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, there's a decent sprinkling of footballers on the South Coast, too, if the Dragons ever want to <laughs> get it together. <laughs> Uh, but let's keep it uh, Super League focused in 1997 and stay on the Panthers. I mentioned local juniors plus bought talent from elsewhere. One of those was Ryan Girdler, who had been at the Panthers a few years by 1997. But this was a real breakout year for him too. Like I think Peter Jackson's assessment, I think, is fairly true across the game. Ryan Girdler is another bloke who's elevated himself into being one of the stars of the game. I must admit that until this year, I thought he was just a run-of-the-mill first grader. Okay, I'll put my hand up and say I was wrong. Before I comment on Gerla, I want to talk about the age-old doctrine of putting your hand up in rugby league. The cure-all <laughs> for anything from misjudging Ryan Gerla to uh, attempted murder. Yeah. <laughs> I think they missed a trick at Nuremberg. They shouldn't have went with a Nuremberg defense. They should have went with the put your hand up defense. But um, he was like class at... Steelers even and yeah he looked good then and then he went to the next level and I think his pretty boy looks hurt him in that people thought he was just a bit of a ponce or something but he was really really good I agree and I think Royce agrees too his quote on Girdle was Ryan's been a good player for years now it's just that no one outside the club seemed to know it's funny because like when he had the ball you always thought there was a break coming half a break or mm. you know it was just a it sliced through like a knife through butter and um yeah it was underrated but yeah, I think Super League was really the making of him in terms of getting everyone's attention and he got a chance and he never looked back. I think he had genuine claims of being the best center in the world at points over the next few years. I think he was by the time it got to those like dominating New South Wales teams of the yeah, yeah. early 2000s, whatever it was. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so he was voted the Panthers player of the year, the Super League top point scorer of the year. With a 93% percentage in terms of accuracy. Well, that was absolutely incredible then, still is today. But back then, that was post the, you know, we're laughing about the 78% um, Super Boot mm. era um, of Ridge and Co. But is he the actual catalyst for the modern goal kicker, where it's, you know, 80% or you're a bust? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I'm kicking myself for not doing this in advance. But a friend of the show, Dave Hunter, has pulled us up on our ridiculing of those Superboot era percentages, saying that it was a whole different thing kicking with sand as opposed to kicking tee. So I wanted to go and check whether Girdle was using a tee or not. Uh, I forgot to do that. So if anyone knows for sure, let us know. Otherwise, we'll, uh, I don't we'll think find he out and mention it. I, I don't think he was either. Like, I think he was just before that era and and if that's true then that like really is remarkable it was the sort of switch over from the upright ball to the pointing forward ball from the mid 90s and then that was really pointed forward by this era and that was accuracy was increasing mm. which i still don't yeah. know how to get distance with the pointing forward ball i can never kick it yeah any further than 20 <laughs> meters when i do it uh but so anyway it was a, a great year of goal kicking for him he actually broke the panthers club record uh, of 26 points in a game. He already shared that record uh, with Greg Alexander and Shane Marshall with a previous game of 24, but in a game against Warrington, he broke that record. I like his comment on it. He said, I was in the sheds later when a couple of media blokes came up and told me about it, but I don't know. I'm not even sure it counts. So a bit bit of a subtle sledge there at the World Club Challenge. (laughs) 
subtle. <laughs> uh, but in a year of great personal success for Girdler, there was one major award that he missed out on uh, and actually lost to one of his Panthers teammates, and that was uh, Rugby League's Sexiest Man Award. So it was a, a stacked field at Miranda Fair, uh, the lineup including uh, Matt Adamson and Ryan Girdler at Penrith, Solomon Hamono, Michael Gillette, Ken McGuinness, Nathan Brown, Luke Ricketson, and Jack Ellsgood. And we had a few bona fide studs in that group and a couple of um, making up the numbers there, I reckon, as well. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> definitely some there that are, are you know, happy to be there. But uh, so Matt Adamson, the winner, which knocking out Jack Ellsgood and Luke Ricketson, that is impressive. Well, I don't think Rico was the known stud there until like late career and retirement. That's when he really No, no, off. no. No, I can uh, provide evidence to the contrary because yeah. I think it might have been in like 92, 93 when he was like, you know, just entering the league. That is simply the best commercial. He was ah, featured right. saying, um, I just want to meet Tina Turner. Right, right. <laughs> and my mum, who couldn't name a single rugby league player otherwise, uh, she really took a shine to that wow. moment and Luke Ricketson from that moment on. So. Uh, my mum's favourite rugby league player, Luke Richardson. No wonder you hate East. <laughs> Definitely a handsome gentleman. But um, Nathan Brown, see, I, I never got the Nathan Brown thing even with the Barnet. You know, like uh, to me, he was just like a Louis Spicoli looking little surf grommet. But um, I actually know a girl, an acquaintance that um, had a Ronnie with him back in the day in uh, Foster. <laughs> and that was her claim to fame. But um, it was only a Did little... she give, give an evaluation? No, no. She's a gentlewoman, but... Um, <laughs> She's not too gentle to brag about it, but the um they only had a little Ronnie because then we just met they couldn't have a big one, which is a, yeah. a great <laughs> Ronnie Rude quote. <laughs> and and kind of ties into Brown's later quote about Wayne Bennett thinking with his little head, not his big head. <laughs> yeah, so I think Brownie was lucky to be there. Oh, I'm going to defend Brownie here. I think the word I would use to describe him in this era was spunk rat. I think maybe <laughs> maybe he's more of like a, a late 80s kind of peak, that style, but like I can see that the girl's getting behind him. Well, him and Sterlow, I never got it. Like To me, they look like um, heartthrobs in Memphis wrestling in the 70s, like just ugly blokes <laughs> that are somehow heartthrobs. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but Matt Adamson, a deserved winner. He'd actually done some modelling in the past, so, you know, he wasn't green. He should have been excluded. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he did his cause uh, no favours when, in the interview portion, he declared that he liked skinny women, <laughs> but then tried to win them back by saying that actually, like, Princess Di was the woman of his dreams, God almighty. Uh, and then went on to proclaim his love for his mother. So this was the sensitive New Age guy era. <laughs> I think that might have assisted in getting him over the line. <laughs> But again, you know, moving on from Sexiest Man, it was a great year on field for Adamson too. Uh, so he made his New South Wales and Australian debuts and was actually one of the few players to play in all five Australian Super League tests. Wow. So there were five ever Super League tests played uh, involving Australia. And so the players who played in all five were Laurie Daly, Craig Gower, Ken Nagus, Wendell Saylor, Darren Smith, Brad Thorne, and Matt Adamson. He was one of the guys that wasn't a lucky selection in half a comp. You deserved to be there. Yeah, I think in a United comp, he would have been making his New South Wales start there too and, you know, probably 
playing for Australia as well. So really good player. Maybe similar to Pulitua where like he never got to the heights that you maybe thought he was going to get at, yeah. at certain points. But I think he had a lesser career than Pulitua, but yeah, um, yeah. I was a big Phil Adamson fan. I love an offload, right, from the Cartwright mm. days. And he was more like a halfback in a forwards body, <laughs> Phil Adamson. But his brother ran really hard as well. And um, yeah. I just really loved watching them. Yeah, and a leading player manager now. Is he? Yeah. But overall, it was just a middling season for the Panthers. They had a bad injury run, lost a bit of momentum over the course of the season. Finished fifth in Super League almost by default. You know, they kind of fell over the line, managed to, you know, win a semi-final, but I don't think they would have done much in a United comp, you know, maybe like on the edge of the finals or finishing, you know, 10th or 11th. So just a, a middling year for the Panthers overall. The same is true for their semi-final opponents, the Bulldogs. So they were in a state of flux. So Terry Lamb was gone for good this time. He was embracing his off-field role uh, with a marketing job, uh, going like really hard at it, including <laughs> insisting on overseeing the cheerleading auditions. <laughs> so a, a true clubman. Can you imagine being like an 18-year-old girl dancer dancing in front of bar <laughs> with that, <laughs> that body shape and like, it would have just been hilarious. <laughs> But so with Terry Lamb gone, how were they going to replace him was the big issue. There was a, a humorous story in the Super League magazine which involved Chris Anderson being a, approached by a drunk Dogs fan, you know, telling him what the Dogs need to do to turn their season around and said, two quick passes from dummy half and you're around the defence. All you need is someone like Terry Lamb at dummy half, to which Anderson <laughs> responded, well, have you seen one of those running around? <laughs> One of the great rugby league tropes is the uh, arsehole in the pub explaining what to do. I, I love it. <laughs> I've been the guy and um, I want to do it again. But that's a serious point. I mean, you're losing probably two tries a game just from him backing up. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so they were unsettled in the halves all season. So Craig Polamana played about half the season at halfback, half the season at 5'8". Travis Norton and Glenn Hughes both spent time at 5'8". Duncan McRae was there. Barry Berrigan playing some games at half. So by the end of the year, it was clear that they didn't have enough in the halves, determined they needed to make a change, trying to you know develop players or buy players, ended up spending the next couple of years with various Hughes brothers filling the role. The Dogs had better luck in the backs. This was the year that Hazem El-Masri emerged, a breakout year for him as well. It's really crazy the hype about El-Masri in this year as a player. So the goal-kicking success was still years off. The way El Masri is talked about throughout this year, it's really remarkable when, you know, I think of Hazem as a goal-kicker first and as a winger, I think, you know, solid and dependable, but not like an excitement machine or anything. But he was being talked about as, you know, a phenomenon. He was being talked about as emerging as a genuine star. One story I liked, I read it in multiple publications over the year. So he really made his mark uh, at a schoolboy game in 1994, uh, playing for Belmore Boys High. A player's put up a bomb, Hazem has run through, jumped into the air, turned around, did a flying scissor kick to kick the ball into the goal area, regathers, gets on his feet, runs through, and puts the ball down for a try. Amazing. 
So um, Billy Johnston, who was the dog's trainer who was there, said it was the best try he's ever seen at any level. Uh, Gary Hughes said, you know, no one will ever believe it, but we saw it. It happened. So I guess maybe within the dogs, that hype had been there pretty much from that moment on. <laughs> I mean, would you recommend bringing the scissor kick into the first grade? Or? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it has the potential to go very wrong, but, uh, you know, a spectacular play anyway. But so all year, he was battling with Matt Ryan to take out the Super League's top try scorer award. He was considered a genuine chance of making the Australian squad. So it was just a really exciting time for the dogs with him there. And I mentioned Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan actually won that battle in the end and took out Super League's top try scorer. We spoke about him before, but I think he's got to be one of the true success stories of Super League, right? Mm. Came of age, um, got recognition. It was another one of those players where he was such a classy player. Anytime we've watched him in the season recaps we've done from 94 onwards, he's looked so good. Like he was a really good player who could never stay on the field. Yeah. And this was basically the one year of his career where he did. So he had a full season. His quote on it at the time was, it's a bit of a learning process for me. I'm not used to playing a full season. So the <laughs> highs and lows of coming up in week in, week out is something I haven't had to cope with before. So he put it together, made three tri-series appearances for New South Wales. It was kind of like, you know, the proof in the pudding for a player who would promise so much. But sadly, it, it never got as good again, like more injuries and, you know, his career just ended up fizzling out. But like really, really good player. Yeah, but it warms the heart to me that some guys don't get any chance to get a full run for a year and just get injured out of the game. He got that moment in the sun like that. And plus, yeah, he, had yeah. The, he had the Canterbury Grand Finals and whatever. But um, yep. oh, yeah, I'm really happy for him for this year. And just that back line in general, like you put, you know, add in Halligan, John Timu, and, and Rod Silva. It's just Jones. like this, yeah, really like solid players who weren't spectacular, but. They were steady, they were consistent, and as a unit, it was just like a really strong backline. I always rooted for Halligan as a player, not as a kicker. Yeah. Like, he's so underrated and so unfashionable. Yeah. He always delivered. He'd crash over, he'd, he'd finish properly, he'd, he wouldn't drop the ball, you know? Good yeah. Good winger. Yeah, well, uh, Chris Anderson's assessment was, he's the sort of player who really helps a coach. He's organized, professional, durable, a club man. He works hard on his fitness and goal kicking, and is the sort of bloke that gets in and sets up social functions for the team. Legend. So he's just universally known as a good bloke and a positive influence in the dressing room, as well as being an asset off the field. So Lynn Anderson said, we've had players who've been good with sponsors, but Daryl took it one level higher. He did our deal with RM Williams. We wanted classy <laughs> team outfits. He approached them and got them on board. He's a real <laughs> asset. What a legend. Yeah, I know. Hey. So, uh, Lynn, I'm looking at some moleskins for uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> round 12. <laughs> Friend of the show, Craig Norenbergs, actually worked with Daryl Halligan at the ABC and said he was just like a, an awesome bloke. And he had his kicking tea business that, you know, was really successful. So he had some entrepreneurial uh, abilities as well. Is Halligan the um, non-obnoxious ridge of the team? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you really couldn't get further apart, could you? Uh, beyond the backs, there was some good emerging talent in the forwards with Solomon Homono switching to the dogs, getting the reputation as being the game's biggest hitter. 
had a huge tackle on Michael Hancock late in the season that was the biggest hit in either comp. Played for New South Wales and Australia, but you know his form dwindled towards the end of the year. Pleasure Machine happened in 1998, and there's an emerging trend for players we've talked about this season. Hamono's another one that it never got as good for him again as it was in 1997. Shout out to Gabrielle Richens. Yeah. She was the MVP of the comp that year, but um, <laughs> he was scary when he yeah. burst onto the scene as a hitter, a torpedo. Yeah. Like, imagine playing against that in that era. Oh, yeah. And when we talk about the, the you know early kind of Polynesian influence, one of the few things I remember from the Super League season was billboards that were plastered all over the place advertising the dogs and Super League. And it was like Hamono, from memory, he was like in a cage or something and, you know, this menacing face. Uh, But I think he was kind of becoming like, you know, someone really marketable as well, you know, finalist in the sexiest man too. So it's just a shame we never got the career we could have got from him. Well, that story you brought out a few years back about the descent into drugs hell, I mean, that was harrowing Mm. and um, the impact on his family and whatever. But he's another example of... When they all say, oh, just let them have a good time and party with their mates. You know, their mates are doing it. Why don't they do it? For every Freddie and Joey or whatever, that, you know, and Mark Guy that have turned out to be good blokes, there's a dozen guys that have, like, whose lives have been destroyed by it. So, yeah. It's, yeah. it's horrible. And the thing about it is, it's often the guys who are hanging out with Freddie and Joey and seeing them being out all night and then winning man and match the next day. So they kind of think, you know, oh, well, well, he's doing it like that. But, you know, not many players can actually do that. And, and I feel you get so many derailed careers from that sort of thing happening within a dressing room. Yeah, I mean, so when they're really harsh on the testing and whatever, I'm like, good, save some lives. Yeah. Uh, one player who was a fantastic dressing room influence was Steve Price. And I feel in every episode we do, there's one word I overuse. And when I listen back, I cringe about how many times <laughs> I use that word. Uh, like? Definitely in this episode, it is breakout because uh, it was a breakout year for Steve Price. So uh, one of many players to stamp his authority and become solidified as a first grader and then paving the way for you know heights beyond that in seasons to come. If you asked me in, in that era about one player who's going to be a Jap, just a player um, in first grade, compared to what he ended up, he would be the one. Yeah, yeah. Amazing career. And probably like another one who it, it took everyone a few years to catch up to what a good player he was. But it almost didn't happen. He all but signed with the Cowboys after struggling to nail down a place in the team. So he was not really getting along with Chris Anderson, found himself you know, in reserve grade on the bench, playing out of position and just not really knowing whether he had a future within the Dogs. He actually requested a release from the Bulldogs and was going to sign with the Cowboys before the Bulldogs eventually changed their mind and didn't release him. What could have been for the Cowboys? Yeah, that would have been a perfect signing for them. But it was interesting, in his book he talks about confronting Anderson after the 1996 season and saying, I don't know what I've got to do. You know, it seems nothing I do is ever good enough. Uh, And Anderson's response, I I really found this interesting. He said, do you know that in all my time here, there have only been two other players that have had me at a loss as to how to get the best out of them. Those two are Darren and Jason Smith. And I don't know whether to leave them alone, talk to them, yell at them or whatever. 
You're the same. I've given up. I've tried everything. I've yelled at you. I've abused you and none of it's worked. I've yelled at you. I've abused you and that hasn't worked. Well, <laughs> Is there any other options besides? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then Price went on to say, you know, why aren't I getting a start? And Anderson said, until you believe you're a first grader, you're not going to get a start in first grade. And Steve Price went away and thought about it and thought, he's actually right. I'm going into games in awe of the players I'm playing with and against. And I need to, you know, just focus on the game and believe in my abilities as a first grade player. So he was right, Chris Anderson. Yeah. Price was actually a second rower at that point. And he got put into the front row by Anderson, which subsequently made his career. Well, he was one of the first of the mobile front rowers, right? Yeah. It went from big bopper era to um, athletic era. Yeah. One of my favorite stories of the dog season uh, concerns Steve Price. So when we do our ARL recap, we're going to cover a fiasco in the Commonwealth Bank Cup where <laughs> a, a fight in one of the televised games threatened to ruin the competition and have Commonwealth Bank pull out of the sponsorship. When that happened, Steve Price, who'd played in the final when he was at uh, Harristown High in Toowoomba, he was really upset and concerned about the competition falling apart. So he rang Peter Sterling to say, is there anything I can do? Which is a nice thing to do. But Sterlo uh, made the mistake of mentioning that on the Sunday footy show, saying, you know, this young bloke, Steve Price, he called me up and said, is there anything I can do? Uh, to which the rest of the dogs, uh, using that as an excuse for uh, the G-Up culture to <laughs> take over and basically for the rest of the year, they'd always go up to Price and say, you know, is there anything I can do? Is there anything <laughs> I can do? <laughs> There's a, quite a few similarities between the G-Up culture and the moron culture. <laughs> <laughs> It says so much about that mentality that, you know, Price, a genuinely good guy, worried about the future of the game and the junior competitions, uh, you know, does this effort and the rest of the players are like mocking him for it. <laughs> That's rugby league to a T. But he took it in good spirit and due to that, you know, innate kind of niceness or good bloke-itis, he was probably always going to cop it. So he talks about an earlier incident when he was playing President's Cup and he was playing his first game as captain of the team against South. And at the end of the game, he turned to the other guys and said, three cheers for South. And everyone on his team and on South like, were looking at him like, you know, what is this idiot doing? (laughs) Like sportsmanship and um, yeah, being a nice guy doesn't get you kudos in yeah. <laughs> So again, it was a middling season for the Dogs overall. Notable maybe for uh, Chris Anderson's influence at restoring that balance to the speed of the game and the play the ball interpretation. He was one of the coaches that was vocal about Super League going too far in trying to speed up the ruck. This was his quote on it. We believe the refs were too keen to quicken it up and therefore they were penalising good defensive sides. If you can dominate the ruck area in defence, then you should have the right to slow the game down as much as you want within the rules. So I think in being vocal about it, he definitely played a part. The interesting thing in that quote is that the dogs were very much not a good defensive side. So they had the third worst defensive record in Super League and... In the ARL, they were in front of only the Rabbitohs and Crushers in terms of points conceded per game. 
So they were a bad defensive team, were one half of the 48 to 36, 15 try debacle against the Mariners, which got a lot of headlines for, you know, being the Super League experience in a nutshell. Some cheap points for ARL supporters to talk about it being touch football. And they were right. Yeah. Yeah. So the Daily Telegraph's headline about that game was actually touch football. And the word fast is used several times in the article too. <laughs> Let me ask you this. If you're from the Australian Touch Football Federation reading that, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an absolute joke. Yeah. <laughs> Especially now that Touch Football is aligned with the NRL. I wonder if they're like extra sensitive to it now within the NRL about journalists not talking about league being like Touch Football. <laughs> But the Bulldogs were the ones who got 48. So Hunter Mariners lost after scoring 36 points. 36 seems to be the magic number in terms of losing rugby league scores. And at this point, I'm going to do my semi-regular shout-out to the Rugby League Project, which, as I've said many times, we could not do our show without. So jump onto their Patreon and think about supporting because it's like truly an amazing resource that we can't take for granted. But well worth it. Shout out to the Rugby League Project. But so in addition to that game, in 2005, the Bulldogs lost 37 to 36 to the Tigers. In 2010, the Titans beat the Knights 38 to 36. And the Titans also beat the Storm 38 to 36 in 2017. And no one has ever scored more points and lost a game in the you know hundred and whatever years of the New South Wales Rugby League slash NRL. It's a lot of points. Yeah, it's a huge amount of points. But that is probably the one you know notable thing about the Dogs' on-field season, similar to the Panthers, was semi-finalists almost by default, looking at the quality of the bottom five. Uh, a couple of things happening off-field are probably more notable in terms of the Dogs' season. Firstly was the so-called Battle of Belmore, which was a really disturbing incident that broke out in a game at June in a, at Belmore at a Dogs-Panthers match where a fight broke out on the Terry Lamb family hill, fights between fans and police. There were estimates of like, you know, 500 or so people involved. Police actually drawing guns, which, <laughs> you know, you never want to see in a, in a rugby league game. Yeah, that was nasty, that was. But I always come back to this, they want to blame the club all the time. What are the club doing? It's like, you can't help if, like, a bunch of antisocial psychos buy tickets to your game. It could happen to anybody. Yeah. And looking at the dogs' actions before and after, you can see some missteps they made, but some really good things too. So I just want to talk through what happened and what ultimately became of it. So firstly, it wasn't a one-off incident. There'd been warnings of potential for trouble with a certain element of the dogs crowd so matt ryan had actually been confronted by a group in the belmore car park in 1996 and uh, his quote was they'd been there for a schoolboy match and were a bad element i had some trouble with them these kids have no respect it's more than a sporting problem earlier in 1997 dogs officials were using hazamel masri to you know walk through the crowd and try to talk to some of the bad element having had a couple of bad incidents. Are you tiptoeing around the fact that it's a cultural uh, issue there? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I mean, okay, so it was a small minority of the Lebanese Bulldogs supporters that were causing the issue. The dogs were actively 
involved in trying to fix it. So, you know, Ray Dib was there with a group of um, supporters trying to, you know, quell some of the issues among some of the younger fans who were causing the trouble. But my point is with Canterbury, right? Like in Newcastle, there's been times when there's been groups of drunken country boys causing trouble. You know, it's like, what do you do? Go to the crowd and go, you don't look very... um friendly, uh, you're banned. You can't do that. So no, I don't know yeah. what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So when it happened, you know, it was one of the games that was marketed as a multicultural occasion. So flyers and ads were produced in over a dozen languages. And, you know, it was one of their regular multicultural celebrations. When it all goes bad, the first thing, you know, people in the press are doing it, are talking about this multiculturalism was a concern. It could lead to a you know, NSL-style, race-based... Like, we don't you know, want flares. We don't want that. No, yeah, exactly. So there were predictable calls that it had gone too far and they had to dial it back because it was causing problems. But, like, the multicultural thing was they were pioneers in that and, and brought a lot of new people to the game. It's a really great thing. So I don't know yeah. how they're planning that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to their credit, Canterbury never thought of wavering in their belief in the concept. So their next home game actually happened to be a World Club Challenge match against Wigan, and they expressly said, we're not banning Lebanese flags, we're not banning English flags, you know, we're a multicultural fan base and we celebrate that. And I think that was something really good they did in acknowledging problems within the fan base, but not using that to tar the whole fan base or trying to walk away from the strategy that they developed over a number of years. Uh, and they ended up, they had a bit of problems in that game, and we obviously saw problems over the next few years, but I like the way the dogs kind of overcame that without sacrificing the spirit that they built within the community. So that was a bad look for the dogs at that time. I wouldn't, won't say it's a bad look, but a typical look for the dogs was drama within the family. So... Uh, Chris Anderson making his way out of Canterbury and stepping on some toes in the process. So basically, the drama came to a head when Chris Anderson walked into an under-19 selection meeting and demanded that his son, Ben Anderson, be selected to play halfback over Corey Hughes. How many sons of club legends have caused feuds? And the Hughes family had genuine claims to be upset, not only the fact that Chris Anderson has nothing to do with under-19 selections otherwise, so what's he doing there in the first place? But secondly, Corey Hughes was the captain of the New South Wales under-19s at halfback, so he'd proven himself at that level as you know having the, the runs on the board and the coach has come in and said he needs to be moved on. But it's interesting in terms of where Corey Hughes ultimately spent his playing career, you know, which was almost exclusively at hooker in first grade. So, you know, Chris Anderson knew something about his ultimate abilities. Yeah. But regardless, Gary Hughes, the patriarch, wasn't happy. And basically, after that, Chris Anderson and Gary Hughes didn't speak to each other for months. It wasn't just the Ben Anderson matter. Gary thought that Glenn and Stephen weren't being given a proper go in first grade either. <laughs> Already, you can just see like how easy it is for everything to fall apart when you've got so many family members involved in a club. Absolutely. Manly and Canterbury, just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately, it all fell apart after 
the dogs were knocked out by the Panthers in the semifinals. So they were having their, you know, post-match drinks where Glenn Hughes uh, came up to Chris Anderson and said, why don't you get out of the club? Everybody hates you here. (laughs) (laughs) So things deteriorated, almost devolved into a physical fight. Uh, Chris Anderson played down how serious it was. He said, as I see it, it's just one of those things that happen at any football club. Sometimes after a few drinks, things can get out of hand and emotion gets the better of people. It happens. But you see, like, the difference when you excuse your own physical altercation and then condemn the uh, crowd altercations, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like (laughs) they're both obnoxious. (laughs) I mean, in the Anderson defence, I don't think police had to pull guns on on Glenn Hughes. I reckon there would have been something like, get out of the club now, I like shit. It's like, oh, get fucked, mate, you're a rat bag. Get out of here, you're a rat bag. (laughs) So Stephen Hughes, for his part, also played it down, said, you know, firstly, I've never had any problems with Chris Anderson. Uh, I don't have any beef with him. But then he does have a, you know, not so subtle dig at the way things fell out. He said, all I know is Corey was moved out of his position as Canterbury's halfback at Chris's insistence, even though he had nothing to do with the team. Corey captained the New South Wales under-19 side, but he was moved to hooker. So, you know, making sure it was known that the Hughes family had some genuine claims of grievance. We've been to harsh on Anderson throughout this series at times, but he's right on Steve Price, it turns out, and he was right on Corey Hughes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so this was all happening as the bullfrog situation was devolving. Uh, we don't need to go into the board rivalry concerning bullfrog again. Although, look, we really did scratch the surface. I could spend 10 more episodes on discussing Bullfrog's years at the Dogs, but we won't <laughs> do that now. Um, but basically, this was all happening at the same time. So Chris Anderson wasn't happy with elements within the club. Bullfrog was on the outer. Anderson being very close to Bullfrog, it meant that the signs were there that Canterbury's future was not going to involve Chris Anderson. His quote on the situation when it was clear he was leaving was, I think when Bullfrog went, I clung on to all those Canterbury values, but the club was moving in a different direction. I was not upset with Canterbury at all. I'd had a couple of little blues with a couple of blokes. I wanted to stay in the direction we had been. There are times in history when people need to go their different ways. Peter had gone and they just wanted to go in a different direction. I was a bit of a dinosaur. So on top of Chris Anderson falling out, Lynn Anderson was also caught up in the crossfire with one of those board factions not happy with her performance as marketing manager. <laughs> I won't have the good name of Lynn Anderson smeared <laughs> in a boardroom brawl, but um, she was behind the multicultural thing. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, so, so exactly. Give her props for that. Yeah. In saying that, is there a chance that there might be a better marketing qualified person in Australia that wasn't Bullfrog's daughter? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So as it turns out, the writing was on the wall. Chris Anderson decides that he was leaving and headed to Melbourne. Uh, He said of the matter, there's a little bit of Burke and Wills in me, a bit of pioneering stuff. But what excited me most about Melbourne was the fact it was starting from scratch and we could sort of build a team to exactly how we wanted it. Well, there was a bit of Burke and Wills in his coaching career because it died in the wilderness. (laughs) But I just love all the talk from Anderson. You know, the dogs are going in a different direction and that direction happened to be a different bullfrog (laughs) son-in-law. 
<laughs> so Steve folks comes in as coach and you know went on to have some great success narrowly missing out on the coaching job was Steve Mortimer who the anti-Moore faction which was Gary McIntyre and the Hughes were boosting Mortimer they wanted him to get in over Bullfrog's son-in-law perhaps for obvious reasons but Steve folks got the job and Turvey had to fall back on his shuffleboard empire and (laughs) this is another quote that that really has no place in our story but is too good to leave out so when he was talking about uh, shuffleboard Mortimer said that he was you know recently in Melbourne for an inter-village shuffleboard competition with a winning team of a man and three women and uh Steve Mortimer's quote was the bloke said he was so happy that he felt like Michael Flatley, the Irish dancer who wants to make love after a performance. He told me he wanted to bonk all three of his teammates. <laughs> what the hell? Just thinking with that shuffleboard, it's like they run the club manly as well. They run Canterbury like a Sicilian mafia family. Yeah, all yeah. married and whatever. And then yep. the Itais love the bocce and then Toby's <laughs> on the shuffleboard, you know? Like. <laughs> so... The Anderson era falls out in typical Canterbury style. And I want to close the Anderson section with a quote from Dean Ritchie, who said, A bizarre few weeks has ensured the demise of Canterbury's image as the happy family club. No longer will Canterbury be seen as the epitome of a trouble-free organisation. Dean Ritchie is a professional journalist who, with a straight face, called Canterbury the epitome of a trouble-free organisation. I mean, think about that. And the last thing I'll say of Canterbury before we move on is a glimpse of trouble ahead, uh, a quote from the Rugby League Week in July 1997. The Telegraph reports that Canterbury Bankstown Leagues Club are set to lodge an application to build a $150 million sports super centre in Liverpool. So the Oasis project is a story for another day but we will move on to the Canberra Raiders. So as I said at the start, the Raiders were coming into 1997 with a new coach, that being Mal Meninga. So one of those weird situations where he was coaching so many of his old teammates, hadn't coached any scenes. Never works. I mean, he made a good fist of it and didn't have any, you know, top level coaching experience or, you know, he hadn't coached the lower grades. It was kind of like, appointed on on reputation alone and I think overall considering he was coaching so many of his former teammates considering the Raiders were kind of entering a new era you have to say he actually did a fairly decent job as their coach agreed yeah some guys are so respected as a player they can do it they can generate that respect but um I just it can't work long term yeah yeah coaching your mates yeah and I think maybe because he was that bit older than the other players in the team in that, you know, 94 era Canberra team, maybe it made his job a bit easier to step in as coach. He was an elder statesman for sure. But yeah. And 34. So yeah. it's a good point. But I think it's definitely a mark of the esteem in which he's held in the game that he was able to just jump in and there were no raised eyebrows or, you know, concerns about putting players out or, or anything like that. It, it was just accepted that he was the coach and he had the respect. You'd have to be pretty strong to raise Mel's eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a changing of the guard in Canberra. So in addition to Tim Sheen's 
heading up to Townsville. 1997 was kind of the beginning of an exodus that would really ramp up over the next couple of years with players moving on. Of the 1997 losses, so it was Steve Walters, John Lomax, Mark Corvo, and Steve Stone. So you could say like only Walters and, you know, Lomax to a lesser extent was like a, you know, massive loss. And history shows that it was the right time for Walters to move on as well. So I think Lomax as well. I'm not going to call them dead wood, but you want to get people before they decline, right? Get them out of there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that set the pattern for the next few years in Canberra. Uh, One player who'd leave at the end of 1997 was Quentin Pongia. And I just really like this quote. I just thought it was really sweet. He was talking about John Lomax and he said, mate, I didn't know we'd become such good friends until he left. Whenever I see the big bugger around, it just reminds me how good we went together. Quentin beloved, if you're a camera yeah. fan, he's just underrated around the comp, I think, still. But Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And the two of them together, not that they managed to be on the park at the same time too often. <laughs> they were good. <laughs> uh, but so it was really at hooker that you really saw the emergence of some players with Walters departing. And... It's a pretty crazy production line of hookers in Canberra in the 90s. So Steve Walters were there. You had Jason Deeth, Steve Stone, who, you know, both made way when they couldn't get Walters out. Then Simon Wolford emerges, and he's considered in the box seat to be the new long-term Canberra hooker, was even talked about being a rep hooker in 1997. But then suddenly in comes Luke Prittis as well. Incredible. Prittis goes on to make his New South Wales debut in 97 when Craig Gowers ruled out for one of the Tri-Series games. It's really bad luck when your development's going that well and in a position where you can only have one or two yeah, maximum. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really terrible luck. <laughs> Why can't they be second rowers? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, one second rower they had was Ben Kennedy, who really arrived on the scene in 1997. And with Clyde and Ferner, made up like a pretty phenomenal back row. One of the all-time great rugby league players, and he's a union convert, so... Yeah, yeah. I love Ben Kennedy so much. Talking union, union, there was big rumours in 1997 about him going back to rugby union. So he was off contract at the end of 97 and was viewed as being a certainty to be going to the Waratahs. Imagine that, the career he had after that, if he went yeah. to union and... And I put him with like Rex Mossop and Ray Price as guys that you just, it doesn't make sense that they were Raras. No. But unfortunately, he broke his arm late in the season, which probably went some way to, you know, stopping the Raiders when they'd gained some momentum because it was a really super back row and he was a key part of it. But, you know, a real breakout year, there's that word again, for Ben Kennedy. Alternating between back row and front row was Brett Hetherington who by 1997 had taken on a more senior role and was, you know, a young veteran. Underrated. Yeah. So he got the only rep jersey of his career that year playing for Australia in the nines. It's surprising that he never got, you know, a country jersey or whatever because he was a really good player. He defined the description raw bone forward. Mm. And off the field was married to Brett Mullins' sister. There's a brother-in-law you want to, uh, yeah. <laughs> you want to keep at arm's length there. <laughs> And speaking of Mullins, but we will keep this brief because anytime we talk about Brett Mullins tends to go on. And I think we've said all we have to say on the matter. But interesting, like he didn't play a single game at fullback in 1997. I found that so weird. 
it must have been his attitude or something at training or whatever, because to go from where he was at fullback to back to the centers, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, Ken Nagus was a great player, but I don't know. It's just so weird to me that Brett Mullins had fallen that far in the pecking order. Nothing against Ken Nagus at fullback. That's a dream as well. But to have Kenny on the wing and, uh, mm. and Malos at the back, that's what you're wanting, both in peak form. Yeah. So played centre for the Raiders, played on the wing for New South Wales, which was the only rep games he had that year, and was widely believed to be shopped around for 1998. Of course, he was retained in the end, but it was a sign of how far his star had fallen that, you know, that was even on the table. Yeah. Uh, Laurie Daly, on the other hand, was just as good as he ever was. Won Super League's Player of the Year award. He's just such a great player. Like, I think that is one of my key takeaways from this series is that he's very rated as a player, but he's still underrated. Like, I think he is a genuine great. I'd have him ahead of Brad Fittler in my Immortals pecking order. And I think it is this Super League period that makes people forget. Like, you tend to think of him just as, you know, kind of 89 to 94. But, like, here he is in 1997, still an elite, elite player. One of those guys that if he's in the lineup, they're 12 points, 16 points better. They're they're a chance of winning. If he's not in the lineup, just forget about it. Yeah. Um, but I actually think with all the injuries he had, if he was injured during the Super League season, Super League would have been for the dogs. I reckon yeah. he saved them just being like a gun. Yeah, totally. I mean, because that's something that, and I think you get this every year, but, you know, Glenn Lazarus was out for the season late in the year. You know, Alan Langer spent time injured. Brandy was out. Ricky Stewart was out. So they were down a fair bit of star power across the board, not just yeah. having the split comps. So you needed a champion there and there the whole way, and Laurie Daly was that champion. And you just know he was playing like 75% probably, so... Yeah, yeah. And still dominating. Yeah. His longtime partner at Canberra, Bradley Clyde, was probably moving into a different position of his career, but that is maybe not just to do with him getting older, but also the role he had to take on with some of the players moving on a bit less you know, firepower in the forwards. He needed to take on more grunt work and was, you know, kind of like had a Mr. Fix-It role. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I seem to remember two distinct body shapes, like uh, mobile Iron Man Bradley Clyde and then sort of rather stout prop middle forward Bradley Clyde. Yeah, I mean, by the time he got to the dogs, he was almost a completely different player. Yeah. But so I'm bringing all these up because I think it's important to put this Canberra team in context where the stars of that early run had either moved on or were coming into a different part of their career. And that's true of Bradley Clyde. And it's really true of Ricky Stewart, who had another injury erupted, interrupted year after a similar one in 1996. And when he was on the park, was struggling to get back to his best. His running game deserted him after the injuries, really. Yeah. So he just become a nearly a pure distributor. So it was like yeah. he was a target. And if you haven't got your other option to break the line, they're just going to envelop you. Yeah, for sure. And I think Stewart is definitely one you can say is a 89 to 94 type career. Like he never played another rep game after 1994, which he would have played for New South Wales and possibly Australia in Super League, if not for injury. So it's just one of those funny quirks where someone who was such a great player regarded as one of the great halfbacks of all time and effectively had a five-year 
rep career and that was it? Well, if you just happen to be listening to this episode randomly and not the other uh, 80 hours of content, um, my favorite player of all time, love the guy <laughs> on the field. Um, but he changed the game with passing and kicking. But by this time, the rest of the league had caught up to that. Joey, yeah. those sort of guys, and they were better kickers than him and they were as good a passers as him. Mm. So he didn't have that same sort of cachet by this point either. Yeah. Uh, speaking of you like him on the field, what do you make of this quote? So he was looking to improve his form and make some changes and sought counsel from Warren Ryan. Uh, and his reasoning was, <laughs> I regard Warren Ryan as a good bloke. <laughs> that to me says it all. But, um, <laughs> I agree with Stick on that assessment too. Yeah. And certainly the second part of that quote was also a man who knows a lot about the game. And you won't find many disagreements there. But I just thought that was so funny, <laughs> thinking of Ricky We've, Stewart. <laughs> he was dubbed the game's best thinker in his um, Telegraph byline, which used to crack me up, the arrogance of that byline. But yeah, <laughs> he was a really great thinker. And all the great thinkers in rugby league all gravitated towards Wok, mm. Gus, yep. Joey, Sticky, you know. So yeah, yeah, everyone's around this guy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> But so all in all, it was a mixed year for Canberra. It started really badly with four losses in a row to open the season. Uh, Laurie Daly's assessment stands out. He said, we stay at the nice hotels, we fly everywhere, we get everything spoon-fed to us, and we go out and play like a bunch of Sheilas. <laughs> Shout out to the uh, women's NRL. <laughs> and I think it kind of all points to... They were a great team on the slide. I think that is pretty clear as to how, you know, their form progressed during the 90s. Also, you can understand as a kind of veteran team, slow to catch up with the Super League style of play. So Stewart admits that he said, we didn't adapt to the Super League way of playing football as quickly as some other teams did. We were still wrestling <laughs> in tackles when we had the ball, trying to gain an extra meter or two to get an arm free to pass. As much as we mock uh, rugby league players for never adapting to rule changes, they actually pulled the rug out of the game on them. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. It's an entirely new game to play, so I feel for them on that account. Yeah. And to their credit, they did catch up. So after that four-game losing streak, ended up going on a, a long winning run and late in the season were viewed as favourites to be in the grand final, if not win it. So it was a good year, and it's to me, it's the ultimate what-if. So... Cronulla obviously earned their spot in that grand final, but it just would have been so perfect having Canberra versus Brisbane finally playing in a grand final and having that being the Super League grand final. Yeah, but in, in the same sense, it would have been Brisbane had an unbeatable team and Canberra had like a declining team, like you already said. So I think the boat was missed on the Super matchup. Yeah, yeah. 93 would have been the year. Yeah. So basically, they were a clear third best team in the comp, but... You know, there was some distance between them and Brisbane and Cronulla. So a couple of off-field things are probably the most interesting things that I want to take away from the Raiders season. The firstly was the drama involving Noah Nandruku. You can't think of a more obvious fan favourite than Noah Nandruku, the way he burst onto the scene and the place he held within that Raiders team. Electric vibes when he came out. It was incredible. Yeah, and just an irresistible story. So Tim Sheen's quote was, here's a man plucked out of a tiny village in Fiji five years ago who's developed into one of the most exciting talents modern rugby league has seen. 
And certainly within Canberra, just this year, he was elevated to the Canberra Raiders Hall of Fame um, and honoured there. But the story of Noah in 1997 is not a good one. And it all starts with a nightclub incident in February where he was charged with assault after decking his wife and king-hitting two young women who were complete strangers. <laughs> In his defense, right, I'm going to come out, he was blind. <laughs> uh, well, that it's interesting to you say those words in his defense because that is a big part of the story. But uh, the court recorded it as an act of drunken thuggery, which, you know, says it all. And the sad part is it wasn't a first defense. So, I didn't know this at the time, but he'd actually been charged with assault and fined $500 three years earlier after breaking a woman's nose and giving her stitches in her mouth. Fucking hell. Yeah. So he had form and it's horrible. And (laughs) And it's basically swept under the carpet. Yeah. Like it totally swept under the carpet. And the really strange thing for me is the fact that this incident happens in February. It's reported at the time, but then it basically disappears in the press until the court case at the end of the year. So it's just such a different era when a story like this could be reported and then just drop out of the news for nine months until, you know, there's an update to the story. Yeah, there was a culture back then with journalists. You could do that. You could kill a story. Yeah. Um, Social media days, you can never do that now. No. Yeah. And so you can understand, like, with such a different media climate like i think the no fault stand down policy like it's really complicated and fraught in terms of execution but you understand the need for something like that to be put in place because you just can't have a player running around playing all year facing charges for like yeah like you know for good reason like we just can't have that in the game it's a fucking outrage right? yeah. think about that. But, I mean, um, there was one of the great rugby league telegraph combo headlines when they had all these drinks lined up on the front page. Of like yeah. 35, so, 35 yeah, drinks. so I've got the figures here. So, in an 11-hour drinking binge, Noah had 28 schooners, half a dozen stubbies, and half a bottle of wine. The wine part always got me. Yeah. It's like, um, you know what I feel like? I just did yeah, yeah, yeah. something sophisticated after these <laughs> 28 schooners. <laughs> And so basically that formed the basis of his defense. And he actually got acquitted because he was found to have committed the act, the act of drunken thuggery, but the degree of intoxication was such that he didn't know what he was doing and couldn't have formed any intent to commit the offenses. Well, the autonomy of your faculties is a key point there. So it's like... um legally it's sound right that argument but um morally it's it's like yeah don't have 28 schooners you're limited and because it is a legal thing there's precedence involved and so there was a high court decision in 1980 the o'connor case where that evidence had been accepted so the magistrate's associate on the matter said if parliament or anyone else doesn't like it it takes a simple sentence to change it but the magistrate's not here to do that he's a magistrate he's bound by high court decisions he doesn't overrule Cigarfield Barwick at the drop of a hat. If anyone can understand that, it's rugby league. It's like, you know, if Mal says, you know, we're doing laps, we're doing laps, you know? Yeah, yeah. So probably the one good thing to come from this horrendous incident is the fact that the outrage was such that the law was changed. And so going forward, you couldn't use intoxication as an excuse 
to get away <laughs> with drunken thuggery. <laughs> there was some collateral damage with Bradley Clyde called to the courtroom to give a witness statement and running up the steps to the courtroom and doing his calf muscle, which Fuck then me. ruled him out of the Super League Test Series against Great Britain. Get him on a horse instead, Christ. Yeah. Uh, but after the court decision, Noah was instantly sacked by the Raiders. And so it goes back to that earlier point where the incident happens and that doesn't cause the outrage. Noah, you know, goes on to play a full season, breaks the Raiders' try-scoring record in the process, and it's not till <laughs> the end of the year with the court case that there's any consequences for it. You can't have a proper culture when you're doing stuff like that to win. No, yeah. You either got this, like a moral standard or you don't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so at this point, you know, too late in the game, they decided they did have some morality, sacked him instantly. This was despite, you know, Mal Meninga speaking in his defense, which, you know, maybe can be expected. What is less expected is the fact that the father of one of the victims also called for the Raiders to reconsider. He said, we were not happy with the court's decision, but we are not looking for the Raiders to put up a star chamber. What he really needed was a bit of support. This guy's been publicly humiliated. Jeez, Dad. Like, I, I don't know what the guy's go is, whether he was just a massive Raiders fan. but like, <laughs> uh, He was sacked from the Raiders. His long-term future in Super League was you know, put into question. Super League, as a result, made to look quite foolish. So David Gallup came out and said, Nandruka has breached his contract and brought the game into disrepute. We doubt other Super League clubs will be prepared to sign Noah Nandruka in the circumstances. <laughs> yeah, right. This was echoed by Daily Telegraph cheerleader-in-chief Peter Falingos, who said, Nandruka will then be without a Super League club because the no other nine clubs won't have a bar of him. That means his only hope of employment will be at Redfern, where the South Sydney club has made a habit of giving sanctuary to the game's flotsam and jetsam in recent seasons. But even they might balk at giving a start. Uh, I don't know whether South did even consider it and balk, but what I do know is that the one club who didn't balk was the Super League-aligned North Queensland Cowboys, who then goes on to sign Noah Nandruku, despite the proclamations of him being cast aside from Super League. So Noah goes on to finish his career at the Cowboys. Honestly, like, I'm not here to, like, you know, hang the guy, but it's not talked about enough. It's not even on his Wikipedia page. The one line is, Noah Nandruku left the Raiders after an off-field incident in 1997. That's the only mention of it in his Wikipedia page. Well, what gets me in this... Um type of situation is the mob how they'll go for a guy like robert louis or ben barber and these guys are animals and can never be accepted in society ever again and then another guy dozens of examples like nandruku just skate yeah so it's like yeah. just be consistent or don't have this fake outrage yeah yeah and i mean you can say it's a different era but there's you know a number of blokes in this era with form who you know have gone on to have full careers and be respected and it not be talked about. So, but we'll move on for Noah Andruku and finish the Canberra Raiders story in 1997 with some other off-field movements. And this concerns Ricky Stewart, who mid-1997, it came out in the press that the Raiders were considering sacking Stewart. So this came out in the press. Stewart called a meeting with the players and Mal to discuss the situation. 
Stuart came out and said, the thing I want to emphasize is that all this has nothing to do with my relationship with Mel Meninga. Mel and I get on great. He's told me he wants me there, but I believe the decision is out of his hands. So it wasn't Mal's insistence, and the finger of blame quickly turned to Kevin Neal. Kevin Neal came out in the press and denied it. He said, I've heard rumors, but I can guarantee they're not true. It won't happen. Ricky's part of the furniture and our club captain. That assurance did not convince Ricky Stewart, who subsequently came out and said, they're ducking for cover now, but believe me, this is on. Friends in the club have told me the push is on to get rid of me. I actually think it was the right move, tactically. I would have been happy if he finished his career there. I think he deserved it. But if you're really serious about you know, freeing cap space to build the next generation, it was the right move. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting discussion, which I want to save for the end. But you know, it should be said that he wasn't the only one who was being told to look elsewhere or rumours of him being told to look elsewhere. So at the same point, Bradley Clyde was mentioned as being moved on, Brett Mullins as well. So it was clear that something was happening and Canberra were thinking about their future. But that was in June. The story then died down for a while after that. And it didn't come up again until the end of the season where Laurie Daly actually, again, in rugby league fashion, puts his hand up uh, and saying he wants the Canberra captaincy. And Daly had actually wanted the job for some time. So in 1994, he was New South Wales captain. And he just believed that he was a sure thing to be made Canberra captain in 1995. I think we mentioned it earlier that he was out in the press even talking about maybe moving on from Canberra. Peculiar decision. Really peculiar. To go with Sticky over Daly? Yeah. I mean, I know he's the on-field guy, but I mean, Daly's a much better bloke. Yeah. It just seems weird to me. I wonder how much of it does come into the referee thing, like wanting a vocal, like niggling guy to be able to get in the ears of refs and try to assert some influence. Perhaps it was a way to keep Sticky happy and at the club and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because Laurie would stay regardless. Yeah. You know? So I don't know, but the smart move would have been to have the uh, New South Wales captain that everyone respected as the captain. Yeah. But what I find funny is like why Laurie Daly cared so much and subsequently why captaincy is such a big thing within clubs and the cause of tension when it you know switches between players. Well, back then it was a bigger thing, captaincy. Now it's been watered down in the leadership group rubbish. Yeah. I mean, back then it was a big thing. And but it's sort of like an authority thing. You're taking orders from someone. Yeah. With him, you think, you know, he's got that sort of happy looking wide eyed face, you know, like you don't think he's going to have any niggle in him, but he does. Well, that's the thing. You can't be as good a player as he was without having that within you. Mm. Like, no great of the game can do it without that ingredient when you're on the field. And I think there was something within him of wanting the respect as well. So what ultimately forced his hand in 1997 was Arco actually made some comments in the press that he thought in a United team, when the question of Australian captain came up, Arco said that, you know, it should go to a guy who was a club captain. So that seems to be what ultimately forced Daly's hand. And he said, well... I really want to be Australian captain, so I'm going to try to get the job as Canberra captain. And so he duly did that. Eventually, Mal decides to go with Laurie Daly as captain for 1998, and that basically made the situation devolve. So rumours of uh, falling out with Kevin Neal were basically confirmed in the press. 
There was tension for a while between Laurie Daly and Ricky Stewart. So Laurie's quote was, Ricky and I had a chat and I told him that I, what I wanted to do. And obviously there was some tension there. I felt I was the right man for the job and Ricky felt the same. So it was no surprise there was a bit of a standoff between the two of us for a while. We both sat down at the Kingston Hotel and had a good yarn about it one day. We both wanted the position, but in the end, Mal gave me the nod. To his credit, Ricky accepted the decision and continued on. I respect that. Two guys are actually talking about it instead of like backstabbing each other. Yeah, and when we talk about a feud between Ricky Stewart and Kevin Neal, it's interesting that, you know, a bit of tension with Laurie Daly, but they have a beer and it's resolved. I'm sure he was a bit annoyed with Mal Meninga for going with Daly, but again, it's Mal. He's a good mate. I've got the world of respect for him, so I can move on. But with Kevin Neal, it was a different story. Well, they always want to scapegoat, don't they? The blame. Yeah, yeah. In saying that, his name's come up in a lot of feuds. <laughs> and from what I'm reading, he wasn't particularly popular within the Canberra team. And there was maybe a sense that Laurie Daly was always his boy, that he'd kind of favour Laurie Daly in certain situations. Well, and Laurie Daly... You? Yeah, yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, Laurie Daly was one of the few in the team who got on with him quite well. So it was kind of like a festering wound that sprung open after the captaincy decision. And Ricky, after the decision was made, came out and said, I'm shattered by it, but it seems someone at this club wants to get rid of me. I just can't see any future for me at Canberra now. It's not hard to know where it's come from, and I'm after the bloke concerned for answers. I know he's been telling player managers and other clubs that I'll be up for grabs at the end of the year. It's the age-old sporting club thing. Do you sacrifice your future to reward the past? It's like, you want to be like Melbourne where it's club first. If you're contributing, you're in. If you're not, you're out. That's what you really want. You don't want like, oh, the club owes him another contract, you know, two more years for him to like ride into the sunset. It's like, it's, yeah. It's crazy. I think Kevin Neal didn't handle the situation particularly well. And that was by like going out in the press and making statements. So one of those was, the Raiders were considering going after Joe Roth, who was the star union winger at the time. And in the press, Kevin Neal actually came out and said, oh, you know, if we get him, we're going to have to sacrifice some big name players. All this was happening at the same time that there was rumours about Ricky Stewart. Basically, from that point on, Ricky Stewart like had no time for Kevin Neal. So basically, in October, John Fordham, Ricky Stewart's manager, said, he was asked about Stewart's relationship with Kevin Neal. Fordham said, I'll answer that on the record. I don't believe he has one. Mm. So basically from then on, Ricky Stewart's time at the Raiders was going to be limited. So in July 1998, it was announced that Stewart and Clyde had both been told to find new clubs for 1999. And, you know, so they subsequently moved on, both going to the Bulldogs. And I want to go back now to your thoughts on the Raiders you know, making the right decision, thinking about their future. I think that's very true. I think a clean-out was justifiable given the climate of the time with salary cap returning, the fact that they were a veteran team whose on-field results kept on getting worse. Like, it was clear that a change was needed for the Raiders to keep up. And we know the Raiders respect the salary cap like no other club. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was more than justifiable. It was, um, it was a smart move. So. I think he can be vindicated on that. The injuries kept piling up on them because they were old. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil's vindicated. Yeah, vindicated. And the only reason it didn't work out was that the next generation were just not quite good enough. And there was 
heaps of buzz about Mark McClendon and Andrew McFadden in 1997 and beyond. Looked good, didn't it? And it seemed like the club was really putting their faith in that. But this stood out to me. They're called the Supermax in this article. I always remember them being the Mighty Max. Can you settle that uh, Um I remember memory? both, actually. I remember both. I yeah, okay. Supermax was first. Yeah. So maybe it's interchangeable. So this was from Dave Hedden's book on the Raiders. Uh, but he wrote, There was the emergence of the pairing dubbed the Supermax, Cappy McFadden and Mark McClendon, both about the same diminutive size and both wearing the same headgear. They brought back memories of the Heckle and Jekyll combination of Chris O'Sullivan <laughs> and Ivan Henjak. <laughs> These old um, references in rugby league crack me up. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like that Henjak O'Sullivan comparison. Yeah, definitely. So Raiders went from a serviceable, likable halves pairing to one of the best halves pairings of all time, and then subsequently went back to having a serviceable halves pairing. Well, I've got a bit of a, a comparison here, maybe a long bow, but the Henjack O'Sullivan with like two um, sort of zippy little jinking Alfie type players, line breaking mm. type running players mainly. I, I'll compare them to an indie band, a jingle jangle indie band, whereas Stuart was like the master uh, organizer, pastor and kicker, and Daly was the Ferrari running player with ball skills. So it's like mm. that was like the oasis, the proper anthems, you know, the big songs. Yeah. Power guitar. What do you think of that for a comparison? <laughs> well, I, I think it's it's hard for me not to take it as a subtle dig at my love of jingly jangly um, <laughs> indie outfits. So <laughs> it's um, I'm not having a go at the Smiths. I'm a big Smiths fan, but uh, <laughs> the impersonators. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Longbow City. Oh, I think it's been a while since we've had an Oasis reference in the show, so we were probably overdue. <laughs> but like, it's interesting, you know, Brisbane and Canberra, the two teams of the 90s, both going through this mini clean-out at the same time. You know, Brisbane Institute, a mini clean-out, rewarded with three comps in four years. Raiders do the same and for two decades are cast out into the wilderness, you know, so... Well, they had better replacements in Brisbane. Had better replacements and kept Alf, who Alf, more than Stuart, was able to navigate a changing game. And, you know, the jinking came back into fashion and he managed to, you know, finish his career at the elite level, which Stuart just couldn't do. It's insane how he managed to do that. I mean, Mm. he looked like an Oompa Loompa by the end. Yeah. Like, he's still breaking the line at will and, you know, just controlling everything. He wasn't an athlete by then. Like, it's unbelievable mm. how good he was. Yeah. But regardless, the change was made. And, you know, late in 1998, Ricky Stewart walked off the field with tears in his eyes as his Canberra career ended. Clyde joins him at the Dogs. Daly stays at the Raiders. And, you know, in the year 2000, they all retire together, but with only Daly still in Canberra. So it, as a Raiders fan, knowing that, you know, the next generation didn't work out. Would you have sacrificed the attempt just to see these three champions all leaving together? No. I mean, I know a lot of fans would disagree with me on that, but I, I really think you go for the team first model always yeah. in sport. But anyway, like there's very few people get to become a one-club player. Everyone finishes no. at some um, 
disappointing contract at a different club. And they're always remembered as for the great club they're at. So it doesn't even matter really to me. No, I mean, really, like I can hardly even imagine Ricky Stewart in a dog's jersey. Like for me, it's as if those years didn't happen. Uh, but happen they did, and that is where we'll end this episode. So um, a lot of interesting stories to come out of Super League in 1997 and the start of a real change in rugby league in terms of you know who the top players were. So I think this episode says a lot about where the game was at. Yeah, very good episode, man. Interesting stuff. And so in our next episode, we'll be back to talk about the grand finalists, Cronulla and Brisbane. So uh, hope you join us for that. And we will speak to you then. Bye-bye. It was Monday, June 30, 1997, and the Brisbane Broncos were riding high. On top of the Super League table and coming off three home World Club Challenge wins against their hapless English opponents, it was a confident outfit who arrived at Shark Park to take on Cronulla. 80 minutes later, however, they had been floored, crushed 32-4 after an impressive Sharks performance, and the domestic Super League competition roared to life with a new contender for the title that many thought already in the hands of the Broncos. This is part four of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, wonderful. How are you? I'm good. We're uh, getting very close to the end of the 1997 domestic Super League competition. We've certainly got a lot more to talk about over the season, but it's been nice to see this season play out. <laughs> it's been the absolute marathon of all marathons, going back to our 1988 four-parter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we've taken it an extra step this time because this chapter is going to be a five-parter. Uh, part five will be the actual Super League Grand Final. So for this episode, we're going to be looking at those two Grand Finalists, the Sharks and the Broncos. You don't need to pressure me into watching that, man. I watch it daily. The greatest game of all time. <laughs> so let's start with the Sharks. And I'm going to set this up in a way that I know is going to enrage Sharks fans who are probably already a bit enraged about how little coverage they've got relative to some of the other clubs in our story. But Well, I'm sure that individual person out there will get over it. <laughs> so this was actually a line from a Steve Mascod column in 1996. For much of the time since 1967, when the Sharks joined the Premiership, the whole thing just seemed like a bad idea. <laughs> That's pretty stiff, Steve. It's pretty stiff, but I, I guess the case for that, uh, which Mascord goes on to make and many others have before and since, is that it was a struggle almost from the start for the Sharks. So there were reports of them potentially you know, being broke and in danger of leaving the league in the mid-70s, in 1976. In the early 80s, they were one of the three clubs viewed as being on the chopping block. And the whole way through, and I guess it's perpetuated even in, to some extent to the current day, they seem perpetually trapped in these boom and bust cycles where they're riding high one season and then they're like broke again a couple of years later. And uh, it's been a real effort. So, you know, credit to them for being the survivors they've been for 50 plus years now. I don't remember too many boom periods, but um, <laughs> I'm sure there was some. But I've got a theory on them. I think without the cool 
name sharks and without the nice colors and a few like you know et michael speechley types i reckon they would have been gone if they had like steelers jerseys and colors <laughs> yeah and, and i and, and I, th- I think the other thing they have to their advantage is their identity just works so well for their area and their fan base it, yeah it just all fits right Surf yeah. bum. I mean, possibly without puberty blues, they would have folded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the period we're talking about in the mid-90s, they were very much back in that kind of bus cycle. They'd made a big play on a Leagues Club refurb where they, you know, put $600,000 worth of poker machines in to, you know, turn the Cronulla Leagues Club into the Taj Mahal of the Deep South. That hadn't really come to fruition. I think the timing was really bad. I haven't looked into the exact reason why, but spending 600 grand on pokies at the very time that pokies are being allowed into pubs and you don't have the license to print money in a leagues club that you had a few years before, I'd say would have contributed something to it. I mean, how can you lose money in that insidious game? I mean, it's literally just barrels of cash and somehow rugby league people manage to stuff up pokies. Yeah. <laughs> so... Anyway, they kind of jumped ship to Super League because of those money problems. Like they viewed it as their only chance of surviving and surviving solo. So it was very prescient of them to go to Super League. And I think we've said it before, like they're one of the few clubs that there's no doubt that what they did was the right way to go and played a significant role in them still being here 25 years later. I always had a soft spot from the Gavin Miller days, really. I just thought they were a fun team, a fun second or third team to watch, and um, I always had a soft spot for them. But to me, they just fit Super League so perfectly. It's the ultimate uh, symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it is, but it should be noted that they were by no means Super League's first, second, or even third choice. You know, it was Peter Gow actively campaigning for the Sharks. They were one of the few teams that actually, like, proactively courted Super League rather than the other way around. It was a case of Gao making the case for Cronulla and leaving them in the box seat when everything kicked off. I mean, yet again, your um, China advancing professional sports got a key team that's a small suburb or two small suburbs yeah. in, the, in yeah. the Shire. Like, yeah. Yeah, ridiculous. But I think if they'd stayed with the ARL, that would have given the ARL the biggest shot in the arm because they just had that cool, fun team with Peachy and all that. Mm. And it just would have made the ARL look a whole lot less dour. I think there's something to that. They were a fun team. They were a really fun team and a really great cast of characters that we'll get into in a bit more depth soon. But Super League came at the right time for Cronulla on the field as well. After a pretty lean few years in the early 90s, they were full of promise. They'd started to improve in 95 and 96. They'd had this great base of juniors coming through at the right time. So when 97 came, they were primed and ready, and they definitely helped give credibility to Super League, which, you know, was lacking credibility in a few ways. Just another example of getting your juniors right, um, paying off. (laughs) So I just wanted to go back to Peter Gow briefly before we move on, because I think these days, if he's not remembered for being L's dad, it's the, you know, cutting up the St. George fans tie Barry Beef incident. And, I mean, that's that's a hilarious incident. So I, It's a bit cruel to tar in with that one brush, right? But it's the league incident that made me realise as a teen that rugby league men were off their heads, you know? Like, yeah. It really put league men on the map for me, that incident. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the great ones. But I think what it does 
for Peter Gow is to kind of dampen his legacy somewhat, where he was a really shrewd guy. And as I said, I think he is a very big part of the reason why Sharks fans still have a team to this day. So if I was a Sharks fan, I'd be very thankful for what Peter Gow did in the mid-90s. And I think they are thankful for him. Yeah. I mean, he was by no means a universally loved figure in the Shire. In fact, in 1996, he just survived a leadership challenge with, I love this quote, uh, the word is Gao has lost the support of seven out of eight fellow directors. The eighth, Dane Sorison, is reportedly not that big a fan either. (laughs) How did he survive that then? (laughs) Well, this is what I love. So it was a, a boardroom battle, but because he knew he didn't have the support of the board, what Peter Gow had to do was to win the hearts and minds of the rank and file. So he actually took it to the streets. You know, he was handing out flyers at train stations, door knocking, you know, cold calling residents of the Shire. And he ended up winning the election. There were four times the number of votes than what there would normally be for an election of this type. So just, uh, you know, sheer force of will and... Think about that. Uh, That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Treating it like it's the, um, the 68 US presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. It just goes to show how much they love their power, these guys, right? Mm. Like, no matter how small and niche the rugby league, league club power is, they love it. Yeah, but, I mean, unlike some of the other figures we've talked about in this series, with Gao, it seems it was power for a reason like he believed in the sharks and yeah he believed in their future so you can definitely bag him out all you want and have a laugh but i think but, it's great but it's yeah. Just funny yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> i think in that byzantine world of uh lee's club politics you got these graham richardson types that are like the masters of the machiavellian backdoor deals then you got the men of the people guys you got to get the ones that can do both anarcho mm. and then you got your perfect league man but you kind of one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, I don't want to spend too much of this episode talking about administrators because it does essentially come down to the squad and the team they built. And I think I'd mentioned in a previous episode that for me, this is the most likable Sharks team in their history. They were just pretty much head to tail a likable bunch. And I think for me, it all starts with the coach who we've spoken about our admiration for him in the past, but John Lang, just a a rugby league gentleman. Yeah. You don't get many universally beloved figures in sport, and he's one of them. Yeah, and just a infectious enthusiasm for the game. Someone who never seemed, like, jaded or tired of the game. Like, he just absolutely loved the game and brought that to each club he went to. And we've said this before uh, ad nauseum, but the son, Martin, everyone just remembers him being a straight-running psycho and appearing to be a meathead the guy's as brainy as they come off the field i know i'm loving his contribution to you know nrl twitter and all the other places he pops up back in the 90s i was guilty as anyone of just thinking he was just a big dumb idiot just because (laughs) of his playing style but like yeah love martin lane he probably just got out the physics table and thought you know straight line running it's the most efficient (laughs) use of my time and you know he worked it all out scientifically (laughs) Uh, But you're right about John Lang being universally loved. The admiration for him cut across state borders with Lang saying that he knew that Wayne Bennett was agitating for Lang to get a start in the ARL, like with the New South Wales Rugby League Club. Lang had been coaching in the BRL and Bennett had been putting his name forward for a few different jobs. So John Lang wasn't sure if it was specifically Cronulla that, you know, Wayne helped him get, but 
he was certainly a big admirer. It's endlessly fascinating to me, the different coaching styles and success. You've got these uh, very rare, the John Lang, Peter Mulholland types that are actually good blokes and trade off that and get respect through that. And you've got these like sort of faux good blokes, you know, like a Ricky Stewart type, you know, <laughs> then you've got these walk type blokes. So all different ways to approach it. But yeah, they're quite rare, those genuinely nice guys in coaching success. Yeah. And someone who, in some respect, cuts across all of those categories was Bozo. And John Lang credits Bozo to a large extent for him getting an opportunity to coach the Sharks because Lang had played most of his career in Brisbane, was brought down to East in 1980 when Bozo was coaching. And in Lang's opinion, having that Sydney presence gave him the credibility that he needed to later advance. And just by playing in that team and watching Bozo coach, Lang was you know, full of admiration and uh, said that he adopted a lot of Bozo's methods in getting his coaching career going. He must have been something else, Bozo, because everybody under him has either gone on to better things or just has the utmost respect for him. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Anyone who's played with him or been coached by him, you rarely hear anyone say anything bad about him, do you? On the field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, so Lang actually turned down the Cowboys gig when that was first up for grabs in 95. So, Astute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a Cronulla board member, he was offered more to coach the Cowboys than he was at the Sharks, and a Cronulla board member said, you know, why are you turning the Cowboys down to come here? And Dane Sorensen again cut into the interview and said he wants a shot at the title, and John Lang said that's exactly right, and that's what he was there for. I don't know why, don't, why coaches don't take squads more seriously when they take these positions, mm. right? I'd never take a basket case. I'd rather be like an assistant for 10 more years and take a yeah, basket yeah, case because yeah. your career's over. Oh, exactly. And if you're thinking about money, you've got to play the long game. You know, do you want two years of better pay and then, you know, come last, be out of the league and have your coaching stock through the floor? Or do yeah. you want to be coaching in 20 years and make a career of it? <laughs> take this job and then be looking at um, flats in Wakefield Trinity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Lang came in with a pretty decent squad, a lot of good names on the rise. He made the very wise decision to bring down with him from Queensland, Paul Green. And I think Paul Green's arrival is the catalyst for all of this in many ways. Like a really, I think, an underrated halfback. And we've talked about it before, but the combination between him and Mitch Healy, one of my favorite half combos of the 90s. Well, you can't win a comp without a legitimate half in those days, it had to be a seven, but now it could be a six or a seven. But someone, a controlling maestro half, and that's what they got with Green. Yeah. Legit. And I didn't remember this, but Mitch Healy was actually entrenched as the Sharks halfback and moved to 5'8 to accommodate Green. But to me, it was just such a, a natural fit of Healy at six, Green at seven. It, I didn't realize that. I think Healy was one of those guys that could do a first and then, you know, be effective mm. in both. But to me, it was a natural 5'8. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. But getting that in place made a big difference. They also had Dean Treister at hooker, who was a you know, fairly decent player, as well as Adam Dykes, who was coming through the ranks. A lot of hype from him in 1997. Maybe he never lived up to the hype that he had coming through, but I think he's another underrated player who did really well at the Sharks and then on with Parramatta. Like, I think he was a really, really good player. I tell you what I want to think about him. He had that time... The game sort of was slowed down when he had the ball. He had a bit Lockyer-esque in his uh, mm. elegance and his movement. His yeah, yeah. That's what I remember about him. He had this classy vibe to him. Yeah. 
And what he did at this stage of his career was to give Lang options. So Lang saw Healy Green, Dykes and Treaster as a group. And so he would, you know, work his bench rotations and get that going and it paid dividends. Just just a little aside on Dean Treaster. He was actually a former champion trampolinist and a self-taught juggler who, you know, used the flaming pins big in the juggling world. Is that one step away from riding a unicycle? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if he kept it up after his playing days, but I'm I'm just so glad that Dean Treister's career played out in the 90s, where that could just be a fun little aside. If it happened today, it would be Damien Cook, beach sprinting level, every single game he played, <laughs> referencing the juggling. Um, here's your definition of what they termed a handy player. Yeah. Handy. Yeah. Uh, and he thought the juggling helped. It said, it helps my football because it makes me more sure of myself with the ball in my hands. It's good for That's catching skills too. Yeah, I mean, not something I'd be um, pushing to take up myself, but I can see the benefits. Trampolining impresses me. All that gymnast stuff, they they yeah. got a lot of strength for those blokes. Yeah, yeah. So they had their halves in place. They had a great leader in ET who led from the front. Uh, I, I love Matt Rogers' comment on ET. ET wouldn't stand for anything less than perfection on the football field. He commanded so much respect that you just didn't want to let him down. And if you stuffed up, he let you know it. But that was a good thing because you always knew where you stood with him. ET, man, what can you say about him? Our ill-fated Hall of Fame conversations and everything. The guy's just a, he's a stud player, stud bloke. I always loved him. Yeah, and I think still to this day, he gets painted with the pretty boy brush a bit. But what really stands out to me was his defense, like how good... Those driving tackles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how good a defensive center he was, but the fact that you could play him anywhere from one to five, and especially within that Cronulla team, how much he meant to that group and what a leader he was within the team. Let me ask you a question. When you think of ET, what position do you think of him as? I, I It's hard. I, I guess I see him like more as a center. So that's, I see him as a wing. Yeah, well, I think because like, that's typically where he'd play in you know New South Wales or Australia. Yeah. That was his general spot, but... I think centre is his best position. I've just got these memories of him in the five jersey for Australia, picking up yeah. guys yeah. and then running back from the 10 metres and dumping them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he used to pick them up in the air <laughs> and uh, yeah, just run with them. Yeah, but great player and great leader and one of a core of veterans within that Sharks team that just gave them that grit and just some of that steely old school resolve. So you had E.T., you had Danny Lee, you had Les Davidson, like just a, an awesome core of veterans right there. It's another one of our tropes to mention this, but how the hell was Les Davidson still playing in Super League? It's unbelievable. I, I can't believe, like he was 35 at the time in the Super League year and went on another year to finish at the end of 98, which... 35 was like 40 back then too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially playing prop. Just the look of him in the 80s, like playing for South, like the most menacing bloke you could imagine. <laughs> a literal dock worker. <laughs> he seems like the sort of guy that can recover um, an outstanding monetary value for you. <laughs> so his secret to his longevity was, in his eyes, it was the change to the 10-metre rule. He said, under the 5-metre rule, you got bashed. The rule changes have helped blokes like me and Oxy, it was Danny Lee, survive. That's another thing. You need the halfback to win the comp. You need a hard-headed forwards to win the comp. Yeah, yeah. And as we'll see, they had a mix of youth and experience in the forwards that 
made it the complete package. So you had Lee, who actually like made his representative debut with New South Wales in the Tri-Series. So good reward for a player who'd played nearly 200 games and was winding down his career. It's a nice little reward for him. Then you had the blokes coming through like Sean Ryan, Craig Greenhill, Jason Stevens, Martin Lang. To where Nick Al's there as well. What about Nick Anytime I, I look at names in that Sharks team, I'm like, oh, that's right. Sean Ryan was there. Oh, Martin Lang. Oh, to where Nick Al, it was Craig Greenhill. How did they fit them all in? So it was like a fairly stacked pack. But it was the young guns, I think, that made the biggest impact and gave Sharks fans the biggest sign of hope. And this all started earlier in the 90s. They had a President's Cup team that won. Ken Arthurson called them the best President's Cup side I've ever seen. I'm just going to read out the ones that really made it. So you had David Peachy, Matt Rogers, Adam Dykes, Dean Treister, Adam Ritson, Sean Ryan, and Nick Graham. You had, you know, Ben Summit played a bit of first grade, Matt Daylight, uh, Gavin Clinch, who I think was at the Dragons in 97. So there's definitely some names there. It's definitely a great side. But the way it was being talked about was this transcendent, like, oh, my God, can you believe this squad? Can you believe this crop of juniors? And I see those names, I'm like, that's a really good team, but it doesn't necessarily stand out to me as like, oh, wow, this is like a historically great, you know, junior team. And, and it made me think how much of that was the Adam Ritson factor, like the hype he had and the way he was talked about as being like the next Beatson. Well, let me ask you this. He debuted at 16, didn't he? How's he playing President's Cup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess he was probably playing a bit of first grade that year while he was starring for the President's Cup team. Right. But to me, this team and the blooding them in first grade and getting them to this point where Super League Grand Finalists in 97, 99 were best team all year and, and it couldn't work out for them to get to a grand final. But to me, this is the legacy of Artie Beetson, who maybe he wasn't a brilliant coach, but as a scout and as a developer of junior talent was one of the best. And his legacy is all over this team into the Roosters teams of the 2000s. Like he was just so well suited to that role. Oh, is there anybody better for it? Just a knockabout that everyone wants around and exudes an aura, you know, all yeah. the juniors are going to come and talk to him at the carnival, the parents, you know, so it's like um, a perfect role. Yeah. Matt Rogers was the other player from that team who been playing first grade in 1996 but this was the big breakout year for him so et was on the record as saying that he's destined to be one of the greats and he's the best winger he'd played with in 15 years at the sharks i was on the prove it bandwagon with him i was like it doesn't look that good to me and then it just yeah. turned out to be a gun <laughs> yeah 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 and i mean it's just a shame that his prime was spent on the bench for the wallabies catching cold yeah yeah <laughs> That was a disgraceful period in yeah. Australian sport. <laughs> what about Dave Peachy, though? Like, is there anybody, in living memory, is there anybody that was like a bigger fan favorite than that guy? You say that, but all my memories of him, and maybe it's just tied up with just like... Oh, some George fans, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not even that. Honestly, so much of it comes down to what we talked about in our 96 season recap, like the carrying the ball by the point... And like, you know, like just dropping it in unforgivable circumstances. These, you put the L in laconic, the music yeah, girl. Yeah, just these showboaty plays for no effect and big mistakes at the worst possible time. To me, they really dampen my affection for Peachy in the memory. I just remember him as like, he's going to bring 5,000 more through the gates each yeah. game. Like everybody loved him. Old ladies loved him. Kids loved him. It was just... 
There's a couple of years there where it was, everything was peach. Yeah, yeah. He was an excitement machine, there's no doubt. And this was a, a massive year for him, you know, playing for New South Wales and Australia and being considered, if not the best, in the, you know, top two or three fullbacks in the game. So a huge part of the Sharks' success in 97. And he wasn't alone. So they had 11 players representing in the Super League Tri-Series. And in a smaller comp, it was... You know, all eyes were on them. Like They couldn't kind of fly under the radar. They were viewed as one of the few good teams in Super League and had to live up to it. And that's basically what they did throughout the season. So they finished second. It helped in large part by their success under lights. So they had the best record in night matches across either competition. And their success rate in 1997 was... 83.3, which was five wins from six games. And that had been carried through for, you know, the three or four seasons before. They won 30 of 40. And not only were they winning more, they were playing much more under lights than any other team. So in an era where Super League were thinking more about Knights, the ARL would be getting there too. And in the NRL, it would be, you know, the focus really. The Sharks were a bit ahead of the curve in that. Well, I mean, back then and probably for another 15 years afterwards, um, it was a valid excuse to go, yeah, they're playing under lights, so, you know, the ball's slippery. Yeah, yeah. You could just lose games and just blame that. And everyone would go, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I'm pretty sure in my memory, that's the first time I ever heard a ground referred to as a graveyard. It was like, you know, <laughs> Saturday night at Shark Park, you know, the graveyard. Like, it, it was yeah. just like, oh, we're going to Shark Park. We're definitely going to lose because they're playing at night. It's Saturday night at Shark Park. The sponsors of that ground have forever been uh, wasting money in naming rights because yeah. everyone's <laughs> called it Shark Park forever. So they had some help with this. Like they had a keen fisherman in ET who could read wind conditions. So they would be you know, monitoring the wind and making decisions about the toss. Uh, ET had actually had a contact at the Weather Bureau who would get the inside scoop on. <laughs> So he couldn't just hold his finger up and um, <laughs> throw a bit of grass up. He had to have the, the bomb. Yeah. So so had some outside help. Uh, but used it to their advantage. And one of those wins under lights was against the Broncos, beating them 32-4 to four, uh, at the end of June. And this was like a real statement game. It's like, we're here. You know, it's not just the Broncos comp. We're right in it. One of the highlights of that year for me was Cronulla, watching them perform. It was like... To me, they are Super League that year. Heaps of Cronulla memories. Yeah, yeah. They finished the season a game clear of Canberra in second spot, but five points behind Brisbane. And to me, that seems about right for Super League that year. So let's turn to the Broncos then, who a lot of changes going on off field that I think we'll start with. Uh, Firstly is the ongoing tension in Brisbane between the Broncos and basically any other body, sporting or otherwise. (laughs) So they were at odds with the QRL. uh, And once again, the juniors being collateral damage in the war. So the Broncos had arranged a gala in Roma during the World Club Challenge to, you know, for their reserve grade side to go over, uh, have coaching clinics, play invitational matches. They'd done that in Roma previously. So that was viewed as a nice little outreach event uh, and, you know, strengthening ties with Queensland. But the QRL barred the locals from taking part (laughs) in any of the activities. How petty. Yeah. But uh, don't worry, Roma, because uh, they weren't leaving 
you completely out in the lurch because they uh, filled the gap with the Gold Coast Chargers. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> Which, like, I, you know, I hate to just bag out the Chargers, but if I was like a young footy fan in Roma thinking, like, oh, the Broncos are coming, this is going to be so great, and then, like, the Chargers turned up. <laughs> You'd be like, nice jerseys, though. who designed them? <laughs> Uh, there was another circumstance where junior Broncos players were dumped from the Brisbane under-16 rep team despite training with the squad for five weeks. Uh, I actually support the QRL's line on this where they said, well, they shouldn't have been picked in the first place, and that had been the case in other Queensland regions. So it's fair enough. It's just always sad when it's you know some 15-year-old kid who is collateral damage in this massive war going on. All they say all the time is, you know, it's not going to affect the kids. And, you know, so uh, the kids are, kids are out of this, and then this how uh, vicious this war got. They're like, fuck the kids. But it wasn't just the QRL. They were also butting heads with the Lang Park Trust. Uh, so signs that the deal with ANZ Stadium wasn't going well for them, and they were looking for ways to get out of it. So the Queensland government was making a big push to get the Broncos back to Suncorp Stadium. So they were making plans to convert the stadium into, I guess it's, you know, current configuration. I remember thinking at the time, well, i just leave Lang Park alone. It's a classic stadium. I mean, how, how wrong was I about yeah. it now? It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Oh, it, it's so good that they were able to turn it from this cauldron of the 80s and this, you know, kind of sacred ground for rugby league. They modernise it and turn it into the best rugby league ground in the world. Yeah. They, it seems odd that we're talking about rugby league people doing something right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> State government's getting involved, coming yeah. off. So the Queensland government were into that. The Brisbane City Council were not. So Jim Sawley, who uh, you might remember as being Lord Mayor of Gooseville, according to Arco. <laughs> That's got to be a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. So they were actually like the the ones invested in the ANZ Stadium thing. So the deal the Broncos had with ANZ Stadium actually came through Brisbane City Council. So they were very anti the Broncos getting out of that deal if it was Lang Park that was being redeveloped. So they were keen for a new stadium. But uh, Sawley said, that ground is already beyond its capacity and we will not support any further upgrade. So I think he was proved wrong there. But what it meant was that what was viewed as an inevitability of the Broncos being back at Suncorp, uh, maybe as soon as 1998, it actually took until 2004 until they were back there full time. Yeah, right. It was a time of change in the boardroom uh, for the Broncos with Porky Morgan resigning as chairman. He decided he was going to get back into stockbroking full time. I'm just going to read this. This was a, a really sad quote in hindsight. I'm 50 years of age and you can only take so much. I have no doubt that if I'd kept going on this way, I'd be in my grave in next to no time. It's a young man's game, and that young man needs a young liver and a young heart. I don't think the Broncos need a chairman who walks up and down the sideline during a game chain-smoking and then goes on like an Afghan when they lose. How do Afghans go on? <laughs> I, I, I mean, the casual racism aside, uh, it's you know just sad that you know Morgan makes this statement. He's aware of... You know, the damage that the game and his hard living was doing steps away and is, you know, dead within four years. It's like 11 years older than me, you died. I'm mm. like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It really knocks you around. But um, 
I told you before that my mate you know, went to uni with his daughter and he reckons he's the best bloke ever. Mm. You know, and certainly, you know, a very successful administrator at the Broncos. He was part of the Pacific Sports Entertainment conglomerate that, in addition to owning the Broncos, also owned the Brisbane Bullets, the Brisbane Bandits baseball team, and a sports management company, International Quarterback. They actually pulled the pin on the Bandits uh, in 1997. So I think it was a clear sign that, you know, between Morgan withdrawing and Pacific Sports Entertainment stepping back from their big plan to basically own all of Brisbane's sporting entertainment, it showed that it was never really about strength of numbers in owning these Brisbane sporting franchises. It was basically you had the Broncos as a money printing machine along with a bunch of vanity projects. That's a bit cruel to Leroy Loggins, mate, please. <laughs> That was draining threes in that era. <laughs> so on field as well, it was a time of big change for the Broncos, a changing of the guard. So 1996 was the third year in succession of underwhelming performance. They'd lost four out of five semis in that time. And it was, they were kind of running it back every year with the same or a very similar squad, you know, with a few great names coming through. But every year it was the same results and the, you know, heyday of only a few years before in 92 and 93 seemed like, you know, a world away. You can't win every year, though. You can't win every year. But when you're the Broncos and you're three straight years of underwhelming semi-final performances, it's clear that the time has come to make a change. And Wayne Bennett, at the end of 1996, had one of his coaching staff come up to him to talk about what needed to happen. Uh, in Bennett's words, he came up to him and said, You've stuck with some of these guys for too long. You need to make some really hard decisions. And Bennett went on to say, Deep in my heart, I knew he was right and that I'd been trying to ignore and avoid it. It's not my nature to be ruthless. It's not who I am. I became defensive in that conversation because I knew he didn't have to make the decisions and because he was telling me what I already knew. Still, I had to hear it. So the first of those players to make way was Willie Kahn, who was dumped by the Broncos, spurred the offer of Adelaide and went to Rugby Union. And uh, Spiro's Avos again, just going to read a quote from him. The conversion of Willie Kahn from a Brisbane Bronco to a Queensland Red is a historic rugby event. It closes the sometimes vicious circle of defections from Union to League that began nine years ago when Daly Messenger accepted an offer to play three matches for an Australian team of Union defectors. So Spiro, once again, using the opportunity to predict the demise of rugby league didn't quite <laughs> turn out to be that much of a watershed signing <laughs> well he's the ultimate off a cliff guy isn't he Khan? yeah totally best winger best winger in the world to forgotten man yeah so he goes to the queensland reds Widely viewed that a wallabies jersey was just waiting for him never happened couldn't really crack a regular spot in the reds lineup retired from all forms of the game later that year uh so, you know, not the greatest end to Willie Kahn's footballing career, but I love things that are true between codes. This was Willie Kahn's view on how he was finding playing with the Reds. I was made to feel very welcome. So the boys are making him feel welcome in the dressing room, which is, is good to see that is a universal thing. <laughs> Michael Hancock was a, a player who was widely viewed to be part of the cull. And, you know, you saw Kerrod Walters go, Alan Can, Chris Johns had retired. It was viewed that some of these veterans had outlived their usefulness and would be making way. And Michael Hancock was near the top of that list. At the end of 1996, he 
basically said to Bennett, I'm not going. Bennett said, you're not guaranteed a first grade spot. And Hancock said, that's fine. All I ask is for a fair go. Just give me the same chance as any other player and I'll fight for my spot. I really love that story. I hated him as a player as a kid watching him, kicking in tackles and that greasy hair and everything. Now he's retired. I really, really respect him as a player. Yeah, totally. I feel the exact same way. And the fact that even at the end of 1997, it was the same story. So he was on the bench for their grand final in 97. He was talked about as a potential Melbourne signing and once again, not getting any promises from Bennett, but he stays. He's there again in 98, five grand finals for the Broncos when before the third of them, he was viewed as being a cast off. And you can tell that Wayne Bennett would just love the hell out of that attitude and that type of player who would stay and fight. Yeah. We paid off for him because he got two comps yeah, out, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah, exactly. Uh, what surprised me was the fact that Kevin Walters was widely viewed as leaving with Carrot and was talked about as being part of that necessary clean out. He'd actually asked for a release to join Steve at the Cowboys, but in the end decided to stay and kind of similar to Mick Hancock, Anthony Mundine was coming up, Lockyer was coming through. So there was a fight on his hands for his jersey and Kevin stays and I think like really hit his top form in this era. Yeah, that's a James Hooper sliding doors moment because um, his legacy was uh, set into granite with those uh, later years. Yeah. If he'd gone to the Cowboys and, and not performed, yeah. they would have said, oh, he's only good with the Broncos, you know, it would have killed his legacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I really think the mundane thing actually helped him. For someone who's as laconic as Kevin Walters is, uh, and I'm sure he was a you know, very competitive player and had that makeup. But for someone who seems like just a kind of fun, easygoing presence to like get the rocket up him of a player coming to compete for his spot, I think that would have made him focus and really work on 1997, proving he was the man. Yeah. Uh, and so I pun intended in calling Kevin Walters the man because it was a different man that arrived in 1997 at the Broncos, Anthony Mundine. So he joined the Broncos because he saw it as his best pathway to rep footy. He didn't really care who that was for. Like once he got there, he even investigated whether he could represent Queensland in the Super League Tri Series. Everything he did in that era was just off. Oh, <laughs> like, we've got a, everything. We've got a whole section on everything being off in this era. So let's get into it. I can understand him, you know, thinking that the Broncos was his best path to a rep jersey. Fine. You know, that's on-field stuff. But this kind of thing, talking about his profile, that's why I'm here. I was prepared for it. I knew Brisbane players got a lot of publicity and the public gets right behind them. That's what I wanted. I want to get better known. Just everything about him is just so painfully forced. All he had to do was be the son of an Australian sporting legend with incredible uh, natural gifts and just play hard and be a good bloke, and the whole country would have loved him. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're going to talk yourself up, just do it after the fact, you know? Like, actually achieve half of what you want to set out to do. I think he was just in a hurry. He needed someone to sit down with him and show him what a career progression could look like and, you know, goals along the way. But Mundine seemed to want everything all at once. We've worn this trope out too. It's the fake Muhammad Ali yeah. stuff. You can't copy someone else. It's so inauthentic. And everyone felt it. It's just, it was icky. Yeah. I'm the man, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was like a wrestling promo. It's like, it wasn't real. 
And so he was already thinking beyond football in 1997. He was very bullish on the chances of his rap outfit, Black Venom. Uh, and, you know, no surprises, this came from Super League, the magazine. But it wasn't just Super League, the magazine, who gave credulity to Mundine's rapping. So Mike Coleman in Super League, the magazine said, oh, yeah, we didn't mention that. Music, he's a natural at that too. <laughs> I really hate when um people try and multitask in, in those sort of things, like Donald Glover with the Childish Gambino. It's the most watered down, yeah. weak, inauthentic <laughs> music, right? And then it gets over with like pop fans for yeah. two months and then it's forgotten about like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's another icky part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Super League magazine were lapping it up. The Super League administration and Broncos administration were also, I think, mainly humouring him, but Mundine had his sights set on playing uh, as the pre-match entertainment at Super League games. One of the other things that attracted him to Brisbane was their relationship with Sony Music Australia. Broncos CEO Shane Edwards said, yes, we discussed the matter and we've provided Anthony with the direction and outlet for him to pursue his interest in music. Uh, and they actually took that to Sony Music, whose Queensland manager Mick Delante said, the kid has a high profile, looks good and is very marketable. But if he can't sing, we don't see much future in investing in him. But he's good, very good. And I'm confident his debut single will do very, very well. Yeah, he starts it on the Arias. So that debut single was Bronco Fever. <laughs> it's so corny, right? Like, Jesus Christ. So that was released in line with the Super League Grand Final to give it a bit of hype and a bit of momentum. And was actually the third Bronco-based song to try to make a run at the charts. So the first was in 1989, a band called themselves On The Ball, had a song, uh, Let's Go Broncos. That didn't do much at all. But then three years later, uh, a little act called Ipswich Connection had Hey Hey We're The Broncos. Listen, <laughs> George can't play. Is that, a, um, <laughs> is that a bonus track or what? Is that an official release? So this was Alfie's uh, comment on Mundine's musical endeavours. Just some advice to young Chock, the pop star in the making. Back in 1992, a group called the Ipswich Connection released a song which reached number one in Queensland and number 28 nationally. There's a certain benchmark for him to reach. <laughs> Legend. So you can see there a, a little dig at Mundine in our statement, and that's not the only one a Bronco would issue that season, which we'll get to. But, you know, you talk about Mundine's lack of originality. Bronco Fever wasn't even the first Bronco-based rap song. So the B-side of Hey, Hey, We're the Broncos is, uh can't remember what it was called, Bronco Rap. But anyway, it was a rap song from the Ipswich Connection featuring uh Kevin, Kerrod, and Alfie all spitting rhymes. If that's not of its era, I don't know what it is. That's hilarious. Yeah, like <laughs> it literally features the line, my name is Kerrod and I'm here to say. <laughs> They're really funny, guys. The is, is, I love them. Uh, yeah, so both the A-side, Hey Hey We're the Broncos, and the Bronco Rap B-side are available on YouTube. Check out the rap song in particular. It's uh... <laughs> One thing about Mundine at that, that era, and it was a Quade Cooper the League-style story, was him. Uh, he's good enough to play for the Kings, and I used to love that, so lap that up. Oh. He was such a good athlete, and he could just... 
you know, change at the Kings whenever he wanted. Yeah, and Gordon Tallis said that in 97. He said, oh, there's basketball. He's good enough to get a start for the Brisbane Bullets. And it's like, I don't deny that he wasn't a very good basketball player, but just the arrogance to think you can just, oh, yeah, I'm, I, I can drop a three or two. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just play for the Bullets. I reckon if he'd gone that route, route, he could have been like Paddy Mills level. I that, definitely that, think if close. he started early and made basketball his sport, like he's just such a naturally gifted athlete that I'm sure he could have made it. But to be, you know, in your early 20s and playing professional rugby league, to think that you can just like switch at a drop of a hat. Uh, and just to conclude the music part of the segment, just in case you were wondering how Bronco Fever did. So Sony were bullish on it. They said, to be commercially viable, we'll need to sell about 5,000 copies of the single. But I'd be very disappointed if we didn't do more. We've already fielded sales inquiries and the radio stations and dance clubs in Brisbane are getting right behind the idea. Uh, so in the end, it spent one week on the charts at number 99 and then dropped out of the charts completely. And I think that chart success was driven entirely by the Queensland market. So the week it was 99 in Australia, it was 32 on the Queensland chart. But it Did you just say chart success? Yeah. <laughs> 99 yeah. in the ARIA chart. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it didn't make a chart in any other state. So it, I think every copy must have been sold in Queensland and it fell off that chart after one week as well. I reckon it would have crushed him too. Yeah, yeah. He probably thought he was going to be the giant star out of it. Yeah. I mean, he did play it live at the Broncos presentation night, but that was about the last we heard of it. He should have um, bailed out Rusty and given him a copy. Yeah. <laughs> so 97 was also the start of talk about him going to boxing. There was, you know, in the press that he was looking at Sydney Olympics in 2000. That, you know, in the end, he was ruled out on a technicality because uh, he'd had one fight as a professional in 1995. It was a, an exhibition bout, but ruled as a professional fight. And also the fact that he was a paid athlete meant that he wasn't allowed to compete in amateur boxing. You can't deny it was the right choice for him. Like he had that long career in boxing, made a lot of money and you know, big name and everything. But I just really hate the disrespect of rugby league for these multi-sport guys, even union defectors. It just, it really makes me sick when they just waste this, yeah, and, and the thing about it is I don't think he was as good a boxer as he was a rugby league player. I mean, he made a bunch more money than he would have had. His profile was much bigger than it would have been. But I think, like, we miss out on a legacy of a potentially great rugby league player. But really, the boxing, the rapping, the playing for the bullets, that's, like, really the least of it. Because 97 was the year that Anthony Mundine said this. Laurie Daly is running on old legs. I'm fresh. I've got young legs. It's time for the new generation, brother. It's time for us to have a go. I want to be up against Laurie Daly as soon as possible. I played against him twice, and I reckon I've done well against him both times. I can more than match him. I know that for sure. <laughs> it's actually quite innocuous, really, the comment that's lasted two and a half decades. <laughs> See, that's why I wanted to read the quote in full, firstly. But, you know, go on, complete your thought there. Well, it's just, I mean, it's the first thing anyone thinks yep. about when you think about rugby league and mundane, right? Yep. And it's probably one of the 10 obnoxious things he said that hour. Yeah. <laughs> in that, in that area, you know what I mean? And it actually didn't come from nowhere. So apparently in the Anzac Day Super League test, the you know players were talking to each other and Laurie Daly said something about mundane that he thought he had some defensive deficiencies and that got back to mundane and that seemed to light the fuse. Mundane says that. Daly didn't respond to it well. Uh, Glenn Lazarus says, 
I know for a fact Laurie was really dirty on the old legs quote. He mentioned it quite a few times during the Tri-Series camps, and I can imagine just how much he's really looking forward to this game. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I don't think Anthony's done any of the Broncos any favours by stirring up Loza. Talk about poking the veritable bear. <laughs> yeah. I think Laurie Daly discussed it privately, would have been fuming, but publicly kind of let it all play out on the field. So in 1998, he made a little a little dig, but I guess it's about as brash as Laurie Daly gets. He says, I rate him very highly. He has the potential to be a great player. And then was asked, it's only potential. And he said, yeah, I mean, you look at Toves and Alfie, they've been at the top for nine or 10 years. He's not in that category. That's just a statement of fact. And I think with that Daily quote, you can sub out Tooves and Alfie for Laurie Daly. Like, I don't think he's the type of person that would come out and say, I've been at the top for nine or 10 years. He's not in that category. But that was the absolute truth of it. Like, Mundine hadn't done it. Laurie Daly had and was still doing it. Well, the awful thing is he come up small in the big moments for various reasons, you know, the grand final or whatever. So Laurie Daly was the opposite of that, the ultimate clutch guy. So. Mm. The wrong guy to <laughs> to try and take down. Yeah. And despite the blowback that he got from the old legs comment, he doubled down at the end of the year saying, I'm just saying what I feel, brother. I guess rugby league isn't used to that. Players don't speak out all that much. And now I am. People don't know how to handle it. But when I said I'm the game's best 5'8", that's exactly what I believe, that I'm the world's best 5'8". It's almost like he's trying to will it to be true just by saying it enough. I've always hated the fake it till you make it stuff. And that's what it is to me. It was ahead of his time on the brash thing um, in Australia, but it was like played out in American sports. Like yeah. It was already hacked by then. <laughs> yeah, and we'd already seen it here. It's not like it was new to anyone in Australia. We could just see the, the phoniness behind it. But I think part of this made it an un- uneasy fit for Mundine in Brisbane. So for the start, it was where to play him on field. He had a confrontation with Wayne Bennett early in the year because he wanted to be playing 5'8", but he was stuck in the centres. He then got injured and missed 10 games, came back, spent time at lock, and by the end of the year, it was clear that Walters had won the battle. So Mundine went up to play as Broncos 5'8", and didn't achieve it. Walters managed to retain his spot. It's crazy that he was at lock at that size. I think it was more just filling in for periods at a match rather than being like named. Right, exactly. I don't remember that, yes. But I yeah. mean, um, he would have been the best ever super sub. Yeah, yeah. But I think also Wayne Bennett realised that he to get the most out of him, he needed his hands on the ball. So it became a bit of a rotation. So Kevin was actually towards the back end of the season playing uh, quite a bit at hooker. So John Driscoll got injured. Kevin Walters was seen as a good replacement there. That way you could inject Mundine. And so I think there were ways that it could have worked long-term. And then maybe in a couple of years, if he'd stayed, he would have taken over from Kevin. But as it turns out, he you know ruffled some feathers in Brisbane, starting with Kevin Walters. So one story says that they were behind the post after the opposition had scored and Kevin Walters had said to Mundine, rack off back out to the centres. Which, great use of rack off. <laughs> hearing it non-ironically is great. I hate hearing it ironically. <laughs> and Alfie thought that Mundine may have uh, struggled with some elements of the Broncos culture. He said, It said the most difficult thing joining the Broncos is getting used to our style of play. I reckon getting used to the Broncos' sense of humour is tougher. New boys always cop it, and Shock was no exception. His love of rap music made him a pretty big target, especially by Kevy Walters. 
Uh, I just that era for rugby league humor would have been the best. Yeah. <laughs> so Gordon Tallis had some same troubles with it. So Alfie said that he struggled to catch up with it as well. He said, Gordy's taken a little longer to come to grips with the Broncos style of humor or the G up mentality as we call it. <laughs> they were self-aware of the G up even back then. <laughs> and all throughout the year with Mundine, there were just a few digs going on. So he didn't play in the World Club Challenge final, and an unnamed Bronco said, we did well to win considering we didn't have the world's greatest 5'8". <laughs> oh, Jesus. And he confirmed it after he left. Mundine said that, I knew I had enemies among the players. I don't want to name names. They didn't like me because I'm confident and brash and I speak my mind. What I think he missed is, when you think of like a player like Wendell Saylor, who was confident and brash and outspoken and in many ways had a similar vibe to Mundine, but had some humour about it. Well, it's it's almost like he wanted to be disliked so yeah. he could get his hackles up or something. Yeah. So anyway, he spent much of the year denying rumours that he was unhappy at the Broncos and denying them in the most mundane way possible, saying things like, I know these rumours will keep going until the end of the year. The rumours come every week because St. George is struggling at the moment. I was their shining light and they'd love to have me back there. <laughs> I mean, you saw a lot of him as a Saints fan. My memories of him as a player were so exciting and, um, you know, game-breaking and can break the line and the stepping and everything and just the uh, agility. What do you remember him as a player? Yeah, like all of that. He was just brilliant. And I think it says something about him that despite all the carry-on, despite all the bullshit you got with him, despite him leaving to go to the Broncos after 96... I, like every, you know, I'm sure there were dissenters, but I think the consensus among Dragons fans was, let's get him back. We need him back. Let's get him. You know, Brian Johnson, the CEO of the Dragons said, our board has encouraged me to pursue him. The club has set aside money to sign Mundine and the club will set aside other negotiations to concentrate on him. That's how much importance we place on securing him for next year. I think <laughs> that was the vibe at the Dragons and among the fan bases. We need Mundine to win, and he is that good. Like, he was a genuinely brilliant player. I really wish we got to see the career pan out. Yeah, you're telling me, mate. (laughs) Um, Maybe Brian Johnston had a direct line of Warner Brothers could throw that in it with a deal. (laughs) And so I think by the time of the Super League Grand Final, the rumours were getting louder and louder. Mundine was doing nothing to hose it down, the fact that he was, you know, unhappy and potentially heading back to Sydney. And... It was really fortuitous for him that the court decision went against him, forcing him back to the ARL. He was kind of like, oh, well, you know, the law's the law. I can't go against it. I'm now open to all bids. And went on to plead with Super League to not contest the decision to let him go back to the ARL. (laughs) Convenient uh, set of circumstances. But is he the only one that's accepted the law and said, (laughs) the judge can't tell me what to bloody do? (laughs) Yeah, so he lost the court case went back to the Dragons, and at that point, the Broncos still had three games of the World Club Challenge to play in the quarter, the semi-final and the final. So he played the quarterfinal, and it was up in the air as to whether he was going to be allowed to play for the Broncos, given that he was now you know, an ARL player again. The ARL actually cleared it, and then Mundine pulled out anyway, said that he had a thumb injury that he might need surgery on. Shane Edwards came out and said, to my knowledge, there's no thumb injury. We're certainly disappointed, but we wish him well. 
The Phantom Thumb injury. Yeah. And so that was basically it for the mundane experience at the Broncos. A big off-field splash and, you know, played a part in a champion team. But I don't think many people think back on his Broncos experience at all. Like it's kind of been lost to time in some ways. So doing better was his former Dragons teammate, Gordon Tallis, who was making his Broncos debut after sitting out 1996. In some respects, came of age as a player. He had a big game against Wigan in the World Club Challenge that really stood out. But not everyone was convinced. So uh, in a Gladys Craven column, uh, she wrote, St. George supporters are keeping a close watch on their Brisbane talent, Gordon Tallis and Anthony Mundine. They note Tallis has not played a top game this year after his scintillating form in the nines which I don't remember giving Gladys Craven access to my journal, but at some stage I must have. <laughs> I like how you referred to her as she. <laughs> Respecting the uh, pseudonym. So Gordon Tallis emerging as the champion he went on to become. But who I really want to talk about in this Broncos team is John Plath. Original Mr. Fix-It. Yeah, exactly. So in 1997, he celebrated his 100th first grade game. 76 of those had come off the bench. He played basically every position in the Broncos except prop. A really handy asset to have on the bench. So Wayne Bennett said, because Plathy can cover so many positions, he becomes an extremely valuable man for us now. If a player comes off because of injury, Plathy gives me valuable interchange time while we assess the injury. I can play him anywhere with confidence. And I know if I asked him, he'd play prop for the team too. Luxury for a coach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he saw himself as a hooker as his natural position, but was happy with his role. So he said, I'm a realist. The Freddie fill-in role has been mine for five years now, and it looks like it's going to continue. <laughs> Is rugby league exclusive to put a, uh, an old man's name before <laughs> a word, like yeah. create alliteration? It seems like it's just rugby league. <laughs> Neville nobody, you know, that sort of thing. I like his... Uh, self-awareness in talking about his play. So of his preferred role hooker, he said, I rate Johnny Driscoll's play a little more conservative than mine, but his mistake rate is nil. If you rated the three Broncos hookers of the last two years on their mistake rate, Johnny would be first, I'd be second, and Kerry would come in third. This year, Wayne wanted a mistake-free hooker, and in JD, he has one. Shouldn't you want a mistake-free hooker every year? (laughs) (laughs) So I think his awareness of maybe, you know, flaws in his game and how the other players in the team were going, made him suited to that role of, you know, just doing whatever job was asked. And Wayne Bennett, like, clearly had great admiration for him. The rest of the team also, like, he was a popular player, genuine larrikin. If you're standing out as a larrikin in that Walters Langer (laughs) uh, era, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, In a Steve Mascod column, he wrote, Plath makes the word larrikin look banal. He's not ashamed to admit his nightclub appearances considerably outnumber his first grade starts. (laughs) yeah shane edwards saying he enjoys life he can see the humorous side it's important you have a mix in the team we have players who are the other way they are very quiet and serious plathy makes sure they can see the lighter side of any situation he tries to lead the boys astray occasionally and if they won't go he goes on his own you take him out of that squad there would have probably been a um a lot harder to win that comp yeah yeah exactly and the fact that he you know came in as a junior in 88 and was in the team for the 92 and 93 comps it was there in 88 as a you know 15 16 year old i think like not wow. not a yeah. Um, yeah so very handy player to have uh gave me my favorite 
image of the year, which was him on the field with a magnum of champagne and a cigarette in his mouth after the grand final win. So enjoyed his footy. But a key part of that team who, as we said, were in a transition point, had some problems with injury throughout the year. You needed that kind of glue guy, that good dressing room presence, a lack of ego and someone who could just do any job asked of him. That sort of quality became especially important with the injury to Glenn Lazarus midway through the year. So he got injured in July, was out for the season. And at that point, there were very real concerns about the Broncos' ability to go on with it. And conversely, I think for Glenn Lazarus to get back at his age and his size. So David Middleton was worried about him coming back because he said that when he got injured in 91, he came back looking like a sumo wrestler. He was 25 then, and now he's 31. Lazarus comes back, and from memory, he was a bit bigger in the uh, Melbourne years, but he still came back and gave Melbourne instant credibility. There was two separate Lazarus bodies, the Canberra one with the flat top, yep. and he looked like Dolph Lundgren, and then there was like giant Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting. I don't think this is true of any other great of the era, that you know, 24, 25 years after he retired, there's still no one close. Oh. Webke probably got the closest, but, you know, there's some distance between Webke and Lazarus. What he did for that position was just incredible. How can you be that big and be that agile to play the ball like that? <laughs> and, and, you know, not that I want to derail this with a, an Immortals discussion, but I think every year, like, his case for immortality grows when you consider that, like, no one else gets near him you know, in the 25 years since. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he wouldn't look out of place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But, but that's all we'll say on that. But basically, Lazarus was gone midway through the year, so it was up to the rest of the pack to step up. They had a new breed coming in, which is like, it's pretty weird to think that there were doubts about Brisbane when Lazarus went down when you had a pack including... Gordon Tallis, Brad Thorne, Shane Webke, Peter Ryan, Andrew G. Peter Ryan was a hitman too, God. I love uh, Wayne Bennett's comment on Peter Ryan. I'll never forget this. We were playing the Gold Coast and our goal line dropout sailed 50 metres through the air. This guy is catching it and bang, Pete hits him. Colossal hit. Best one-on-one -on -one tackle you'd ever see. Hit him magnificently after running 40-odd metres flat out to the target. Then he jumped up, cocked his elbow and dropped it into the guy's head. That was Peter Ryan, pure adrenaline. He copped two or three weeks for that. So a violent act of thuggery is looked on. I mean, that was Pete, you know. Yeah. The way they just like gloss over things like that. Yeah. Uh, but this was the year that Webke arrived. Again, he was considered the Broncos' discovery of the year, which uh, Super League magazine said it was a close one between Shane Webke and Tony Carroll. So... Fairly stacked at the Broncos in this era. Imagine like all those defenders coming at you. Carol, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ryan, mm. Talis. Webke, like, yeah, not quite Lazarus, but amazing prop. Yeah, and again, it's probably Webke and then some distance from him to the next one. Uh, but yeah, so that was the year that he emerged and he talks about it as being like, you know, one of his favourite years and the 97 comp means more to him than... 98 and the Super League stuff kind of passed him by as a young player. It was just him worrying about his career and getting to be a top player. Uh, and he called it the year in which it all really came together for me for the first time. I remember seeing his name in the 
program and thinking, oh, freaking how do you say that? Yeah. Well, I was hating the name. <laughs> and then going from that thought to seeing what a great career yeah. he uh, For Darren Lockyer, he'd probably already broken out, but this was the year that he went from, you know, the exciting young player to having legitimate claims to best player in the world. Made his Australian debuts. Started the year maybe like behind David Peachy in terms of best fullback in Super League, but by the end of the year, it wasn't a question. Steve Renoff called him the best player in either competition. And this is what I want to say about Darren Lockyer. How much time did we spend on Anthony Mundine in this episode? I could read out like literally 50 quotes from 1997 about people talking about how good Darren Lockyer was. But it's just not as interesting. There's only so many ways you can say one of the greatest players of all time was a really great player. But it was all on field. There was like no scandal, no outlandish behavior. You couldn't even get a quote out of him in 97. It was just... You talk a glass eye to sleep, that's for yeah. sure. But uh, <laughs> I prefer to have um, a unimpeachable career like him than be funny off the field. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So there's not that much to say other than he was a great player who basically like stamped his passport as a great player in 1997. The guy just went from strength to strength every year. They all predicted it. Sterlo, all those guys, said this guy's got it. And then he just improved every year to become <laughs> unbeatable. And really, when you put all this together, we haven't even talked about Alf, who had basically moved to a different stage of his career, but was just as good at that new stage and was, you know, clearly the best performing halfback in Super League, wouldn't have had many challenges in the ARL. And basically when you put all that together, it's hard to see a scenario where the Broncos didn't win in 97. Yeah, in hindsight, it was like um, how Cronulla were favourites, I don't know. Yeah. So I think by the end of the year, that had faded. And by the time it got to the finals, it was, you know, pretty clear that Brisbane were going to win it. Does it qualify for fate accompli? <laughs> oh, it's probably the most fate of any accompli uh, in, in this series. But the thing is that they had a lot to prove and the Broncos players were keenly aware of their failures over the last few years. And the secret to the success, of course, came down to a very particular type of session that was held in the preseason. So Mike Coleman wrote that, they had a lot of meetings behind closed doors throughout 1997, but the most important was before a football had even been kicked. It was a meeting of the players, no coaches, no officials, and it was the day they drew a line in the sand and said, it stops here. So that was honesty session number one for 1997. Honesty session number two came after that Cronulla loss where they got together. In Wendell Saylor's words, the second one was after Cronulla smashed us down at Shark Park. We were really dirty about that. We got together again and the feeling was, hey guys, come on, we can't let it happen again. It was like the semis in 1996. We got there and been knocked out. We weren't going to have a repeat. That was a turning point. After that, we won 13 games straight. Was that honesty session a players only? The preseason one was players only. I think at least uh, Wayne Bennett was there for the uh, for the Sharks one. He can't win a comp without an honesty session. That's it's, a genuine it, fact. Yeah, never been done. So there it is, basically. So... The Sorry for the spoiler, anyone who was keenly <laughs> waiting for our grand final recap to know what happened. But basically, after that Sharks loss, the Broncos didn't lose another game for the year. A very, very, very good football team they had in 1997. 
Well, just bad luck for the Sharks that they got the grand final against, you know, super coach Bennett, who always yep. wins the grand finals generally. Yeah. And then, um, all these big game players, these clutch players, and it's their first one. You've got to lose one to win one. It's yeah. just bad timing for the yep. Sharks. Absolutely. Uh, but we'll hear all about it in our, uh, grand final recap, which is going to be a really fun one. I'm really looking forward to talking about that grand final and, uh, all the carry on either side of it. So, uh, you'll hear from us soon for that. Uh, but in the meantime, hope you've enjoyed this episode. It was Saturday, September 20, 1997, and over 58,000 people were at Brisbane's ANZ Stadium for the inaugural Super League Grand Final. After an extravagant week-long build-up and pre-match entertainment featuring Olivia Newton-John, by the 43rd minute the on-field fireworks had been in short supply. Suddenly, a wayward pass from Wendell Saylor ended up with the Sharks, and as Russell Richardson scored, the game roared to life with intensity and attacking play. For Sharks fans, however, it was a temporary glimmer of hope, as the brilliance of Steve Renoff and company steered the home side to victory. After being hailed as presumptive champions the entire season, the Broncos had made it official. This is part one of Two Tones, the 35th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm really good. A sense of relief is washing over me. We have finally made it to the end of our Super League domestic season recap. By no means the end of our season, but it still feels like a milestone to get to Super League Grand Final Day, or night, as the case may be. I've learned that when you get these season recaps, you really need to have someone overseeing your um, mania because it can get out of control. So for the <laughs> ARL one, I'm going to have a couple of guys next to you the whole time. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, our attitude here is why trim fat? The fat's sometimes the best part. So <laughs> we like to keep it shaggy. But i got to say, this is going to be a very controlled episode because there's so much great content over the next hour or so. I, I really enjoyed putting this one together. We're going to look at the grand final. But before we do that, we need to look at the finals. And before we do that, we need to look at who got there and how they got there. So this may be my favorite Super League magazine spin of the whole year, Graham Bicknell at the end of June, riding on the prospects of the Super League finals. Really, you could throw a blanket over the field. A photo finishes in the wind. <laughs> you could take a real lesson in positivity from the Super League magazine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so quite off the mark, really. The Broncos, as we said in the last episode, finished five points clear. The semifinals were decided a week out, which... Just thinking about football today, it kind of makes sense that in a top five system that would happen semi-regularly, but it surprises me how often we get that in the top eight era, like a clear gap between eighth and ninth. Yeah. But that in itself was a bit of a blow to the credibility of Super League when they pitched that it was best of the best and every week was, you know, the country going at it and anyone could win on any given day, as it turns out. We knew weeks out who the likely finalists were going to be. In a further blow to the credibility of the new competition, the five teams that made it were the five existing clubs. None of the new clubs or the 
very recent clubs made it. And for all the talk of a national competition, we had three Sydney teams plus Canberra and Brisbane. This is the thing, man. It's like the pitch was for an actual Super League, not two half-assed competitions vying for a waning public interest, you know? True. They're still pitching as if it was the best of the best, when it clearly wasn't. It's, uh I guess they wrote their marketing material two years ahead of the competition yeah. starting. <laughs> and saying that, you can't really say, come and watch the best of the rest, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you, you can't scale that downwards. You can't come out in 95, all guns blazing, and then 97 have some watered down. Come watch a fairly decent competition. It's what really, um, I think, got the public's goat and created the overall negative vibe was, both sides bullshitting everybody. <laughs> so, oh, I'm pretty sure only Super League diehards were reading Super League the magazine because if Aussies for the ARL or any other of you know ARL aligned people got wind of the spin that was being produced in that magazine every <laughs> week, it would have been out of control. I've got confidence that Barb wasn't spending money on Super League magazine. <laughs> I got to say, on Super League's final system. One thing that they did that was very sensible and very smart was to go back to the traditional top five format. In a 10-team comp, it was the only choice. The ARL in a 12-team comp, it was the only choice for them too, but instead they went wacky with the seven-team finals with redundant games in the middle of them, and we'll break down how that played out when we get to our ARL recap, but it was just very smart of Super League to not compromise the competition by going with some wacky semi-finals format? I didn't mind that 17 idea and all that sort of stuff. We'll talk about it later, like you said. But again, it's the schizophrenic nature of their, we're traditional, we're new, we're yeah, wacky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like they never got it right. Yeah. One thing Super League did well to avoid was it was mooted at various stages that they would be looking at a three-game grand final. I had a good thing about that after receiving your dossier. I mean, if that was how it was from the beginning, it would be just like Origin. It would be accepted, but it just wouldn't be accepted. <laughs> no. A hundred years in. Yeah. I think it works in some sports, but in a sport as physical as rugby league, you can't have a 20-week season, semifinals, and then a three-game grand final. It would just be carnage. We're going to talk about, you know, the usual, you know, sicknesses and injuries leading up to the grand final. So you put two more games into that, yeah. you have, like, four players left. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the suspension hearings every week and just let him play. And... <laughs> Can you imagine the game two judiciary? <laughs> You'd have to postpone game two to get all the hearings done. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing Super League did was to make the semifinals completely like home and away based. So the ARL had been moving slowly towards that with finally allowing semifinals to be played in Brisbane a couple of years earlier. But now with Super League, every game would be played at the home ground of the team that finished higher on the ladder. Yeah, common sense system, but if the grounds are like really shitty, which they still were and still are in many cases. This is the problem. Yeah. They talked it up as, you know, finally there's a real advantage for finishing higher on the ladder, there's a reward for your regular season performance, which is all well and good. And then they were saying, oh, we're moving away from Moore Park. And it's like, okay, well, that's great. But when you move from Moore Park to Belmore and Woolaware, <laughs> it creates an issue. 
the word woolaware shouldn't be in a national comp. <laughs> so basically, no semifinals were held at the SFS. The Sharks played two games against Canberra at Shark Park. The Bulldogs played the Panthers at Belmore. And we're going to talk about where Brisbane played their semifinal. And I do like the idea of a team being rewarded. So in that respect, it was good for Sharks to get that reward. They were playing at night, which as we talked about in the last episode, is a sizable advantage for them. That was undercut somewhat by the fact that the fans were ambushed by an earlier start time. So they were used to 7.30 starts. The game started at 6 p.m. And uh, Shane Richardson noted that quite a few people were turning up at the ground well after kickoff. I have no sympathy for that ambush. You need to look at the ticket. You need to (laughs) look at the time on the advertisement and sort of run your life by that. (laughs) And it's funny that ambushes are seeping out of the game into the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a game that Canberra were expected to win. They, as we talked about earlier in this chapter, had started the season slow but had developed some momentum And it was just viewed that they were coming on at the right time. They had the class. The Sharks were pretenders and Canberra were just going to sweep through. As it turns out, that's not what happened. Cronulla got the win, 22-18 in a scoreline that even Bradley Clyde said flattered the Raiders. So it was once again Cronulla proving that they were a clear second best team in 1997. So the other semi-final of that weekend was Canterbury versus Penrith. So fourth place Canterbury taking on fifth place Penrith. This ended up being the only semi-final that didn't go chalk. So Penrith beat Canterbury 15-14 uh, in, you know, maybe the best actual game of the semi-final series. The difference was a field goal to Ryan Girdler right on the stroke of half time, which I feel like these days that's just become kind of a standard play if you're in position right at half time, but I don't recall seeing too much of that happening in the 90s. Especially if I'm good. Yeah, so a decisive play, and as I said, the only example of a lower-ranked team beating the higher-ranked team in that semi-final series. See, right there is an example of what Super League was aiming for, games like that every week. Yeah. <laughs> and they certainly didn't get that in the first semi-final. A game held at Stockland Stadium which geography buffs may realise is not in Brisbane, but in Townsville. Didn't they have Newcastle for a while as well? Well, Newcastle had the sponsorship. That's right, yeah. And they had the Stockland Shopping Centre up here as well. That's why I'm confused. (laughs) But it seemed like Stockland was everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, down in Sydney, I didn't notice that. So I think that must be in Newcastle. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't get away from it. So... Why was a Brisbane semi-final played in Townsville? It was because ANZ Stadium was unavailable until the grand final. And I tried to look into the exact reason why, and it seems that it came down to a outdoor theatre spectacular version of the opera Aida, <laughs> which took place at ANZ Stadium the night before the scheduled semi-final. So that was going to feature a 1,000 performers with... Camels, horses, sheep, and donkeys all on the field (laughs) of ANZ Stadium. Uh, And the verdict on that opera was that if you're going to go outdoors, you need a true rectangular stadium. So the Australian theatre critic Jacqueline Pascoe said, 
The first thing the audience noted as they took their seats for this spectacular version of, of Aida was that the stage seemed about as far away as Egypt. <laughs> so they had the same experience as the football fans. I know. I just love that. One of the few times that rugby league and opera align is rectangular <laughs> stadiums only. Well, I mean... When I turned on the coverage, I forgot how many metres there was between the front row and the sideline. Yeah. It must have been 25 metres. Yeah. From the front row. So much space was there that they were able to put in temporary seating on the field on both sides that we're going to get to looked awful. When you have an Olympic running track around there and you get rid of it. Yeah. So ANZ is out. I haven't been able to find whether Suncorp was like there was a clash of fixtures or whether it came down to the deal that the Broncos had with Brisbane City Council in exclusivity at ANZ Stadium. But I just can't see a scenario where playing at Townsville is considered a better choice than being at Suncorp. Yeah, madness. I mean, in saying that, they were sort of new to football still up there and can guarantee they're going to turn up at least. Yeah, totally. And also... I'd say there'd be quite a few people who got on board in 88 and didn't jump ship in 95. So it's a nice reward for the people of Townsville who showed up every week to a wooden spoon team to get a semi-final there is recognition of what a good fan base they were. And as it turned out, that semi-final was the only game in town in terms of football that night because the AFL made the decision to put back their semi-final due to the coverage of the funeral for Diana, Princess of Wales. Now, I'm not a promoter. I'm not uh, Bill Morty. I'm not Frank Warren. I'm not Don King. But I know that Diana dying is going to take a low shine off your event. Yeah, well, funnily enough, Adrian Lamb talking about the Roosters playing that afternoon said, it was discussed a lot and I was personally upset. The key word for the day was enjoyment, but the news of her death certainly upset that. So even the players struggling to get up for the game. Uh, (laughs) One thing this series has done for me is to make me really look back on my teendom and the type of person I was then. And the thing that stands out the most is that I loved a boycott like nothing else as a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Not only was I boycotting the Super League, I boycotted (laughs) Diana's funeral. I was disgusted with my family sitting there watching it that Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) On what grounds? Oh, I guess anti-royal sentiment. You were a militant little bugger, you were. (laughs) Um, I was on a school excursion in Canberra on one of those bus coach trip things. We had this math teacher... She was, like, young. She looked a bit like Kim Wilde. Oh, yeah. And uh, we used to call her kids in America. But she was in tears when the news dropped. And I was there thinking, come on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're in tears. You didn't even know her. You know? <laughs> but um, looking back now, I realize that it was a big thing. Yeah, it was a big thing. I can see that now. But let's get back to the football. It was an error-riddled performance from the Sharks that saw the Broncos easy winners 34-2. to the Sharks' credibility taking a knock while the Broncos made a statement to show that they were the ones to beat, as everyone already knew. Look, it's just unfair because 
We've had a friend of the show, Ben Darwin, former Wallaby and um, founder of Gainline Analytics, you know, the um, absolute oracle, in my view, of predicting sporting events. <laughs> and um, the continuity that the Broncos squad had versus the Sharks squad was just unfair. The amount of grand final experiences and playing together and origins and everything, like, it was an almost um, insurmountable task, really. Yeah, it was. And you say continuity, but it wasn't just a consistent bunch of players. It was a consistent bunch of the best players of the era. And when one of those left, three others sprung up in their place. So what yeah. could any other team do? Fertile soil up there. So an easy win for the Broncos. In the other semifinal, Canberra had an easy victory over the Panthers which would ultimately prove inconsequential to the rest of the finals. So we'll move on to the grand final qualifier in which Cronulla took on Canberra again at Shark Park. And this raised questions as to whether it was too much reward for the Sharks to get two home finals against the Raiders at Shark Park in the space of three weeks. It's rigged. (laughs) And this is where I think the balance comes into it. You know, as we've seen in the NRL at times, week one, you can get your home semi-final, but in a prelim situation, you're going to be in the main stadium of the city or one of the main stadiums. But regardless, the Sharks got the reward for being the second best team of the year. A pretty dour game, won 10 to 4, with Matt Rogers scoring all of Cronulla's points. The word dour featured a bit too much at times <laughs> as the season drew to a close. <laughs> So the Raiders were disappointed with their loss. Prescient from Ricky Stewart, who was asked after the game who he thought will win the grand final, he said, if I pick Brisbane, people will think it's sour grapes because we lost to Cronulla. But I'll say this, if Cronulla can only get us with one try when they have so much ball, they'll have a tough time next week. How can he turn just a simple who's going to win into like a siege mentality? (laughs) (laughs) What sort of of mind? I think it just goes to show that for some players, the media stuff just washes over them. Some players really take it to heart. And Sticky, you could see everything that came out, he had his back up because he knew that he was going to cop it and there was going to be more criticism in the press. So that's how we got there to grand final 1997. Cronulla versus Brisbane. And I mentioned that there were no games played at the SFS during this final series. This included the grand final, which, as we all know, was played at ANZ Stadium in Brisbane. That wasn't a foregone conclusion. So it was basically open to all bidders. Very Super Leagueian proposal to make it a bidding situation. So Rebo talked about wanting a Super Bowl style scenario where state governments could bid on the game and we could work out a deal to get the game traveling. Victoria were invited to get involved. It's actually ahead of its time, that thinking, but in rugby league, you just want continuity. It's a classic good idea in theory that doesn't work in practice in our sporting culture and our, you know, the logistics of our country. So hold the grand final in Sydney or Brisbane. Perfect. Doesn't really matter which. Melbourne, that's fine, but the MCG sucks for rugby league. Hold the game anywhere else in Australia, like what's the point? And I guess it's the same argument we're having in current times with Magic Weekend, what's the best way of doing it? But I think you have to look at the landscape you have and not try to artificially craft 
a Super Bowl thing that works in a country of 400 million people and, you know, stadiums in every major city that, you know, compared to what we have here. I think it runs deeper than that, mate. It's like, you know, it's a working class mentality. It's, um, you know, the soul of rugby league. I'm not saying that all the fans are working class now, but that whole thing of like, you know, comfort, you know, grand finals at this time every year. We've got the barbecue plan, the same people over every year. And, you know, we want yeah. the same stadium on TV. It's like, it's just that comfort thing with rugby league people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You just want the same stadium on your telly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's comfort and it's tradition. And, Maybe it works in Magic Weekend to take that to some exotic place, but with the grand final, you want it to feel like every other grand final. I'm still reeling from the nines in Fiji, you know, like <laughs> just keep it keep it regular. So it was going to be in Brisbane, and Rebo did a good job of selling that as a positive step and a necessary step. He said, "I don't apologize for looking at Queensland for the first grand final." Super League can't afford to have all our products in New South Wales. We've got to look at moving away, and I think Queensland stands out at favourite. Products. I think it made sense in a number of reasons. Firstly is the fact that in such a time of disillusionment and anti-Super League sentiment, that was less true in Brisbane than it was in Sydney by some order of magnitude. So it was necessary for Brisbane. Yeah, agreed. So even though Brisbane had had a down year as well in terms of crowd, they didn't emerge from Super League unscathed. It made sense for Super League to be there. Look, in Sydney, there would have been protests, bomb threats, who knows what else. Mm. I'm being serious too. (laughs) And on top of everything else, ANZ Stadium had the biggest capacity of any rugby league ground in Australia. So they had bigger capacity on their sidelines. Well, yeah. So the most Sydney clubs. (laughs) So. Basically, the league record for ANZ had been set in 1993, where 58,593 fans were there for a Broncos-St. George game. So the capacity was just under 60,000, but there was a possibility of extending that further by using the extensive sideline area to install temporary seating, which they ultimately did. In the end, they they only got, you know, 58,900 or something, so... They broke that 93 record, but could have done without the on-field seating. Decent um, club game numbers. So they extended the stadium. i got to say, it looked awful. Yeah. In that era, though, it didn't look that bad in that era. All I noticed was the corners of the actual stadium seemed cut off by these temporary seats. And I, I just really wonder if everyone got a clear view because of it. It just oh, looks strange. I guarantee they didn't. I yeah. <laughs> the, the most expensive seat in the house didn't get a clear view. Yeah. It reminds me of that um, Zoolander quote all the time, the centre for ants, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> but I still maintain it looks better than like the Adelaide Oval or um, mm. Melbourne Cricket Ground <laughs> yeah. with that giant brown field. Yeah. And it was a fast in the implementation in that the Cronulla Sharks players and families were sitting on these transportable seats right in the midst of this crowd overspill. So kids were coming up to the players trying to get autographs and, you know, encroaching on their space until Shane Richardson had to make a stand and order everyone away. They're very lucky Canberra didn't make it then. If Sticky was there for that. (laughs) And you might wonder, how do you go about organising such a logistical challenge Well, you get the best man for the job, Uh, a man with the coincidental name of Justin Rebo. 
who was <laughs> Super League's grand final project manager. <laughs> oh, we haven't talked about transferring nepotism across competitions. Yeah, yeah. It's rugby league DNA. I think Justin would have been about 25 at the time, tasked with the job, but, you know, he got it done, so all credit to him. So not everyone was on board with the Brisbane Grand Final. Perhaps predictably, Glenn Lazarus was one of those who spoke out against it. He said, I think that given the choice, most of the guys would prefer to play at the Sydney Football Stadium. I know I would. I wonder if he actually polled his teammates, most of whom were from Queensland and had played all their football in Brisbane. I think if I was from Brisbane playing at my home stadium, I'd be cheering. I'd bet pounds to peanuts he didn't poll anybody. I didn't know at the time what a contrarian bloke he was, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like this. He goes on to say, I was in Sydney during the week and just driving along Anzac Parade gave me the indisputable feeling it was grand final time. To see the flags flying in the streets out near the stadium brought back all those great memories of past successes. I think that goes back to what you were saying about people just wanting it to look like a grand final like they're used to. Yeah. Those flags that used to line Anzac Parade at grand final time, for me, they were the coolest thing. I spent a lot of time driving past them on the way to my grandparents' place and just seeing them just gave me a buzz that, you know, grand finals time's here. Yeah, so cool. But as we'll see, Super League went to way more effort to make Brisbane feel like the grand final city than just putting up some flags. So I, I think Lazarus may be a bit harsh there. Surprisingly, he had some support from Wayne Bennett, who said, I believe rugby league grand finals were born out of Sydney, and that's where they should be played. Without doubt, Sydney is the grand final spiritual home. Spiritual home is the rugby league. (laughs) Uh, Some mandatory pre-grand final reporting. I know you'll appreciate this. This came from Super League magazine. Catering experts estimate that since rugby league moved to ANZ Stadium in 1993, Fans have devoured more than 15 semi-trailer loads of steaming hot chips, 1.5 million cans of beer and soft drink, and half a million meat pies and hot dogs. <laughs> it's long discussed in this podcast as the laziest journalism you can get, popularized by my man Buzz, but who are the catering experts? This is what, this is what I want to ask you. Do you think a single catering expert was consulted, or is this just a figure pulled out of nowhere? They must have talked to somebody there, but, I mean, a catering expert. I don't think a catering expert is going to be an expert in volume capacity of a semi-trailer for a start. Yeah. I mean, is it someone just going, well, we had um like roughly 35000 a month here come through and, you know, so yeah. in, in five years, and is, it that, is it that sort of figures or is it like sitting down with the algorithms and going like... <laughs> yeah. Or is it just Buzz getting his calculations that he did in 1993 and just adding to it each year? (laughs) What if he keeps a running tally? (laughs) I'd love to know if Buzz has a spreadsheet at home with, you know, hot dogs, (laughs) pies, cans of beer. Well, it's a guaranteed story every year, so why not? (laughs) But I mentioned that Super League went to a big effort to make Brisbane seem like the grand final city. And... A big part of that was making it grand final week, which I've always thought of the grand final as grand final week. It's my favorite week of the year, but that's always been like a personal thing, just reading the stories and getting more and more buzzed as the week goes on. (laughs) Reading the stories, learning about the workings of a hyperbaric chamber. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Super League went all out to make it a carnival event. So they had a ceremony where they presented Wally Lewis with the number one ticket for the grand final. There were events all over the place culminating in the Super League ball, a black tie affair two nights before the grand final where they would also do the awards for the year. They were ahead of their time on that, and a few times they've been ahead of their time in promo. Yeah, Um, yeah. It's a bit of a gimme, but give them kudos anyway. Yeah. City Rowers Tavern was the epicenter of festivities for the week. I'll just read you a few highlights from their packed calendar of events. On Monday, you had a no-talent karaoke party hosted by Super League players. (laughs) You had a Super League players panel hosted by Tony Durkin, a clothing parade featuring Alan Langer, the (laughs) after-party of the Super League ball, uh, and then Friday night, another karaoke party hosted by Super League players. Pretty wise to get those sort of accessible events. Karaoke is pretty new at the time, but very accessible for everybody. Everyone has a laugh. Yeah. And another thing that sounds like the complete opposite of wise, but ensure of making the, the players were lubricated enough to mingle with the fans at City Rowers and make it a great night for all. Two players from each club were flown up for the event and given tickets for free drinks at the club for the duration of the stay. <laughs> oh, God almighty. That's got <laughs> dynamite in a furnace uh, <laughs> potential. I loved uh, Steve Price's comment on this. Darren Britt and myself were the lucky two from the Bulldogs, and even though I don't drink, it was one of the greatest weeks I've been involved with. Word soon got out as to what was going on, free drinks and pub promotions all around. Suddenly there were players all over the place wanting to get to Brisbane to be part of it. We started with about 16 blokes and ended up with more than twice that many. Some of them even cut short their holidays to be there. (laughs) They were threatening to get on the drink all the time. (laughs) That goes away to explaining why Steve Price is such a good bloke. Yeah. (laughs) No aggro juice. Yeah. But, um... Do you reckon they sat down, and I'm being serious, and said, all right, we've got two blokes here. Who can we pick? You know, we don't want any Julian O'Neill types, you know? <laughs> oh, like, you'd have to think so. I mean, Darren Britt and Steve Price, two good choices for the dogs. Darren Britt, I'm sure, got amongst it, but he's a veteran. I can't see him getting too out of control. Steve Price, a non-drinker, perfect. So that gives me pause to think that they did think strategically about who they'd be inviting. <laughs> North Queensland, can we have Nandruku, please? <laughs> Getting the players to mingle with the fans, it didn't really apply to uh, Andrew G and Alfie and the walkabout London <laughs> a few years later when they brushed me. But <laughs> I can't wait when this is going to be our buzz-style meaningless tally when we get to this series. Andrew Paskin mentioned Andrew G and Anna Langer brushing him about 30 <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> and he also ate 500,000 meatballs. <laughs> there was the grand final parade, which perhaps ironically, Laurie Daly was tasked with holding the trophy as it drove down the main street of Brisbane in an open top car with Alexandra Paul, Baywatch star. And Laurie had to explain the 89 dropping of the trophy, which she found amusing, apparently. Now, do you think she found that amusing? <laughs> Well, it was reported as her finding it amusing. I would love to be a fly on the wall for the Alexandra Paul Laurie Daly combo. <laughs> so that was just a small selection of the events. There were things happening everywhere. Steve Price again thought maybe they went overboard. He said, to be honest, I think they might have gone too far with it. 
Somewhere in the middle would have been perfect. That was one of the problems. This is the thing. They were in a rock and a hard place given they had half a comp. So what do you do? Just put the white flag up or polish that turd till it can't gleam any brighter? Yeah. I think Glenn Lazarus makes a good point that it was a bit too much pressure on the players playing the grand final. Under the ARL, you had the grand final breakfast, but that was basically it. For the rest of the week, you were left to prepare for the game. It's another advantage for the Broncos because the Sharks, that would have affected them a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Matt Rogers actually said that in his book. He said that it was just too much. It was like a full-on week with all these events going on. It was hard to get settled for the game. And we're looking at this through modern eyes, like they're professionals now. They know how to handle the media a little bit better and events, that type of thing, corporate stuff. Back then, basically anything from Princess Di to a stub token put them off their game. So Yeah. Yeah, like when you're not used to it and suddenly there's all these changes all at once, it's a big ask. But Alexandra Paul wasn't just there for the grand final parade. She was actually the star attraction at the Super League ball, which I love this description. It's such a rugby league mix of highbrow and lowbrow. (laughs) What a night of nights. The Queensland Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the maestro of music, Tommy Tycho, performing with Grace Knight and Wendy Matthews. And the Telstra medal, the symbol of Super League's super player, was presented by Baywatch star Alexandra Paul. <laughs> now, is Tommy Tycho related to Timmy Trumpet? <laughs> I had that exact same thought, but he was a Hungarian-Australian conductor who had a foot in both the pop and classical camp, so a respected classical musician. Now, I love the fact they're getting orchestras involved and stuff in rugby league, a bit more class, as it were. And I love Wendy Matthews as a rugby league um, type artist. Alexandra Paul, I wouldn't have went with that, but it's hard to describe to the youngsters out there how big Baywatch was amongst vermin back then. (laughs) It was massive. (laughs) It was massive. But to me, it seems a bit low rent to have a second tier Baywatch girl given the honor of handing out the prestigious Player of the Year award. I looked her up because I didn't remember, and then I remembered a boat race when I saw it. Very yeah. attractive uh, woman, but she was about 38 or something at the time. <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think by 97, the heyday had passed. You know, you'd had the Pamela era, the Erica Aleniak. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if you'd asked me six years ago if that name would pop up in the series, <laughs> I would have given you 10,000 to one. but to the award itself it was a strange voting system where coaches of each club voted on their best player for each game on a 3-2-1 basis those votes were then tallied and the top player from each club was then nominated for the award which meant there were 10 players finalists and media representatives would then vote on those 10 players to come up with a winner convoluted and it also meant that it was a less star-studded top 10 than you'd perhaps want. So the 10 finalists for the Super League Player of the Year award were Mark Corvo from Adelaide, Stacey Jones, Kevin Walters, Laurie Daly, Darren Britt, David Peachy, Tim Madison from the Hunter Mariners, Owen Cunningham, Ryan Girdler, and Robbie Kearns. Tim Madison was up there with Corvo for Super League Made Him. Mm. Great season. Yeah. But were they the 10 best players of the year, it's hard to see how you could make a case for that. It's just hilarious to me. I loved him as a player, but the fact that Darren Britt was so 
prevalent in Super League. Yeah, yeah. He's obviously a lot better player than a journeyman prop, but that was his vibe, you know? Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> he's like one of the big faces of Super League. <laughs> so Super League Magazine's team of the year, just for a bit of context, Darren Lockyer at fullback, Wendell Saylor and Matt Rogers on the wing, Steve Renoff and Ryan Girdler in the centres, Laurie Daly and Alan Langer in the halves, Darren Smith at lock, Steve Kearney and Dave Ferner in the second row, props of Rodney Howe and Shane Webke and Craig Gower at hooker. So that's a pretty good team. As it turns out, Laurie Daly won the Player of the Year award, which we've talked about before as, you know, asserting what a class player he still was. Interestingly enough, after the grand final, I heard Sturlo on the coverage talk about Darren Lockyer and said, no disrespect to Laurie Daly, who's a wonderful player, but for me, Darren Lockyer was you know, easily the best player of the year this year. It was great to hear Stella's commentary back then. It was a little bit less polished and a bit more real. Yeah. We're both big Stella fans of his analysis, but he was bigging up Lockyer from his junior days and he was the biggest Lockyer supporter. And mm. um, you could tell in that, in that coverage, but he did say something funny. He goes, look, I probably watched a few more Brisbane games, but for mine, he was the yeah. better player. <laughs> so <laughs> if you didn't watch all the games, then you're going to be accurate, you know? But really, out of Lockyer, Langer, and Kevin Walters, any three of those could have credibly been the best player of the year in Super League. So it just shows the flaws in this system. But I'm happy for Laurie Daly to get that recognition. Yeah, we did the heavy lifting, mate. So um, he probably got a few votes for that as well. Mm. And Wayne Bennett was named Coach of the Year, beating John Lang and Graham Murray. And it was actually the first time he'd won that award since... 87 at Canberra, so deserved honour for him. But let's get to game day itself. And I just want to start by talking about some of the narratives going into each of these teams. So the Sharks were up against history. For a start, it would have been the biggest semi-final turnaround in terms of beating a team in the grand final that you had been beaten by in the semi-finals. So the record... Uh, St. George actually sit on either side of that record. So in 1958, they were beaten by West 34 to 10 in the semifinals before going on to win the grand final. And in 1999, they beat Melbourne 34 to 10. And apparently, I can't, memory's hazy, apparently it didn't go their way in the grand final. <laughs> so there were 17 examples of teams losing a semifinal and then beating the same opponent in the grand final. But 13 of those came in the top five or top four era final series, I think. It's a lot harder to do that in the top eight system. On top of that, there was a massive gulf in terms of grand final experience. The Sharks had a combined 60 seconds of grand final experience with Jason Stevens, the only player who'd played in the grand final. That was at St. George in 93. And he came off injured after one minute. So that was the extent of the Sharks' grand final experience. That's amazing. And I love this speech from ET. This was an article in the Daily Telegraph in the lead up to the grand final. He said, I realized I had to tell them just how tough this game can be. It can be cruel and uncaring. It isn't always sentimental and it doesn't always show you mercy. So I decided it was time for the most important speech of my life. I directed my words at the young blokes. Veterans like Danny Lee, Les Davidson and Mitch Healy already knew what I meant. I told them there is nothing inevitable about rugby league. Making a grand final was something that some of them would only ever have one shot at. It's so easy to think that there's always next year, especially when you're a 21-year-old playing first grade football. And those words, very sadly proven quite correct. 
Tuera Nikau was the only player in that Shark squad who would play another grand final. Well, you saw E.T.'s reaction when Cronulla won it, the tears streaming down his face. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, we'll talk about the reactions at the tail end of the episode, but I thought on the winning and losing side, it was both a bit muted for the most part. But E.T., you could just see it in his face. It was almost as if he knew that this was his chance. Yeah, absolutely. And a shame for such an you know, amazing player. And you mentioned... 2016 and that beautiful moment of him and Gal embracing. This was from that same Daily Telegraph article. I'm going to run out onto the field on Saturday night and play for those who did not win a premiership for the Sharks. I remember playing with Steve Rogers when I was a teenager and he wasn't. I now flick past to his son on the wing and marvel at the likeness between father and son. I also remember the coaches and the teammates who entered each season with great hope, only to let it go before the finals, or like last season during the finals. This grand final is for them. I'm a focused player, but thoughts of them will not escape me when I run onto the field on Saturday night. Mm. It's just so beautiful to me thinking about ET, thinking about this game in those terms, and then it not working out, but having Gal do the same thing for him 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. And after our last episode, my favourite part of every episode release is the stories that come out of it from listeners. And there was a lot of Dean Treister talk in the aftermath of that episode, which led me to an article in the lead-up to the 2016 Grand Final where Treister, who is actually like a multi-millionaire in the US, he has a, a sample book company, he flew out with his family for the Grand Final and all the Sharks old boys from the 90s were there together and... So cool. You know, spent the week together and then celebrated together during the game. Like it's, it's just awesome. Well, it's amazing that he could juggle those commitments. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, there's so many amazing post-Rugby League career stories in Rugby League. I know. The biggest sample book company in the US. Or something. <laughs> it's like, how would you predict that? <laughs> so I think the emotion was with the Sharks in terms of storylines. What could you say trying to build it up for the Broncos. It's, we don't want to be the first Broncos team to lose a grand final. We're playing it at home, so we don't want to disappoint the Brisbane fans. You couldn't really build up the same heartwarming narratives. So it was lucky that they were just a good enough team that it didn't matter. The other narrative was the referee, Bill Harrigan, who was refing his first grand final since 1991 and bowed to public pressure and cut his hair for the occasion. It was still pretty shaggy. Yeah, he said, I had three inches taken off the back and sides. Everyone kept saying, get a haircut, so I did. <laughs> the vitriol towards that bloke's hair was crazy. <laughs> I think I was part of it back then as well. But I was definitely part of it. <laughs> you were boycotting his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize he had such a big break between grand finals, though. Yeah, I know. I mean, I guess he had 95 and 96. He wasn't there, but... Yeah, like a good three-year period where I thought he would have taken over as the choice by then, but not the case. It seems like hyperbole now, but you can really tell how he controlled the game. He's like no other. And watching yeah. that game back, I kind of wish we had him, guys like him now. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone I've seen since who had that same control. And I don't know what it is. Like, What quality do you need to get that respect and get the players in line? Is it just not having the ratty little voice, as you uh, often talk about? Well, that helps, I think. But it's also like 
he believed he was better than them, you know. Like, mm, yeah. He was a copper, so yeah, that's part of it as well, I think. Mm. He's got that authoritative uh, way about them. So let's get to the entertainment, the main event, which was a 20th anniversary celebration of Greece. <laughs> which I love the way Super League magazine really tries to sell everything that Super League did, perhaps unnecessarily. So they had a story about it where they outlined the case for Greece. They said, it's one of the most successful movie musicals ever made. The film continues to play to appreciative audiences years after its release. It's been performed somewhere on stage in the world ever since 1977. A US production is currently on tour. A new multi-million dollar Australian production will open in Melbourne next year. It's like, just tell us that you're doing a Grease show. We don't need the, the marketing strategy behind it. What did you write in the notes that was really funny about that? Hey, let me find it. Super League unnecessarily lays out the case for Greece. It's like <laughs> everybody, it's like ice cream, puppies, really good stuff. <laughs> so, so the executive producer of the grand final, David Hart, said, Greece is an ideal stadium show because fans of every lo- age love the music, fans of every age love Olivia, and Super League will deliver all three. I mean, by my count, there's only two things that they're delivering, but... That was second prime era Olivia too. Yeah, and that was the coup. It was getting Olivia there. Uh, we both watched her portion of the Grease Spectacular. What are your thoughts on Livy? Oh, I mean, is there anybody alive that doesn't love her? But, I mean, um, when Chia was doing Hopelessly Devoted to You, the slow ballad, I was like, this isn't really rugby league. But then they went into the, the up-tempo stuff to finish it off, and it really worked. Yeah, and I love, you know, you're saying everyone loves her. I think she's one of those, like, near 100% approval rate. And I love the way she, so John Travolta couldn't be there, so John Two Tribe Stevens took his role. And I love the way she sold John Stevens. She, on stage, said, I'd like to introduce the other John in my life, who, like, had she met him before that night, you know, it was just, like, really cool. <laughs> And also the way she shouted out Brisbane and the crowd and Super League Grand Final. Just to hear Olivia Newton-John say, like, Super League Grand Final is not words that I would have expected that she'd have uttered. So it was cool to get her. I'm glad Travolta didn't turn up. We didn't know what a creepy was back then (laughs) until that um, interview with uh, Denton. Yeah. (laughs) And he was just unnerving. But I loved uh, Peter Jackson's recap of the entertainment. He said... While I'm on Livy and the pregame entertainment, it was the biggest, brightest, and most exciting spectacle I've ever seen. The 20th anniversary of Greece just pumped the 60,000-strong crowd to fever pitch. I just love the idea of hopelessly devoted to you coming on and the crowd just, yes! <laughs> I think they had the same reaction I did. I mean, I'm a fan of that song. I love the film. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> And then the Greece Megamix comes in. It's like, yeah, where we go. Yeah, except the only downer is it suffered from the same problem that the actual musical does, which the last song that we go together is like the worst song in the movie, and that's what it ends on, and that's what the <laughs> entertainment ends on as well. So I'd cut it after you're the one that I want, personally. I mean, um, it would have been a good coup to get Frenchie out here, but the... Um... <laughs> To replace Alexandra, whatever her name was. (laughs) But do you think in the film it's a metaphor for good Sandy is the ARL and then bad Sandy in the leather is Super League? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, So along with the Grease Spectacular, there was assorted other horse shit. 
uh, a stadium stunt involving 20,000 members of the crowd, which I wasn't able to work out what that was. I'm sure it involved the holding up of some kind of sign. There was a fireworks display <laughs> from a RAAF F111 uh, staging a spectacular dump and burn over the stadium to signify that the game is on. <laughs> and then I know your thoughts on pyrotechnics in general, but when they did the fireworks before the game, the players run yeah. on. It looked you, like 94 bushfires. You could not see a blade of grass on the field. It was just white smoke. Yeah, but like this was the era that really put me off them, I think, because that was ridiculous. How would you breathe out there? You're trying yeah. to get, get up for the game. It just seems so obtrusive to yeah. have to deal with that. And for what? For some stupid little like lights in the air. Yeah, but run on the players did to these fireworks. Before we could play the game, there was the national anthem, which was performed by Human Nature. And I've got to say, I hated their look. I hated their songs. I hated their overall vibe. But an acapella rendition of the national anthem, I thought it was brilliant. So I've got to give it up for Human Nature's anthem. My uh, mate used to work for MTV, and when they have like a corporate event or whatever, someone from the office has got to take them around and sort of be their minder, their handler. And he went through a bunch of celebrities that were all massive cockheads, and he said like they were the most polite guys. Whatever you needed, they do, and like you know, they're a pop band and they are what they are, good yeah. singers and follow every stupid fashion that comes out. I hated that little goatee the guy I had. Yeah. But um, so they sounded great, and he reckons they're like true gentlemen. Well, that's nice to hear. They actually performed at the formal at my wife's uh, school. So, Holy <laughs> Jesus, yeah. what a get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the game itself, and there's a few key moments to talk about, but let's just start with some overall thoughts on the game and your experience re-watching it. What I took from it was I didn't realize how classy Steve Renoff was still at that yeah. era. Yeah, And the comparison between his steely determination body language and execution to come up with clutch plays and clutch tries compared to Peaches, mm. chalk and cheese. Yeah. So two massive game breakers and one that gets it done when it matters and the other one is sort of more of a front-running game breaker. I think that's true. I also think it's unfair to Peachy when you consider... So, Renoff scored three tries, which made him the second player in the mandatory grand final era to score a grand final hat-trick, Eddie Lumsden doing it in 1961. Since Renoff, Michael Robertson in 2008 is the only one to have got a grand final hat-trick. So, a rare performance there. The third of those tries, which was just the most beautiful play, it was... Langer to Walters to Lockyer to Renoff. Like, Beautiful, how did the yeah. Sharks have a chance? He did that same move in that game where he gets outside the play before the ball arrives, like that World yeah. Cup move. Yeah, yeah. And he's still doing it at that age. And well, he wasn't old or anything, but I mean, he was a bit more stout than he was when he was a pure Ferrari. I was just so impressed by his game. You saw it all there. You saw everything he could do in his class. He only had you know, less than 10 metres to run, but he did so much in that 10 metres to get the try. And that was coming off some beautiful play by, you know, his aforementioned teammates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by guys that can execute under pressure because I'm not one of them. <laughs> guys that do everything right in the big moments like that. Yeah. They're just uh, beautiful to watch. Some great comments on Renoff from Wayne Bennett. So just an overall comment. These all come from his book. 
He said, Steve Randolph is one of those players I wish had never retired. I just loved watching him play, which I think that's up there with the approval rating of Olivia Newton-John for a, a universal sentiment. Yeah. It brought back memories of how much of a part of my childhood Randolph was. Yeah. He was the premier yeah. center yep. for most of it. Yeah. And I don't think we've seen his exact type since. There's been some wonderful centers in the 20 years since he retired, but no one really, I've gone like, oh, he's like the new Renoff. I think it comes down to him knowing his game and what his role was. And this, again, this is a quote from Wayne Bennett. A lot of centers from that era became good dummy half runners. Steve was very capable of doing that, but hardly ever did. I said to him one day, are you all right to have a run from dummy half? I wasn't pushing him about it. He said, oh no, I'm a strike center. I don't want to use my gas up. When I get the ball, I want to be as fresh as I can be so I can run and use my legs as best as I can. Very cerebral. And Bennett goes on to say, it's a pretty good point, actually. That's what he was, an absolute strike weapon, a premium center with very few peers. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's great if a center can do all of these other things. But if you're a weapon like Renoff was, just be a weapon and get yeah. your three tries. It did help playing outside that back line his whole career, so we, we can't discount that. Uh, yeah, benefit, and but, it, it was, yeah. I mean, they didn't really get too long together, but Renoff and Lockyer together had some, you know, Cliffy Menzies kind of comparisons. It was just a dynamite combination. And then to go to Wigan and just keep going with it. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there any more perfect career than that? Broncos to Wigan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> in that era. Yeah. Following on from Gene Miles doing the same. Yeah. Just on Lockyer, across the park, the Broncos were awesome. Like, Langer was awesome. Mundine had a sensational game. Darren Smith was fantastic. Like, Langer was still a great player, but you could already see it becoming Lockyer's team. Yeah, I mean, Langer was uh, hurt during this game, they said, carrying some sort of injury, and he, he was just sort of conducting things a lot, executing with the bombs and stuff. Yeah, and the other notable thing for me, I mentioned Mundine having a great game. A lot of that comes down to what we said last week about Mundine needing the ball in his hands and Bennett eventually recognizing that and just having him out wide in the centers wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to be best for the team. There was some, I guess, you know, you don't want your starting hooker to be injured for a grand final, but what that did was allow Bennett to move Kevin Walters to hooker for points during the game and have Anthony Mundine play a bit more of a central role in the attack which yeah. worked very well. And there was a bit of talk about Kevin Walters as a hooker in the lead-up. And Tim Sheens actually said that he thought that hooker could be his best position. He would have made a great one. Yeah. But uh, when I saw the lineups and they're running out, it says, Andrew G, hooker. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about this. <laughs> yeah, so how that worked was they split the hooking duties, basically. So Andrew G would hook in the scrum, but... Kevin Walters would be playing dummy half. I want to single out Darren Smith as well because I thought he was pretty much best on par. Yeah, he was brilliant. And so a bit of a, a strike against Chris Anderson there for not getting the best out of Smith. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Darren Smith was great. Uh, a player we talked about last week and relating to Kevin Walters was John Plath, Freddie Fillin, who came on in the 20th minute essentially to let Kevin Walters play at 5'8 again and have Mundine rack off back to the centers. But Platt's role as Freddie Fillin wasn't just playing at hooker, it was bringing the niggle into the game, which was one of the most noticeable things was how quickly and how absolutely he riled up the Sharks. 
I used to hate him as a player, right? Watching him when I was a kid. Now I love him. And seeing his interview after the game, how laconic and cheeky he is. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So within 10 minutes of him being on the field, the Sharks players started laying into him. He was on the ground and Les Davidson gave him three punches that would probably see him get, you know, four to six weeks today. (laughs) He said something after the game. He goes, oh, I just went and shook hands with Steve. It's all forgotten. Yeah. (laughs) Like a real footballer. Yeah. Uh, And interesting to me, there was a lot of talk about it after the match, about the niggle and Talis saying that they got really niggly and they fell into the trap instead of playing football. They were trying to punch us. They should have just played footy. Funnily enough, Les Davidson of John Plath said, that's the way he plays. We should have realized that and not retaliated. I try to play with my head and not my heart these days. And unfortunately, I played with my heart. Funny thing to me, reading that statement and then watching the game was right on the stroke of halftime as they're walking off. John Plath is giving it to the Sharks. I don't know what he was saying, but (laughs) even ET was arcing up about whatever John Plath was saying. <laughs> you can't be concentrating on John Plath's mouth when you've got like yeah. Steve Renoff and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And funnily enough in that Les Davidson comment is that at that stage when they're walking off at halftime, Craig Greenhill was starting to get really fired up and getting a bit close to Plath. And it was Les Davidson who came over and pulled him away. So I think Les Davidson had worked it out by that stage that, oh, Plus being brought on specifically to bait us and get us to do what I did, which is to retaliate. So he worked it out in the moment, but it was just really funny to watch. This is from 2016. There was an article in the Rugby League Week about the incident and that game. And Steve Renoff said, when we all get together, we always talk about how Plathy played such a big role in that game. It was real Michael Ennis stuff. With Plathy, you poke him and it's like poking the sleeping bull. Push him far enough and he won't back down. I've had Bengals with him, and he's just a terrier. I feel like Michael Ennis, I think people genuinely thought he was a dickhead. Yeah. But I think people like Plathy. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things you walk off at the end of the game and you go, oh, bloody Plathy, you got me. Yeah, yeah. But overall, I think the game was dominated by mistakes more than anything else. That, in large part, came down to the ball, which continuing issues... (laughs) I can't abide this ball and nighttime dew thing. It's like you're professional athletes or you're not. There were over 20 handling errors in the game. and Ridiculous. Watching it, it felt like there were 50. The spectacle was very marred by the handling. Yeah. And a couple of key mistakes firstly opened up the game and then ultimately decided it. The first of it was Wendell Saylor. So just after halftime, the Broncos winning 10-2, returning a kick and... Near his own line, Wendell Saylor threw a pass that was, I think it was Mick DeVere who was in line to catch it, but it just sailed like right past him and was then scooped up by the Sharks who got their only try. It was a pre-brain explosion, brain explosion. Yeah, yeah. Horrendous error, but what that moment did was a game that was very lackluster, held down by these handling issues and a game that was quite dull suddenly the intensity just lifted immensely right after that the Sharks scored make it 10-8 probably for the next 10 minutes or so it was a really gripping contest and the Sharks were looking to get some of the advantage yeah I thought they put in a good fight they were just a gear short of the Broncos that was all yeah yeah and it's probably a credit to the Broncos defense that the Sharks 
only try came from this error. Otherwise, the Broncos contained them well. And ultimately, it was another error which took it out of their hands completely with David Peachy catching a bomb near his own line, but not seeing Peter Ryan running in at a million miles an hour and just drilling him. The ball pops straight out. Uh, Renoff scores his second try. He was such a hitman, you forget, and that was a defensive try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. This is Ryan. You can't blame Peach for that. No, yeah, I think it's unfair to blame Peachy. There was a worse drop earlier from Peachy earlier in the game, which was inexplicably called a knockback from Harrigan. But I don't blame Peachy for this error. This was <laughs> Peter Ryan's comment on it. Peachy didn't see me until late, which gave me the opportunity to keep going fast, and I just leveled him. He dropped the ball on instant contact and finished up on the ground underneath me. I knocked myself a bit stupid. I bounced up off the ground, saw the Pearl had scored a try, and thought, what the hell happened here? <laughs> he treated him like a tackling bag. I don't know how a human being can withstand that and not have broken bones. Yeah. <laughs> but what was hilarious was the commentators talking about this amazing tactic of bombing. Yeah, yeah. It was some sort of novel idea that you bomb. Early in the game, there was a moment where I think it was Cronulla close to the line and Rabs has gone, oh, are we going to see the first bomb of the game? <laughs> you were saying to me midweek, you, you wanted to see how Rabs performed in the commentary box, whether he had the same gusto he had for the ARL. And I was really impressed with his professionalism and being impartial. Vintage Rabs, really. I was too, because he did get a lot of criticism among the Super League contingent that year for not calling Super League games with the same level of vigour. And in his book, he comes out and makes explicit what everyone in, involved in the game knew, which was that he was on the ARL side. In his book, he said, I've never before come out and declared my feeling publicly, but I believe what Super League represented was wrong. I had great reservations about the manner in which that whole episode went on. And on the grand final itself in his book, he talked about, you know, the ARL grand final that year and what a miracle that was. And he said, when Brisbane beat Cronulla in the Super League grand final in the same season, I didn't feel the same. I doubt anyone felt good about the year, which obviously this game wasn't a patch on the ARL grand final, but he sold it. I thought his commentary was great. I didn't get any sense that he wasn't fully invested in the game. I always respect him for his professionalism and how he treated the game in his career because he treated the role as an important part of the experience, which it is, unlike today where it's just a bunch of like sports tab guys jacking off, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. But like Richie Benno, he, he added gravitas to it and um, I was really impressed by him. But mm. on another note, the commentary back then, so different. They weren't doing this um, fake uh, rah-rah for the game. Like, this is, we're witnessing history in this game. Yeah. It's, it's one of the greatest things you'll ever see. You know what, bullshit. They were just calling the game. Yeah. And um, refreshing. I want to single out sideline commenter Chris Bombolas. Bomber. I, I, was, I was like... <laughs> Bomb, Chris Bombolas? Did you look him up? Who I looked this him up. Guy? I looked him up too, yeah. He's in everything so, but a shit uh, sandwich. <laughs> so he's a stalwart of Queensland sports broadcasting, I guess, which I guess was why they had him at ANZ. Later went on to be a state MP for Labor, but I'd never heard of him before watching the replay of this game. But you could see in the interview with Plath after the game that the players obviously knew him quite well and, and had a good relationship with him. So yeah. I thought he did a good job of the sideline reporting. So I had no issue with Chris Bombolas, despite not knowing who he was. But in the end, just not a classic grand final. 
watching the first half, I was like, this is legitimately the worst grand final I've ever watched by some distance. The second half I thought was quite entertaining and it brought it from a really bad grand final to just a run of the mill. Well, grand finals tend to get judged on the closeness of the game, right? So when it runs away, it's always a downer. But I think you put that in the Sydney football stadium, it doesn't look as bad. Mm. But you're right, the handling error is moderate. But yeah. What can you do? They had the same balls the whole season and there was Jew yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're onto something with the SFS looking better because ANZ, I'd forgotten about how shit it looked. I didn't like it at the time. Not a good stadium in my view. <laughs> but I never went there. I'd love to hear any you know Brisbane-based listeners who may have been there as to what game day experience at ANZ was like. I'll tell you one thing. It would have uh, done wonders for the sales of binoculars up there. Yeah. (laughs) So moving on to the presentation, which was a break with tradition in that they didn't do the runners-up awards, which was viewed as very controversial and even disrespectful at the time. But I think it's totally the way to go. Like, it was just a bit silly, the players every year just walking on stage and getting their medal that that they didn't want. (laughs) It, It was almost like rubbing their nose in it. Yeah, it's the other way it's disrespectful, probably. But um, yeah. it's good to see Super League carried on with the tradition of some dipshit businessman talking for no reason and um, handing out the awards like the sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants it. No. I loved Alfie's speech where he thanked the sponsors and said, thanks to all our sponsors for supporting us through the Super League war and the ARL war. <laughs> Alfie's so authentic. <laughs> not having a player of the match award on stage was just bizarre crazy they didn't do that crazy clive church was one of the great things of sport for me yeah like to not have that set up and it's the malmeninga medal or the terry lamb medal or whatever you want to call it but it's just the most obvious like i cannot believe they didn't do it you had 40 metric tons of fireworks before the game and, and no man of the match yeah I thought overall the responses from both the winning and losing teams were a bit muted. There wasn't intense heartbreak from the Sharks or, for the most cases, rapturous joy from the Broncos. I mean, Gordon Tallis was there crying on the field. I think Mundine was as well. So some players, I think, felt it, but it was just a bit flat was how I thought it looked at the end of it. Well, I mean, unless you had an ARL grand final style finish, I think it's always going to have that feeling. Half a comp. Yeah. The war, I don't think you could do anything about it unless it was a classic game. Yeah. And I think the other problem was that it had been a long season with the World Club Challenge as well and a long season that wasn't over. So (laughs) the day after the grand final, the Sharks were flying to London to play the quarterfinal of the World Club Challenge. The Broncos were also still involved, obviously. You had the Test Series to be played. So football was still being played in Super League well into November. Do you remember that ad uh, for like Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers where, um, is it Rowena Wallace or someone? She had the bag of oranges around her neck going like, uh, here's how much weight I've lost. It's like carrying this Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what the World Club Challenge was for Super League. (laughs) It was a bag of oranges. That's a very good metaphor, yeah. So I think it's no surprise then that players were feeling a bit jaded. Matt Rogers' comment on the grand final was, it received great press coverage, but it just wasn't what I imagined it to be. 
We were paraded through the streets of Cronulla before the grand final, but we were jaded and never quite climbed the mountain. The day after the grand final, we had to fly to London and play the London Broncos in World Club Challenge quarterfinal. So it didn't seem like a grand final at all. Pretty poor scheduling, really, but I mean... Yeah, and I think it says something of the Broncos that they were able to overcome that and still go on and win the World Club Challenge when they had test representatives as well. Do you reckon there was any um, amber ale flowing on that flight? (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing it did was to mean that a Super Bowl was going to be basically impossible, even if there was the will. There was just no time to play it because Super League was still playing their season well into November. You know what they should have done? Like the greatest game never filmed, the Dream Team playing each other in practice at the 90 Olympics. They should have just got a ground and turned up for a scrimmage and played each other. And see. Oh, I love that. I love it. But unfortunately, that didn't take place. So what we're left with is the one and only domestic Super League season. And just to finish with a bit of evaluation, I think a lot of what they did was it became entrenched in Australian rugby league culture, whether it's the video ref, night grand finals, the pay TV side of things. Most of their rule changes were really good. Even the innovations that didn't take off, like I love what they did with Grand Final Week and I wish we hadn't gone down more of that path. Like I think the NRL is doing a better job now. I think there were some great innovations throughout the season. They had a couple of little things I thought was cool. I always loved the ball, right? Even though it was made out of a cake of sunlight soap, <laughs> the, um, the look of it. And then they had the touch judges had the Super League sign on the flags. It's like mm. before they used to just be coloured flags. They just had little touches that were classy. Yeah, so they did a lot of things right and made some innovations, but I guess the question is, were these innovations worth the pain? Which I don't think so, but it was still necessary for the game to evolve and modernise. The war, it wasn't worth it, we all know that, but it really did uh, force the hand to move into the future, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and we would have liked to do that without almost destroying the game in the process, (laughs) but... But I think for Super League, it was basically over before it started. It was an uphill battle for credibility. They struggled to gain a foothold because, A, half the fans of the game hated them, and even the ones that didn't were promised this, you know, brand-new style of football and this, you know, super competition and got, at best, an average rugby league competition. But for the Broncos, what it meant was that they were on a mission in 1998. More than the ARL, they were tarred with the half-comp stain. So Wayne Bennett said, We didn't feel any less champions, but when the game came back together, we knew what 1998 would be about, whacking it right up everybody in the only possible way. But, you know, I want to stay on that half-comp stain thing because I think they wore it to a greater degree than the ARL, maybe because of the newness of it. And, you know, even if South and Balmain were shit, they were still South and Balmain. Like, people still had some recognition. Matt Rogers on the Super League season said, the downside though was playing teams like the Adelaide Rams and the Hunter Mariners because no one cared. There was no history. That's all true, but maybe because I was in Newcastle a lot in that era, nobody, and I mean nobody, mentioned that the ARL was half a comp. Everyone just pretended. No. Yeah. Delusionally pretended. And it used to irritate the shit out of me because it's like, just be real. You beat four teams. Yeah, exactly. And... 
on that, there was no history. Well, of course there wasn't. But 25 years later, we could be talking about this year as the birth of the Adelaide Rams, who by this stage of, you know, won three comps and now rugby league is a viable option in Adelaide and we're not. So it's another innovation that Super League were on the right side of. But just with the botched execution of almost everything since 1995, it meant that they weren't able to capitalize on those innovations. <laughs> that sentence wasn't a dig. That was a factual report. Yeah. <laughs> but this is really interesting to me from Les Davidson. He was asked about the grand final and what winning it would have meant. And he said, it was good to be part of it, but it would have been much better if there had been the one competition with all 20 clubs in it. If we'd won, I wouldn't have been as happy knowing the likes of Manly, East and Newcastle hadn't been in the competition. I got more of a buzz when I was at South and we won a third grade grand final. <laughs> really selling it, Bundy. But I understand that though. So few players have been honest about that half a comp thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think when we started this season, we talked about the inevitability of compromise and how fragile that compromise was and how often it threatened to fall apart and how often the ARL and Super League at various points talked about 1998 as if it was viable that they could be running with separate competitions again. When in reality, I think the greatest lesson of this Super League season was everybody involved in the game knew that there was no way you could have two competitions again. Like it, it just couldn't happen. If we had a search for positives... Every time there's a rumor of a breakaway league in um, the papers, which there is every year, everyone just goes, not going to happen. Cause like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. We, <laughs> we know it's not going to happen because we've seen how it ends. And I'm going to give the last words to Wayne Bennett, a very simple and eloquent summation of the situation. We'd hurt ourselves enough. And that's what it basically all comes down to. The game had hurt itself enough and it was time to get back together. Actually, getting there is still a way down the track uh, for us. But i got to say, on the Broncos, what a brilliant team they were in 97. Yeah, and then they backed it up in 98. Yeah. Era-defining stuff. That. Yeah. So if you haven't gone back and watched the 97 Grand Final, I would highly suggest doing so, if only because it's about the only Super League game you can find anywhere on the internet which is regrettable. But in the end, a very interesting watch. And in terms of quality of play, I thought the second half got going and you could really see what a champion team they were. So that is our episode. That's our chapter. We've covered the domestic season, but there's plenty more ahead. We've got Tri-Series Finals and World Club Challenge. We've got the ARL. We've got Newcastle. And then eventually we've got one competition again. So all that is coming up. Uh, for the rest of our season. But for now, we will say goodbye and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.